Pray with me, please. Lord, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Amen. April the 15th, 1947. That day ought to be celebrated as a special day of remembrance in the history of this country. For on that day, a black man and a white man together changed a game and a nation forever. April the 15th. 1947, on that bitingly cold April afternoon, Jackie Robinson took the field for the very first time as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers Major League Baseball team. And in that stunningly dramatic moment, he shattered once and for all and forever the racial barriers which had existed up to that time in the world of professional sports. Ah, but the fact of the matter is, what happened that day not only impacted the sports world, it literally changed the course of this nation's history. We tend to regard Martin Luther King Jr. as the primary driving force behind the civil rights movement in this country, and that he was. But what I want you to understand is that Dr. King could never have done what he did had not Jackie Robinson done what he did a decade earlier. The whole fascinating story is told for you in a book written by a Princeton University professor, Arnold Rampersad. The book is entitled, Jackie Robinson, A Biography. Whether you are a sports fan or not, it is a great read. April the 15th, 1947. The day a black man and a white man together changed a game and a nation forever. The black man, of course, was Jackie Robinson. The white man was Branch Rickey, the president and general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Branch Rickey was a great baseball man, yes, but much more importantly, I think Branch Rickey was a deeply devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. And it was his Christian faith that led him to the conviction that the racial barrier in Major League Baseball had to be broken. And that he was in a position to make it happen. Now, Branch Rickey knew that uh, the player who took that courageous step was going to have to be an extraordinary athlete, yes, but also would have to possess an inner strength sufficient to deal with all of the pressure and the prejudice and the persecution Branch Rickey knew would come. It was at that point that his eye fell upon Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson at that point was a dynamic young ball player filled with great potential. Much more to Ricky's purposes, however. Jackie Robinson had been given, first in his childhood, by his mother, later on during his troubled adolescent years, by a Methodist preacher. Jackie Robinson had been given a strong faith in Jesus Christ and a belief that God had great plans for him in his life. And so it was that Branch Rickey invited Jackie Robinson to his office, and an amazing conversation took place there. You know, it is said that on small moments, history turns. This was a small moment, but it turned history. 
When Robinson sat down in Branch Rickey's office, Rickey immediately said to him, I know you're a good ball player, but what I don't know is if you have any guts. With that, Robinson stiffened immediately. But before he could answer, Branch Rickey said, I want to know if you have guts enough not to fight back. And then at that moment, suddenly, surprisingly, shockingly, Branch Rickey jumped out of his chair, stripped off his coat, and he immediately proceeded to act out all of the abuse he knew that Jackie Robinson would have to endure. He spewed verbal venom all over Robinson. He got right in his face and screamed threats at him. At one point, he even swung his pudgy fist at Robinson's head, and Robinson had to duck to keep from being hit. And then Ricky screamed at him, Do you have courage enough not to fight back? Jackie Robinson very calmly replied, Mr. Ricky, I read the Bible. I know what Jesus says about turning the other cheek. I can do that. At that point, Branch Ricky sat down on the sofa next to Jackie Robinson, reached out, picked up a book that was on the coffee table there. It was a book quite popular in that day. It was called The Life of Christ, written by Alfred Adersheim. Ricky flipped to a page in that book and then proceeded to read a paragraph from that book to Jackie Robinson a paragraph which stated that Jesus' teaching about turning the other cheek is the single most revolutionary teaching in all of human history. Right then and right there, Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey struck a covenant with the Lord and with each other. They went on then to strike a blow for justice on the baseball field, and what they did ultimately struck the spark which ignited the civil rights movement in this nation. April the 15th, 1947, the day a black man and a white man together changed a game and a nation forever. Jackie Robinson believed in the wisdom of the revolutionary teaching of Jesus Christ about turning the other cheek. Now, there are so many people in this world Who would be willing to tell you that turning the other cheek is not a wise thing to do? They say that if you follow that teaching, the world simply will run you over or run you down or run you out. So, I put the question to all of us today. Turning the other cheek, is it wise or otherwise? Let's look at this teaching of Jesus to see if we might discover the answer. In the first place, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he means that we are to respond to harshness with kindness. In other words, don't retaliate. Now, it is very important for you to understand exactly what Jesus meant when he delivered this teaching. There are any number of people through the ages who have misinterpreted Jesus' words. When you read what Jesus actually said, he specifically states uh, that you are struck on the right cheek. The right cheek. Now, in order to be struck on the right cheek... 
unless you are confronting that rare left-handed person, you have to be struck with the back of the other person's hand. In Jesus' day, being struck with the back of the hand was not an act of attack. It was instead an act of insult. And so Jesus, in essence, was saying that hurts and slanders and insults in life ought to be ignored. Don't exchange hurt for hurt. Don't feel that you've got to get even with someone. Don't let someone else's actions determine your actions. Two wrongs don't make a right. When you encounter hurts, slanders, or insults along your life's journey, respond to that harshness with kindness. Don't retaliate. Now, Jesus, of course, is the perfect example of such a gracious spirit. Remember, please, that all the way through his life, Jesus experienced hurt of one form or another. People were insulting him every time he turned around. Slanders were forever being directed against him. And yet Jesus never once responded to that hurtfulness with a harshness of his own. He was way too big, way too strong, way too courageous to ever do anything like that. Now, wait just a minute here. Who we've got to be careful. I want you to understand that this teaching does not mean that in life we are to be weak, passive, and spineless. It does not mean that we are to be doormats in life. Four words, weak, passive, spineless, doormat. Not a single one of those words could ever be applied to Jesus Christ. Jesus was anything but weak, passive, and spineless. Jesus was anything but a doormat. No, Jesus understood that it takes an extraordinary strength and courage to be able not to retaliate when hurts or insults or slanders are directed to you. He calls us then to respond to harshness with kindness. Jackie Robinson was a big, big man. He possessed an unbelievable strength and courage inside. And that's what enabled him never, ever to retaliate against the insults and the slanders which were heaped upon him. By the way, do you know that Major League Baseball, for the first time in its history, has permanently retired Jackie Robinson's number 42? No Major League Baseball player on any team will ever again wear the number 42. And it is all in honor of Jackie Robinson. Turning the other cheek. Is it wise or otherwise? You tell me. And when Jesus says that we are to turn the other cheek, he means that we are to respond to abuse with grace. In other words, don't hate. Now, if you look at Jesus' life carefully, you readily understand that Jesus' life from the beginning to the end was marked by an extraordinary degree of abuse. I mean, that's the way his life started out. 
His family had to make that hazardous flight from uh, the Holy Land over to Egypt in order to preserve this infant child's life from the threats of death leveled by the aging, raging King Herod. When Jesus first preached in his own hometown amongst the people with whom he'd grown up, what happened? They turned on him. They seized him. He barely managed to escape being stoned to death all the way through his life. He was conspired against by those seeking to do him in. Ultimately, of course, he was cursed and beaten and stripped and spat upon and nailed to a cross and left to die as hideous and painful a death as you could ever imagine. And yet, how did Jesus respond to all of that abuse? With grace. The soldiers came to arrest him. He did not retaliate. In fact, he said to Peter, put up your sword. The soldiers nailed him to the cross. He did not respond with hatred. In fact, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. There was one of those Roman soldiers on Calvary that day who saw it all and heard it all. And when he had seen it all and heard it all, he then said it all. He said, surely this was the Son of God. A number of years later, another soldier said something quite similar. The soldier's name was Napoleon. Napoleon said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires built upon force. Only Jesus Christ has founded an empire built upon love. And today, millions of people would be willing to die for him. Thus spake Napoleon. And look at what has happened since. The empires of Alexander and Caesar and Charlemagne and Napoleon have disappeared into the dustbin of human history. Only the empire of Jesus Christ remains. And today, not just millions, but literally billions of people would be willing to die for him. Love is the single most powerful force in all the world. Infinitely more powerful than hate. And so Jesus says to us, when you encounter hurts, insults, or slanders in life, don't hate. Respond to abuse with grace. Turning the other cheek? Is it wise or otherwise, you tell me. And then when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he means that we are to respond to adversity with perseverance. In other words, don't quit. Don't retaliate. Don't hate. Don't quit. After that April day in 1947, for years thereafter, Jackie Robinson endured almost unspeakable prejudice and persecution. Taunts and threats marked every single day of his career as a Major League Baseball player. When you read the account, page after page after page, it will reduce you to tears. And yet through it all, Jackie Robinson never quit. He persevered. And because he persevered, he prevailed. Dear friends, when life knocks us flat, we have two choices. We can quit, we can give up, give out, give in, or we can get back up, dust ourselves off, 
and go on living creatively and confidently in Jesus Christ. The best example of taking that second choice that I have ever encountered was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor named George Matheson. He was born in 1842 in the city of Glasgow, Scotland. By the time he reached his teen years, he was showing extraordinary promise and potential for his life. He went off to college and was building a splendid record. And there in college, he, he fell in love with a young woman. She became the great love of his life, and he longed to marry her. At age 18, life knocked George Matheson flat. Tragically, he was stricken blind. This young woman, as if the blindness was not devastating enough, this young woman, with cruelty aforethought, said to him, I do not wish to be married to a blind man. And with malice and cruelty aforethought, she turned and stalked out of his life forever. The world for George Matheson crumbled. Now, at that point, George Matheson could have responded with anger, hatred, bitterness, resentment. He could have withdrawn into a shell and cursed God. Or he could have just quit, just given up on life. He did none of the above. Instead... He turned his now sightless eyes toward Jesus Christ. He filled his broken heart with a love for the people of God. And he gave himself to the gospel ministry. In what could only be described as an amazing demonstration of love, George Matheson's sister became his eyes. She actually went with him to seminary. She learned... Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, just so that she could help him with his studies. When he entered the ministry, she became an invaluable help to him in fulfilling his pastoral responsibilities. One example. Here is the way George Matheson would preach. Because of his disability, he developed a remarkable memory. And so each week... He would sit down with his sister. He would dictate to his sister his sermon. She would write down the words. She would then read the entire sermon back to him twice. That was sufficient for him to memorize the sermon. And on Sunday morning, he would stand in the pulpit and preach that sermon word for word. Ultimately, he became one of Scotland's greatest preachers, preaching to 2,000 people every Sunday morning at his church in Edinburgh. June the 6th, 1882, George Matheson's sister was to be married. He was thrilled for her. But you can imagine, can't you, how her pending marriage would have awakened all of the old pain in his life. The great love of his heart turned and walked out of his life, leaving him to a life of both singleness and sightlessness. And yet, even in the midst of that reawakened pain, his love for Jesus Christ prevailed. He sent word to his sister, asking if she would interrupt her preparations for her wedding, to come to him just for a few minutes, to write down some words that were rolling around in his mind and in his heart. She came, and in five minutes... He had dictated the words. She had written them down. The words became one of the best loved hymns of them all. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. 
I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Dear friends, let me say as simply, as plainly, as clearly as I know how. Commit your life to Jesus Christ and commit to live your life every day in the spirit of Jesus Christ. For if you do, then I promise you, you will know a life that, as George Matheson's hymn puts it, you will know a life that shall endless be. Pray with me, please. God on high, hear my prayer. Enable us not to retaliate, not to hate, never to quit. Enable us instead to live every day in the spirit of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Many people ask, many of you ask, How could I possibly know God's will for my life? When most people ask that question, what they're really asking is how can I know that God is guiding my everyday choices and decisions? The will of God is perfectly revealed to us in Scripture. It is then for us to be receptive to what we hear from Him in His Word and then be obedient to his spirit. So the real question is not, how can I know God's will for my life? For that is revealed to us. The real question is, how can I know? How can I be certain that I am receptive to and obediently following the revealed will of God for my life? Today's text reveals to us Philip, who has both a receptive and an obedient spirit. It requires an openness to listen for and respond to the Holy Spirit. And it requires a receptivity to the Spirit and obedience. No matter how ridiculous the instructions may seem to us. It may seem ridiculous to you that people from our congregation might be called to go to Coyular, Honduras when there's so much to do right here on Hilton Head or in Beaufort County. But having been called, we must be receptive to the call God has placed on our lives and obedient then to follow that call, no matter how ridiculous those instructions may seem to others. One key to understanding the passage today is this. What is translated for us as go south to the road, the desert road, the the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, 
can also be translated, go at high noon along the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. The same word that can be translated south can also be translated midday or high noon. And so, recognizing that Philip would already know that Gaza is south of Jerusalem, that's not a really important thing for the Spirit to reveal to him. But in order for Philip to be in the right, not only place, but at the right time, to be engaged in this divine appointment that God has set for him, Philip does need to know when to go. And so if we understand the initial instruction of the Spirit in this passage to be not go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem, but if we understand that it says go at high noon along the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, then Philip has all the needed guidance required to be at the right place at the right time for the divine appointment God has set for him. Philip had heard the risen Christ deliver the Great Commission, the commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them everything that Christ had commanded. Philip also knew that it not it not only meant go, it meant as you go. As you go today, wherever you go, make disciples. As you go today, there will be divine appointments set for you. It's up to you to keep them. As you go. Now the Spirit was specifically directing Philip to go to the desert road at noon Strange instructions, to be sure. Instructions requiring an obedient, willing disciple. Philip went. And as he went, he found that God had set a divine appointment just for him. He met a man of great wealth, great power, great influence. He met the secretary of the treasury of the Candace dynasty of Ethiopia. How many of you have met the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States of America? Raise your hand. Okay, how about the Secretary of the Treasury of Great Britain? No? This is a person of great influence, a person of great wealth, a person probably of great intellect, a foreigner, someone who Philip encounters along the way. He was also a man, in some ways, unfulfilled. It is revealed to us in this text that he was a eunuch. He's also a man with a seeking heart, a fertile mind, and an openness of spirit. How do I know that? He is a man who, all the way from Ethiopia in southern Africa, he had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order that he might worship God. He is, I assure you, not a Jew, but he is a proselyte. He is interested. He is seeking. He has come a long way seeking God. And yet whatever he experienced in the temple in Jerusalem did not give him what he was looking for. And so he is now on his way home. But he is still seeking. How do I know? 
He has the scroll of the prophet Isaiah open before him, and he is seeking to understand the word of God. That's where this divine appointment is set to take place. God's got a plan. And Philip's willingness to follow the Lord's instruction and follow the desert road toward Gaza at high noon puts both of these men in the same place at the same time, on the same day, precisely as the man is reading from Isaiah 53. He's reading. We can assume that he has read up to chapter 53 of the prophet Isaiah. He's been reading a while. And Philip running alongside the chariot, inquires, do you understand what you are reading? Another way of hearing that is Philip asked, do you find what you're reading to be meaningful? Not only do you understand, can you comprehend the text, but do you find it meaningful? It is a question that shows Philip's genuine interest in another person. It is a question that elicits an answer that opens a door. How could it possibly be meaningful to me when I can't even understand who it's talking about? I need someone to explain it to me. Do you understand the mysteries of this text? Do you understand of whom this text is speaking? I imagine that a smile crossed Philip's face, and with that, he was invited up into the chariot. Philip knew precisely of whom the text spoke. He not only knew intellectually, he knew personally. Philip has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So do we. What a privilege. What an honor. Philip's been invited up into the chariot of a person of wealth and privilege and influence in the world. What a privilege. What an honor. Not, not a privilege and an honor to be invited into the power circle. Not a privilege or an honor to sit with a wealthy man in a fancy chariot. That's not the privilege and honor that I'm talking about. What a privilege and what an honor to open with a truly seeking person the Word of God. What a privilege and what an honor it is to be there when the light comes on for someone when they understand for the first time not only that there is a God of love, but that God loves them so much so that he would go to all links imaginable to reach them, even on a desert road at high noon in the middle of nowhere. Philip looked down at the page, looked down at the scroll, looked down at the column of Hebrew text, and he saw what the man was reading. Isaiah 53, verse 7. And starting right there, Scripture says, starting right there, not backing up to those great texts that come a few chapters earlier, not running ahead to other texts that Philip had already memorized and would probably do a better job explaining. No, no. Starting right there, where the man was, Philip explained to him about Jesus. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. Starting right there. Starting right there, I imagine that Philip opened to this man the truth about the Christ. I imagine that he told him all about Jesus and how before Caiaphas, Jesus had remained silent, not opening his mouth. How indeed Jesus, by oppression and judgment, was taken away. I imagine that he told him what happened before Pilate. That indeed he was cut off from the land of the living. That how Jesus was crucified and how he died. And who can speak of his descendants? I imagine that Philip said, I am his descendant. It is not about being born of flesh. It is about being born of the Holy Spirit. And then I imagine that they read on. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And I imagine that Philip stopped right there and told the story of Joseph of Arimathea. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, and I imagine that right there, Philip stopped and he shared with him that Jesus had willingly laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice once for all. No other sacrifice ever needed. God's justice having been completely satisfied verse by verse. Chapter by chapter, I imagine that they continued through chapter 53 and through chapter 54 and on to chapter 55. Listen to verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear to me and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. I imagine that right there in the midst of those verses, Philip was honored to tell this wealthy man, about an eternal inheritance. To tell this person who was doling out food to the hungry in Ethiopia about the food, the bread from heaven that is delivered by God in the person of Jesus Christ forever. I imagine that he told him about how Jesus taught about himself as the living water that gushes up to eternal life. I imagine that he told him about the feast, the breaking of the bread, the pouring of the wine, how Jesus reinterpreted for them the Passover meal and gave it new meaning. And then I imagine that he pointed again to the verse about an everlasting covenant. A covenant, yes, that would be kept. For Jesus, you see, is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has a kingdom. It is not a kingdom of this world. It is a kingdom of every time and place and of all people who set themselves under his sovereign authority. I imagine that he told him 
that Jesus said of himself, this is the new covenant, sealed in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. I imagine he looked down at the scroll and continued on. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander of the people. Surely you will summon nations to know, who know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. I imagine he told him about the, transform, the transfiguration of Christ. I imagine that he told him, you know what, we have seen his glory. The glory as of a father's only son. And we know that he is seated in heaven. And we know that he's coming again. He gave us a charge that we would share this good news with all nations. And what a privilege. You from Ethiopia and me from Israel, I'm having the privilege of sharing now the good news of the gospel with Africa. Maybe he also said, I believe that even now with these words, God is seeking you. And through you, seeking the people of Ethiopia. You see, when he had risen from the dead, Jesus commanded us to go, and as we go, to baptize. This is when I imagine the Ethiopian eunuch began looking for that pond of water. I'm here today. That's how I ended up on this desert road at high noon between Jerusalem and Gaza. I'm here today because God wants you to know the good news about his son, Jesus the Christ. Imagine you look down at the text which says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord. He will have mercy on you and to our God, for he will freely pardon. I imagine that's when Philip looked up from that scroll and called this man to confession, to the repentance of sin, to ask God's forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's when I'm quite sure that Philip assured him in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Everything old has passed away. See, everything about you is becoming brand new. The text continues. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so in my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish that what I desire, the purpose for which I have sent it forth. I can only imagine that Philip looked up from that text with a broad smile upon his face, telling the man the parable of the sower and inquiring whether or not his heart was fertile soil for the word God was that day at that moment seeking to sow within it. I imagine that he shared with him about the Holy Spirit, about the gifts of the Spirit, about the fruits of the Spirit, about the desire in God's heart for us to multiply what we have been given as a great bounty unto the Lord. Returning to the text. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow up the pine tree. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. 
This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Maybe here Philip took the opportunity to talk about the life of discipleship. Maybe here he issued to the man the call that Christ had issued first to his own disciples. Be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Inviting this man to begin leading a life that is worthy of the calling to which he has been called. A life that is worthy of the gospel. The text goes on to say, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. You see, that would have been a gnawing concern in the mind of the Ethiopian. The promise of God has always been just for the Jews. I imagine that Philip said, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It matters not that you are a foreigner in the Holy Land. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is not of this world. Neither the nation of your birth, nor the color of your skin, nor the circumstances of your upbringing matters now. All that matters is that you are willing to accept the gracious love of God poured forth in Jesus Christ. He is building a kingdom that is without end, a people from every tribe and nation, indeed one family under heaven. And then I imagine that Philip's eyes welled up with tears as they fell upon the next verse. I imagine that as he looked in the 56th chapter of Isaiah at verses 4 and 5, it was unimaginable to him that God's timing and God's word could be so perfectly given. The timely and timeless word of God finding its mark in one human heart. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Imagine that Philip said, that's you, my friend, that's you. Divine appointment met. Divine will worked out. The kingdom of God enlarged by one because one willing servant was ready to go when he was called. Ready? Set? Go! The race is on. Are you participating in it? Have you readied yourself for the divine appointments that God has surely set for you this day? Have you set your eyes upon Jesus and your heart upon heaven? It's time to go. It's time to go, and as we go, there are divine appointments for each one of us to keep. Seeking to share with others, beginning right where they are, the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. The Great Commission is just as great today as it was when it was first delivered. We are called to go, and as we go, we are called to make disciples. Are you ready? Your divine appointments have been set. Let us pray. Holy God, as you have sent forth your word, so let it do the work in our hearts and minds for which you sent it forth, that through it your will 
might be accomplished in our lives and your divine appointments for us perfectly kept. In the name of Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. During the course of this year from this pulpit, I am asking us occasionally through the year to look at the Ten Commandments of God with an eye toward coming to understand that the Ten Commandments were not simply delivered for back there and then, but they are meant for us as well. Today, we come to commandment number seven. Pray with me, please. Give me Jesus, Lord. Give me Jesus. You can have all the rest. Just give me Jesus. Amen. Today I wish to speak to you on the subject of marriage. Now I want to confess right here at the beginning that I am rather hesitant to do this because I am very much aware of the fact that there are those here who are single or widowed or divorced. And I never want to appear in any way insensitive to the values or the difficulties of singleness. And certainly I am always aware of the fact that Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, was single. However, my study of the Scriptures makes it abundantly clear that while all marriages are not made in heaven, marriage itself was made in heaven. And therefore, I am constrained by the maker of marriage to address the subject today. And I want to frame our discussion in the terms of God's seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The great Louis Smeads once said, Marriage is what the seventh commandment is all about. Adultery is simply what it forbids. Building on that little slice of truth, I would like to draw three thoughts for you. The first thought is this. Marriage made by God is a many-splendored thing. The fact of the matter is, you don't have to be a sociologist, psychologist, philosopher, or theologian to understand and appreciate both the beauty and the sanctity of marriage. The fact of the matter is, there has never been a society in all of history which has not taught that when a man and a woman blend their lives together completely in marriage, there is a special splendor to that. 
Furthermore, it is no accident that the Bible actually describes the relationship between God and His people as a marriage. And in this marital relationship between God and His people, God is always faithful. Even when His bride, His people, sin against Him, still God remains absolutely faithful. And therefore, the biblical Christian understanding is this. Faithfulness is the essence of marriage. In fact, if there is a motto uh, to support and encourage the many splendored thing which marriage is as God has created it, I think that motto would be Semper Fidelis, always faithful. That's right. The motto of the Marines is also the motto of marriage. I have to tell you, you know how Marines love to get a bumper sticker that says, Simplify, and they stick that bumper sticker on their cars. I want to tell you something. If I had my own way, I'd get a whole bunch of those bumper stickers, and I would come to your house, and I wouldn't stick that bumper sticker on your car. I'd stick it on the headboard of your bed. Simplify. Always faithful. I'll never forget a young man who came to see me. He was in obvious distress. He proceeded to tell me that not long after he was married, he informed his wife that the two of them ought to be free to pursue any other physical relationships that came their way. And in his marriage up to that point, he had done precisely that. But he was now in terrible distress. Why? Because he was fearful that his wife was now engaged in a physical relationship with someone else. I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, I don't understand it. I was the one who insisted on sexual freedom. And now I can't live with it. I must really love her. Who? Yes. Absolutely. You see, when love entered the picture, when he began to care about his wife, rather than to regard her as simply an object or a plaything, promiscuity went out the window. Now, faithfulness was very important. Dear friends, this is what is true. This is not a lie. This is what is true. Adultery can never know the joy and freedom of fidelity. Adultery is done in secret. It is done in risk. It is always in danger of being found out. And therefore, adultery does not produce joy and fulfillment... It produces guilt and anxiety. Fascinating psychological study done just a few years ago now with a whole group of people who termed themselves sexual swingers. 
The results of that study are fascinating. In every single individual, in every one, without exception, deep feelings of guilt and anxiety were unearthed. God said, do not commit adultery. God meant what he said, and he said what he meant. And therefore, if indeed there is a motto to make marriage the many-splendored thing God intends for it to be, that motto would be Semper Fidelis. Always. Always faithful. And that leads me to the second thought. Marriage, as it is lived by many in our time, has become a many-splintered thing. I don't know if you remember, but there was a movie several years back called Casual Sex. How absurd. That's an oxymoron. There is no such thing as casual sex. Sex always involves another person. And once another person is involved, it is no longer casual because that other person is a person whom God has made. And there is nothing casual about that. Sigmund Freud was wrong about virtually everything he taught except one thing. He was right about this. Our sexual behavior affects every dimension of our human experience. When we violate God's commandment for our relationships, then all of the fear and the guilt and the anxiety created by that begins to burst through the trap door of our lives and it begins to haunt us. And when we are haunted, we start to spook the society around us. History has proved beyond any shadow of a doubt that when the sexual lives and practices of people are reduced to the level of casual, meaningless, impure, immoral, inevitably, that society has crumbled. Here is the Christian ideal. Sexual relationships are reserved. For marriage between a man and a woman. That is why God says, do not commit adultery. Now understand, please, that we as Christians are not simply to denounce the wrong of what is happening out there in the world. We are also to proclaim fervently God's ideal. We are not simply to condemn the way some people are walking through life. Instead, we are to declare that there is a better way to walk. Sexual loving, as God intended, is to be between a man and a woman within the context of a lifetime commitment in marriage. Any other sexual loving is out of bounds and off limits. Not because sex is so bad, but instead because it is so holy. 
God gave it to us as a gift. And it is meant for a special purpose. It never was and never has been intended for casual indulgence. That is why Paul says so forcefully, it is God's will, hear that, it is God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality and that you should control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. That Christian ideal must be forthrightly, forcefully, fervently proclaimed. And that, dear friends, is precisely what I am trying to do now in your hearing. And that leads me then to my third thought. The way to restore the splendor of marriage is to obey the commandment of the maker of marriage. God said, do not commit adultery. Jesus actually took the commandment and went a step further. He said, if anyone looks at another lustfully, that person has already committed adultery in the heart. Now, I want you to understand what Jesus meant when he said that. Jesus was not saying that our being attracted to other people is a sin. That's not what he's saying at all. I mean, remember, God made us attractive to one another. That makes no sense then that he would go on to say, but you are not to pay attention to one another. No, you see, Jesus here is not talking about being attracted. He's talking about being captured. Jesus is reminding us that temptation in itself is not a sin. Yielding to that temptation is a sin. And so, that is a part of what Jesus meant when he said, if you look at another person lustfully, you've already committed adultery in the heart. In other words, when our physical desires possess us rather than our possessing them, when they control us rather than our controlling them, Jesus says that is wrong. And therefore, please permit me now to offer to you four very practical suggestions in order to help us control our physical desires and thus maintain God's ideal in our lives. Suggestion number one, beware of vulnerable times. Remember, please, temptation in itself is not a sin. Yielding to that temptation is the sin. Jesus was tempted. Jesus was single. It may shock you to think about this, but Jesus was tempted sexually. I know that's true. Why? Because Hebrews 4 says, we have a Christ who was tempted in every respect, just as we are, but without sin. You see, there is no temptation that you or I face in our lives which Jesus has not already faced in his. The difference is Jesus never yielded to those temptations. 
Paul, at this point in his life, was single. Paul was tempted. That's why he says so forcefully, avoid sexual immorality. Control your own body. We need to remember that there are times in life when our physical desires are running at the flood. And in those times, we are particularly vulnerable to temptation. And therefore, in those times, we need to be especially on our guard. Suggestion number one, beware of vulnerable times. Suggestion number two, choose the right Friends, choose friends who share your own Christian understandings of the role of sex and marriage in the human experience. Now, understand, that does not mean that you can't have some non-Christian friends along the way. But what it does mean is that the deepest friendships in your life are always going to be with people who share your faith and your values. Because what I want you to see is that if you spend a lot of time around friends who regard no commitment sex as no big deal, who think divorce is harmless, who see a faithful lifetime commitment as not being very important, if you are around friends like that for a long time, I promise you, you are going to catch those values just as you would catch a cold. Suggestion number two. Choose the right friends. Suggestion number three, behave sensibly toward those of the opposite sex. Here's what I want you to see. Appearance is everything. When you take care of how things look, then you take care of how things are. One of the secrets of Dr. Billy Graham's great success as an ambassador for Christ in this world of ours is the fact that early in his ministry, he made some hard, fast commitments to those to whom he is accountable. One of those commitments is that he would never, ever find himself in a situation where he was alone with a woman other than his wife, Ruth. And he will tell you today that in all of the years of his ministry, he has never once so much as shared a meal with another woman alone. I love what Jerry Jenkins has to say. Jerry Jenkins says, two's company, three's security. Two's company, three's security. If in your life you find it necessary to have a, a meeting, a meal, or even a business trip uh, with a person of the opposite sex, regardless of the cost or the inconvenience, take along a third person. Two's company, three's security. When you take care of how things look, then you take care of how things are. Behave sensibly. Suggestion number three. Suggestion number four. Reject improper invitations or advances. If someone invites or encourages you to do something you know is wrong, 
then let me tell you something. That is not a compliment to you. It is instead an attack. It's an attack upon God, upon faith, upon our nation, our society, and upon us. And like any other attack, it needs to be repulsed. The only answer is just say no. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament? He encountered a woman who had immoral designs upon him. What did Joseph do? He ran out of the house. It cost him his job. It even cost him some time in jail. But he stayed right and true for the service of God. When anyone encourages you to do something that is wrong, reject it. Run away from it. Don't look back. Run. That's not the chicken's way out. That's the Christian's way out. Suggestion number four. Reject improper invitations. Well, I'm not calling us here to be perfect. I mean, come on. (laughs) I'm not perfect. None of us are. I'm calling us, though, imperfect though we are, to be striving to be consistently obedient to God's seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. And I'm calling us to be constantly striving to live up to God's ideal for the way we are to live and the way we are to love. Let me finish with this. Back in the early 1800s, the famous explorers, Lewis and Clark, set out on a journey intended to cross the great Rocky Mountains to reach the Pacific Ocean and thus to open up the westward part of this country. On that journey, they took with them a French guide. His name was Toussaint Charbonneau. And Charbonneau brought along his Indian wife. Her name was Sacagawea. Now, Life on that long expedition was tough, demanding, lonely, and incredibly stressful. Charbonneau, who wasn't much of a man, actually each night would offer his wife, Sacagawea, to the other explorers for a price. Every single night... Lewis and Clark refused. There came a point in time where the expedition needed additional horses and supplies if they were going to make it to the Pacific Ocean. They approached the chief of a nearby Indian tribe. The chief immediately replied in broken English, No help, white man. White man cheat and lie. At that point, Sacagawea stepped forward and addressed the chief, saying, These men are different. They keep their promises even to their wives back home. 
And she then proceeded to describe to the chief what happened every night around the campfire and how Lewis and Clark always refused to do what was wrong. And so the chief relented and he gave them the supplies they needed. And ultimately they made it to the Pacific Ocean and they opened up the West in this great country. The mammoth nature of their achievement, however, was built upon the depth and the conviction of their sense of morality. Here's what I want you to understand. It is people with that kind of commitment to God and that kind of commitment to goodness who have made this nation great. Now, in a time where it seems that anything goes and when moral standards, it seems, are all but gone, in a time like this, we need women and men with that kind of commitment to God and that kind of commitment to goodness in order to keep this nation great. I long for other people around us to be able to point at us and say, these people are different. They keep their promises with the Lord and with each other. May it be so for you and for me. So help us, God. Pray with me, please. Almighty and most gracious God, hear my prayer. Enable us to stand strong and to stay true to your seventh command. Simper, fidelity, always. Through Jesus Christ, amen. During the course of this year of preaching from this pulpit, we are looking at each one of the Ten Commandments. Today we continue that journey. Pray with me, please. Lord, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross. I cling. Amen. Today, quite obviously, we are celebrating Mother's Day. And in a few weeks, we shall celebrate Father's Day. We have those two very special days here in America because of two women, Anna Jarvis and Sonora Dodd both of whom were determined to honor their parents. Anna Jarvis was concerned that in her church there was never any acknowledgement of the important role that mothers play in the human experience. Those thoughts were triggered for her as she sat at her dying mother's bedside, caring for her mother day after day, ultimately witnessing her mother's home going to heaven in 1905. It was after that that she approached her church 
about the possibility of having a service to celebrate and honor mothers in that area. It took two years for the church to decide that that was a good idea. But finally, in 1907, in her church, the Methodist Church in Grafton, West Virginia, for the very first time, they had a service celebrating mothers in that community. It started out as a church event, but the idea caught on. It soon became a community-wide event, and then a statewide event, and finally a national event. In fact, the very first national observance of Mother's Day occurred on May the 10th, 1913. A couple of years after that, Sonora Smart Dodd was sitting in her church in Spokane, Washington on Mother's Day, listening to the Mother's Day sermon. As the sermon unfolded, suddenly Sonora Dodd, in her mind, went racing back through the years all the way to 1890, to the day when her father, Billy Smart, entered the home having returned from his wife's funeral. He proceeded to embrace the six children in their household, tried as best he could to explain to them that their mother would no longer be coming home to them, tried to reassure them as best he could that somehow now he would not only be a father to them, but he would try as well to be a mother to them. And as Sonora Dodd was sitting in the pew on that Mother's Day, she began to reflect on how magnificently her father had actually fulfilled both of those roles in her life. And it occurred to her that it might be a good idea to have a day honoring fathers as well. And so she approached the city council in Spokane, Washington. They agreed that it was a good idea. And so they established such a day for Spokane. Well, the idea soon caught on, and it spread. And in 1924, President Calvin Coolidge signed a bill authorizing a national day of observance henceforth to be known as Father's Day. Now, it's worth remembering, I suppose, uh, that this business of honoring mothers and fathers did not really originate with Anna Jarvis and Sonora Dodd. It didn't even begin in the United States. It arose, quite frankly, out of the Fifth Commandment. You remember how the commandment reads, Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. Today, I wish to focus our attention upon the incredible power 
contained in the fifth commandment. Focus first on the position of the commandment. It presents the right order. The position of each of the Ten Commandments is no accident. In fact, the Ten Commandments can actually be divided into two subgroups. The first four commandments have to do with our relationship to God. The first four commandments declare that we are to have one God and only one God. We are never to worship idols, images, or false gods. We are never to take the Lord's name in vain. We are never to treat the Lord with disrespect. And we are always to set aside at least one day every week in order to specially honor our God. So the first four commandments have to do with our relationship to God. The last five commandments have to do with our relationship to other people in the world about us. The first four teach us to honor God. The last five teach us to honor the people around us in this world. And right at the hinge, right at the turning point right at the position where we move from honoring God to honoring other people in the world, right at that point comes the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Again, the position of that commandment is no accident. And there is a powerful message in the position. Namely, if we can learn to honor God, and if we can learn to honor other people, the place where we learn to honor both is right under our very own roof. Honor your father and your mother. Has it ever occurred to you that Christianity is the only religion in all the world which dares to call God Father. Why is that true? It is because at the very center of the Christian faith is family. That's the way Christianity began. If you go to the other religions of the world, inevitably you will find that the purported founders or leaders of those religions came onto the human scene as fully grown adults. Christianity is different. Christianity began with a family, with a mother, with a father, with a tiny baby. Christianity began in the manger in Bethlehem. And therefore, Christianity has both at its beginning and at its center, the family. The family is central to our faith. 
just as commandment five is central to the ten as a whole. The family is at the center. And the Bible makes it quite plain that the purpose of the family is very clear and very simple. The Bible teaches us that life, our life, life is a gift of God. And God gives us that gift through our family. The family exists to give life, to promote life, to protect life, to preserve life to encourage life, to inspire life, to shape life, to develop life, to direct life, to educate life, to celebrate life, to consecrate life. The family is central to the Christian faith. And therefore, the position of the fifth commandment is significant indeed. For it declares that after our relationship to God, before all of our other relationships in life, there must come the relationship to our family. The family must be the number one priority. Family first. And in this land, and in this time, my dear friends, oh, we need to be remembering that. Family first. Honor your father and your mother. Ah, but focus now on the principle of the commandment. It prescribes the right Honor. If you look in the dictionary, the word honor is defined as follows. To place in a position of esteem and authority. And therefore, I would be willing to suggest that the fifth commandment calls us to esteem our parents by yielding to their authority. Now, understand, please, that we are to do that only insofar as they do not ask us to do something contrary to the will of God. Oh yes, that has to be said. But otherwise, we are to yield to the authority of our parents. That's not a very easy thing to do sometimes. Ha! I have always loved Frank Harrington's story about the father who one night at the dinner table said to his young son, Son, when we get finished with dinner, we're going into the den and we're going to discuss the facts of life. When dinner was finished, into the den they went. They sat down. Immediately the little boy said, All right, Dad, what is it that you want to know? <laughs> well, the fact of the matter is, that's often the way it is today. Children whether they are grown or not, tend to think that they know more than their parents. And so it's sometimes very hard for children to yield to their parents' authority, even though the Bible says that is the honorable thing to do. Now, I am painfully aware of the fact 
There will be some of you here who would say to me at this point, but my parents are not honorable. My mother has made my life a nightmare. My father has treated me harshly, maybe even abused me. How can I honor my parents when they are not honorable? Tough question. Good question. Fair question. Let me answer it straight out. You are to honor them still. Please hear me correctly. You are to honor them still. Let me put it to you this way. If you are going to honor your parents only when they are honorable, are you willing then for other people to honor and love you only when you are honorable, only when you are lovable? Or take it a step farther. God chooses to honor and love us with the blessing of the gift of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, even though we are not always honorable and lovable. Would you then want God to withhold that gift until such time as you prove honorable enough and loving enough to warrant receiving the gift? Heavens, no. So... We are called by this commandment to honor our parents even when their conduct is not honorable. Why? Because, remember, the purpose of the family is to give life. Your parents have given you the gift of life. And even if you cannot honor them for any other reason than that, at least honor them for bringing you into this world. So we are called by this commandment to honor our parents regardless of whether or not they are honorable themselves. In other words, we are called to honor the office of parenthood even if those who occupy that office do not always behave in an honorable manner. Let me turn it around and say it like this. If you owe money to a man, you are not relieved of that debt just because that man happens to be a drunkard. By the same token, your parents have given you life. Their conduct does not relieve you from that debt. So, the great loving heart of God speaks to my heart today and calls my heart to speak to your heart and say to you today, honor those who have given you life. If you cannot honor them for any other reason than that, then honor them for that reason alone. Honor your father and your mother. And of course, today especially, honor your mother. Ah, but focus now on the promise of the commandment. It produces the right reward. 
Paul, writing in Ephesians, says that this is the only commandment with a promise. He's right. You remember how the commandment goes. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long upon the land which the Lord your God shall give you. That's the promise. What does it mean? Does it mean that if we honor our parents, we're going to live to a ripe old age? No. Doesn't mean that at all. There is no guarantee of that. Instead, what the promise means is this. A nation where children honor their parents and where family life is built strong is a nation which shall be strong and permanent and enduring. You see, children honoring their parents produces stronger families. Stronger families produce stronger people. Stronger people produce stronger societies. Stronger societies produce stronger nations. If children honor their parents, if families are built strong, then the nation will endure. Marian Anderson was one of the greatest women America has ever produced. This wonderfully warm, wise, extraordinarily gifted woman became the first African-American to sing regularly from the stage of the Metropolitan Opera in New York. On one occasion, a reporter asked Marian Anderson, what was the greatest moment of your life? Oh, Marian Anderson could have pointed to so many such moments. She could have referred to the time when the best-known conductor of the day, Arturo Toscanini, declared for all the world to hear that Marian Anderson possessed the most magnificent voice of the 20th century. She could have pointed to the time when she sang for an audience of four at the White House. President and Mrs. Roosevelt, the King and Queen of England. She could have referred to the experience of receiving the Medal of Freedom from the Congress of the United States of America. Or she could have spoken about the day when she sang at the Easter sunrise service on the Washington Mall before several hundred thousand people crowded in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And there are people to this very day who say that her singing was the most magnificent Easter experience of their lives. Oh, she could have pointed to any number of great moments in her life. The reporter said, what was the greatest moment in your life? You know what Marian Anderson said? She said, it was the day when I went home to my mother and I said to her, Mom, you don't have to take in washing anymore. You hear what she was saying? This family of hers who had loved her, supported her, sacrificed for her, this family who had done everything that they could do so that she might become everything God wanted her to be. This family was first in her mind and first in her heart. And so she was saying, the greatest moment of my life was the day when I went home 
and said, Mom, I'm now going to wrap my arms around you. And from this point on, I'm going to carry you just as for so long you have carried me. That, Marian Anderson said, was the greatest moment of her life. Dear friends, let me tell you something. A nation where children honor their parents like that is a nation which shall be blessed by God. A nation which shall endure. <laughs> Just had a thought. Do you know that the fifth commandment is the only one of the Ten Commandments you will not always be able to obey? That's right. All of the other nine, you are called to obey for as long as you live. You are to try to live up to every one of those other nine commandments until the day you die. But the fifth commandment, you will not always be able to obey because... In the normal course of events, your parents will precede you in death and you will no longer have the option of honoring them in this life. So take these words written on stone and write them on your heart. Honor your father and your mother. And having written them on your heart, Live them, yes, for as long as you can. Live them. Pray with me, please. God on high, hear my prayer. I thank you today that for so many years I had my mom and my dad here and I was able to honor them. And I thank you that now you Honor them, for they are with you in the kingdom of heaven. I know the adult Beatles are thankful today for the youth Beatles, so they didn't have to say Pamphylia and Cappadocia and Phrygia. It is a privilege to stand before you on this Pentecost Sunday. The Holy Spirit must have known that uh, May was going to need to be thinking about her mom the last couple of days and not thinking about preaching today. I know that we announced last Sunday that um, May Benton would be um, preaching this Sunday, but you have me instead, so um, you just have to suffer along. Let's pray. Holy God, we praise and thank you for the gift of faith and for the faith of children for the way that you inspire our young people, for the way, Lord God, that they lead us into worship that is authentic and true. We thank you for the gifts that you have dispensed by your spirit into their lives. And we thank you for the way that they have shared those gifts in our midst this day. We would ask that you would use your Holy Spirit to seal in their hearts and minds the desires that you have for them and the hope-filled future that you have planned for each one of them. Holy God, we are confident in the future of the church, not only because it is in the hands of Christ, 
but because it is in the hearts of these young men and women. Bless us, Lord God, as you open before us your word this day. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Hopefully when you came in this morning and you saw the red balloons, you knew that it was Pentecost. If not, you heard it from Mackenzie and Sarah. You see the students in red. And it is one of the holy days upon which we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Today is Pentecost. Pentecost literally means 50th. 50th what? You heard that this is the 2000 and something like 38th birthday of the church. So, 50th what? In order to understand what happens today, in order to understand what Pentecost means in the life of the followers of Jesus Christ, in order to understand the descent of the Holy Spirit upon those who believe, in order to understand what it means for the church, the body of Christ, to be born in full force into the world, we have to rewind things. Not only Acts chapter 2 contains the story of Pentecost, Acts chapter 1 contains the promise of Pentecost. Jesus, after rising from the dead on Easter... That's a date you need to hold in your mind right here. For 40 days, he made appearances among the disciples and among the people of Israel. He appeared to more than 500 people at one time. He made many, multiple appearances. In fact, so many, John says, that if everything that he did when he was risen from the dead had been recorded, it would be a book too large to fill the world. 40 days. Hmm, that's not Pentecost. Forty days, or ten days ago today, Jesus ascended into heaven, where he, we confess, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. But just before he ascended into heaven, he said this to his disciples. Do not leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift my Father has promised to you. A gift you have heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times and dates that the Father has set by his own authority. But this I promise, you will receive power When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. On the 40th day, Jesus promised Pentecost. They didn't know that it was going to be on Pentecost. They didn't know that during the traditional Feast of Weeks, when Jews from all over the ancient Near East would be already gathered in Jerusalem, they didn't know that God was going to use that time to send forth the Holy Spirit with power for a purpose. 
power came upon the disciples for the purpose of communicating the good news of the gospel to people all over the world. That's why the power of the Holy Spirit is given. That's why God brings the church into being in the world. It is for God's good purpose of communicating the glory of Christ to all mankind. It was on Easter that Jesus was raised from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. Ten days later, during the Feast of Weeks, known as Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, God sent forth the promised Holy Spirit, known as the Spirit of Christ to those who would believe. He did so with a purpose. He did so with power. Now, the verse after the verse that Megan read to you this morning says this. Some people made fun of them. They supposed that they were drunk. Hmm. Now, that's actually not a terribly unreasonable thought to have during Pentecost. It was quite a party. It was, well, probably not quite Mardi Gras-like, but it was, hmm, it was a week-long party nonetheless. People from all over the world were gathered together in Jerusalem for a week-long feast, a party, a celebration. It is in that context that the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples who are gathered together, as Jesus had commanded them to do, stay in Jerusalem. That's where the gift is going to come to you. And like rushing wind and with something that looked like tongues of fire, the Spirit did indeed arrive. And there was a qualitative change in the disciples. They were different. They appeared different. They sounded different. They acted differently than they had moments earlier, so much so that they drew the attention of the people who were round about. Positive attention, you say? Well, I don't know. Some people thought they were drunk. Are we even willing to appear that foolish or different or spirit-intoxicated in the world in which we live today? Are we willing to appear that different, that qualitatively different from our worldly neighbors that people would say, hey, something's actually going on with those folks. I don't know exactly what it is, but something's up. They are way too happy to be normal. They are way too excited about what they're talking about. They are really passionate about the Lord. Something's going on with them. The disciples were no longer average men. They were possessed by a strange new quality. A life of power had infused them, was transforming them. It changed the way other people perceived them. It drew people toward them. And through them, it has, it is, and it will transform the world. The change in their lives began at Pentecost 
when the Holy Spirit descended upon them with power for the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of humankind. The Holy Spirit, in case you don't know, and some of us have a very bad theology of the Holy Spirit, so that's why I'm sharing this news with you today. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All equally God. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is as much God as is Jesus. He is as much God as the Father. It's not as if the Holy Spirit is an ethereal, mystical ghost, as we sometimes call him. He's not a shadow, or a mist, or an impersonal aura. The Holy Spirit is God, fully eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing. The Holy Spirit is not the tame member of the Trinity, although sometimes the shy one. All divine attributes that are ascribed to the Father and all divine attributes that are ascribed to the Son are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Some tend to think of the Holy Spirit as a little bit like a manageable house pet, one who can be leashed, trained, kenneled, put out when your fancy friends come over. In order to live lives that are acceptable to the world, we are prone to set the Spirit outside. As if you and I could set the living God outside long enough to pursue whatever it is we wanted to pursue inside. It's a bit of a dangerous game. Jesus warned of the deadly desire to be loved by the world, and he came right out and said that anyone who is ashamed of him in this life, of them, he will be ashamed of in the life to come. Now hold on, we protest. I am not ashamed of Jesus. I talk about Jesus. I sing about Jesus. I'm very Jesus-oriented. Here's the catch on Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit descends after the ascension because he descends from the Father and the Son. You cannot claim Jesus as Savior and Lord and shut out the Holy Spirit. For in shutting out the Holy Spirit, you shut out Christ. So, for those of us who resist being called Pentecostal, don't resist so much. For if we are not the children of Pentecost, if we have not received in our hearts and lives the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit sent forth on Pentecost, then I dare say we have not received Christ. Faith is a personal thing, you say, and now I'm treading on it. It's just not something we talk about in polite society. I don't want a lot of Holy Spirit in my life because, you know, people are going to take notice and I'm going to start doing weird things and people are going to call me a Jesus freak and, you know, well, they're no fun to invite to a party because, you know, they're just 
Oh, see, contraire, my friend. We should be the most exciting people to have at a party. We act like we're drunk even when we're not. Filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. A power that transcends the world. The Holy Spirit is shy. True. But he is not timid. It's true that Jesus stands at the door of our heart and knocks and will not intrude into our lives until he is invited to do so. But Jesus arrives in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. He arrives as the Spirit of Christ, the breath of life, the very power of the living God. The one who brought creation out of chaos. The one who has eternally been stirring things up. The one who lights the fire in my soul. And the one who sets a refiner's fire in my life. The one who reveals all truth, convicts all sin, decides and delivers unto the people of God the gifts that God desires for them to have. And the wisdom and the courage to use those gifts to produce fruits of righteousness. The Spirit awakens and quickens and turns and transforms and refines and sanctifies and finally perfects us. If you have received Christ, then you have received the Spirit of Christ. If you have ever asked Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, then the Holy Spirit already lives within you. Every single one of you. If Christ is your Savior, then the Spirit is alive within you. How do I know? Because Scripture tells me so. It is the Spirit who regenerates us, gives us rebirth, new life in Christ. It is the Spirit that dwells within us. It is the Spirit who seals us in Christ. It is the Spirit who prays for us with sighs too deep for words. It is the Spirit who is our earnest money or guarantee on the inheritance that we are promised in Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that engrafts us to the body of Christ and makes us part of the church. It is the Holy Spirit who fills and empowers us for service, honoring to God. Now Jesus did not say, you will receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive power from on high, in order to do whatever you will. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in order to be my witnesses. You see, the Spirit is given to the people of God for a very specific purpose. That purpose is that Christ might be glorified. You can think about it this way. Jesus came from heaven to earth as the Son of God in order that the Father might be glorified. The Son, having risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, then sends forth the Holy Spirit in order that Christ, the Son of God, might be glorified. We get to participate in the glorification of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. Can you imagine a greater honor? To be able to render real glory 
to the king who died for me. Pretty much we just want the gifts. We do, it's true. We're kind of fixated on the gifts of the Spirit sometimes. We want to know which gift we have, and that's important. It's important to know which gift you have in order that you can put it to use for the building up of the body of Christ, which is why the gifts are given. See, the gifts aren't given for our glory. The gifts aren't given for our upbuilding. The gifts aren't even given for our joy. The gifts of the Spirit are given as gifts in order that Christ might be glorified. So that means we're supposed to use those gifts in a very specific way, to a very specific purpose. Now, you've all got gifts. How do I know? Well, if you have received Christ, then you have received the Spirit of Christ, and with the Spirit of Christ comes the gifts that God has decided need to go to each and every individual believer in order that where the body of Christ is present, all the gifts will be present so that the work of Christ can proceed in the world. Hmm. Don't really feel very gifted. Maybe I'm feeling a little deflated or depleted or robbed of my joy or unloving or unloved. Maybe I'm not really feeling very spiritual. Is the Spirit still present if I can't feel it? Yes. Is the Spirit dwelling within me even when I don't feel it? Yes. But just as a sponge is actually never really dry, there are times... When you and I, although we feel parched and dry, spirit's still there, just needs to be newly filled. Pentecost is a great opportunity to ask for a new measure, a new dispensation, a new filling of the Holy Spirit. It's a great opportunity for us to say, yes, I want my life to be filled with all of those wonderful things Scripture talks about Christians having. I want my life to be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I want there to be evidence in my life that Christ is not only real to me, but Christ is honoring me by working through me to produce what he's doing in the world. I want that in my life. If you want a life that is empowered, a life that is on God's purpose, a life that is unleashed for eternal greatness, regardless of temporal realities, then Pentecost is God's gift to you. And I would invite you this day to receive the good gift of God in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. Receive it anew. Receive it afresh. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. You need to be refreshed, refreshed, empowered, newly equipped, inspired. Some of you do, because let me tell you, I am looking out right now on some faces that do not inspire me. Here's what I'm not going to promise you. 
I'm not going to promise you that a spirit-filled life is necessarily an easy one. Because a spirit-filled life is often contrary to the world. And most of us are scared to death of living in ways that are contrary to the world. Here's the problem. If we're not willing to live lives that are contrary to the world, even lives that make us look a little foolish in the eyes of our neighbors, then we are surely living lives that are contrary to Christ. I would rather be set against my neighbor than set against the Son of God. It is a scary thing to think about going forth from this place, not with necessarily tongues of fire dancing on our heads, because, you know, I think that was kind of a one-time show. And I'm not even going to ask you to do this, but I want you to imagine what it would be like. What if I sent you forth from this place today full of helium? Would you sound different? Yes, you would. I know you're glad I don't have a balloon here so I can demonstrate it. You would sound different. Would you be perceived differently? Yes, some of you definitely would because that is way far outside of the scope of what you would normally do. I want you to imagine that the Holy Spirit works like that. And yes, maybe even to the point where it seems like foolishness to the world. But guess what? God takes what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And even the very wisdom of God seems like foolishness at the cross. Let's pray. Holy God, we want lives that are real. And we want lives that are abundant. We want, God, we want lives that are filled with purpose, even eternally. We need your Holy Spirit in order to do that. Turn our hearts toward you, that we might be willing to surrender our lives anew this day, that the Holy Spirit might descend upon us in fresh, new, inspiring ways for the service that you have set forth before us. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Pray with me, please. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. This is a rich text. This is a text where you and I could spend weeks, months, years, perhaps the remainder of our lives of discipleship, soaking in the meaning of what it means to be connected to the vine of Christ, what it means to be a branch in the body of Christ, what it means to produce fruit that brings glory to God. This is a rich text. The context of this text is important as well. I want you to think about the passage of time, the period of time, and the distance traveled between where the Last Supper took place and where prayers were offered in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the lesson taught during that period of time. Jesus was likely walking through a vineyard. You and I know he's prone to take what is ordinary and available in human life and lift it up and use it as an example, a tangible thing to remember that points to something that's intangible and shall never be forgotten. It's in that context. It's, 
It's after the washing of their feet. It's, it's after the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's after saying to them, this is my body broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. If you do not allow me to do this for you, then you have no share in me. Lord, then wash not only my feet, but all of me. Oh, but you are already clean, but not all of you. Judas is not with the disciples any longer during this period of time, during this walk from the events that took place in the upper room to the events that will soon take place in the Garden of Gethsemane. The context of this text is important. The disciples are likely walking along fairly quietly. Jesus is instructing them. During this walk through the garden, Jesus promises them the Holy Spirit, reminds them that he is the way to the Father, and then shares this about the vine and the branches. When Nancy was sharing with me what she was going to share with the children, and I made the comment about, well, one of the things you could tell them would be that the dead branches burn faster. It grows right out of this text. It's one thing to have our lives be aflame with the Holy Spirit. It's another thing for our lives to be so dry, to be so unfruitful, that they would only be useful for being burned. I hope that my encouragement to you today is to choose to live a life that is fruit-bearing, a life that is intimately connected to Jesus Christ, a life that remains and abides in him, that he might remain and abide in you. There are several things that are tucked into the 11 verses that are before us today that I don't want us to miss. The first one is in the very first verse. Note the importance that Jesus places on whether or not our lives are productive, whether or not they produce in faithfulness to God. No fruit cut off. Those who produce fruit get pruned so as to produce more fruit. Does either one of these options sound good to the branch? <laughs> You're the branch, right? Does either one of these options sound good to you? No fruit, cut off. Fruit, <laughs> pruning shears, so as to produce more fruit. It occurs to me in reading this that the feelings of the branch are really not taken into account. Only the will of the vine dresser. It's only God's desire, God's will, God's intent for human life, God's purpose and God's plan that really matter. How you and I happen to feel about it? Apparently not highly significant. Does that mean that God doesn't care how I feel? No. God cares intimately about how I feel, but my feelings are not of equal importance, nor do they bear the same weight as the eternal will of God that will be worked out in human history. I can choose to be a part of that by remaining in Christ and producing a harvest of righteousness for him, or I will be cut off, set aside, thrown into the fire. Another way of saying that is, God is going to get the rubbish out of his way so that he can do his will. Well, that's not very good news. Let's see what else this text has. Well, we shouldn't miss this. Jesus is very clear in this passage that we show ourselves 
to be his disciples by the fruit we bear. Well, that's a little more positive. At least makes the assumption that I'm going to be a fruit-bearing disciple. But this is one of those if-then things. If we produce the right kinds of fruit, then we show ourselves to be the disciples of Jesus Christ. You can imagine there's a flip side to this, right? If we produce other varieties of fruit, guess whose disciples we show ourselves to be? It's not a trick question. If we produce the right kind of fruit, you know what they are? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Galatians 5.22, if you've never examined the fruits of the Spirit that we are expected to produce in our lives, not one of them, but all of them, first and foremost, love. These are the fruits that God is looking for in His harvest in our lives. If we produce this kind of fruit, we show ourselves to be the disciples of Jesus Christ. If, however, we produce fruits like hate, joylessness, contempt, anger, hostility, faithlessness, hardness of heart, self-indulgence, then we show ourselves to be someone's disciple. But it is not Christ. It is his enemy, the devil himself. What Jesus is saying is, by looking at the fruits of our lives, people can tell whose disciple we really are. Guess what? That means it actually makes no difference if we're out there telling them we're Christians. If the fruit of our lives smells like rotten fruit, they're going to know it. Good fruit comes from those who remain in Christ, those who are connected to the vine of Christ. How do I know that? Because Christ can't produce any of those hateful things. Christ is God and God is love, and he can only produce good fruit. If our lives are producing something other than the fruits of the Spirit, we better check what we're rooted in. Here's the real nugget, though, I think, of today's text. In the span of 11 verses, the same word appears 11 times. When things are repeated in Scripture, we are supposed to pay attention to them. Repetition is not just something that modern educators know works for teaching people to remember something. The good teacher, the great teacher, the one who's word we are seeking to saturate our lives with knows that we learn through repetition. He made us that way. And when a word is repeated 11 times in the span of 11 verses, we are intended to remember it. It is translated abide and it is translated remain, but it is the same word. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands 
and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Listen to it again. Abide in me and I will abide in you. Abide in me and your life will produce. If you abide in me and I abide in you, your life will be worth living. If you do not abide in me, there will be consequences, and your life will end in futility. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, there will be rewards, and they will be great. Now, abide in my love. If you obey my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands, and abide in his love. You and I are called to remain in Christ to abide in him, that he might remain and abide in us. I've got one story to tell you. It has three different endings. They all grow out of today's texts. So listen up. There was a knock at the door. The child ran to answer it. Expectantly, he opened the door and a fearsome, angry man barked at him. Have you found Jesus? The child shuddered left the door ajar, ran screaming to his mother up the stairs to the back of the house. He sought her with a tear-streaked face, almost out of breath. He fell on her. She gathered him up and said, what's wrong? Between sobs, she made this out. God's at the door, and he seems, it seems, he's lost Jesus. He's going door to door looking for him, and I don't know where he is, but I'm afraid of saying so. The boy spoke more truth than he knew. There was a knock at the door. Child ran to answer it. Expectantly, he opened the door. Fearsome-looking man barked at him. Have you found Jesus? The child shuddered, left the door ajar, ran screaming to his mother up the stairs to the back of the house. He sought her with a tear-streaked face. He fell on her, and she gathered him up in her arms, and she said, What's wrong? And between sobs, he howled. He knows! He knows! Who is he and what does he know, she said. God's at the door and he knows we've been hiding Jesus. I think he's come to take him away from us. Ah, the child spoke more truth than he knew. I know you're looking for a happy ending, so here it comes. There was a knock at the door. The child ran to answer it. Expectantly, the child opened the door. A fearsome, angry-looking man barked at him. Have you found Jesus? The child shuddered, steadied himself. Blinked, smiled, looked the man square in the eye and said with all confidence, Sir, don't be afraid. Jesus is not lost. He lives right here in my heart. If you ask the children of this congregation where Jesus is, they're going to give you several answers. They're going to tell you that he's in heaven with God. They're going to tell you that he's everywhere by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're going to tell you that he lives right here in their hearts because they have heard him knocking. The truth is, all three of the answers that were offered by the boy are correct. According to today's text, there are a lot of people who don't know where Jesus is, but they're afraid to say so. There are a lot of Christians who have been keeping it a secret from the world that Christ is their Savior. They have been hiding him. They are non-fruit-producing Branches And in today's text is a word of condemnation. They will be cut off. And then there is the faithful answer. Don't be afraid. Jesus isn't lost. He's right here in my heart. But I'm not sure that's a full answer to the question. Today's sermon title poses a simple, seeming contradiction. 
you in Christ or Christ in you. 20th century American evangelicalism has taught us to focus, like the boy in the story, on whether or not Jesus is in us, whether or not we have him in our heart, whether or not he is enthroned in our lives. Do you have Jesus in your heart? It's a common evangelical question to ask. And the Bible affirms this approach. In Colossians 1.27, it says, Christ in you is your hope of glory. Christ in you is your hope of glory. But over and over again, God reveals in his word that the real question is not whether Christ is in us, but whether or not we are in him. Christ cannot be held captive by one human heart. He is not found in us. We are found in him. He is not like a little added ingredient to our lives that makes the bread rise. He is the bread of life. It is not about Christ just being in us. It is about us abiding, remaining, being steadfastly connected to and serving as conduits of Jesus Christ himself. He finds in us willing vessels, conduits, ambassadors, servants, agents. We find in him a Savior and Lord. I'm afraid that many people think about Jesus as an inoculation, an inoculation against sin and death. They show up for worship on Sunday mornings for little booster shots because they have seen the symptoms of sin arise in their everyday lives. I hate to tell you, God is not going to be mocked like that. The eternal, almighty, all-powerful God cannot be reduced to something that we use to incrementally improve our lives or as a once-a-week pain reliever that we take to survive the grief we experience. Jesus came from heaven to earth and went from the earth to the cross and the cross to the grave and the grave to the sky for a lot more than that. He came so that we who lived under the condemnation of sin and death might find salvation in ourselves, heavens no, in him. Christ gave his life that in him, we might find a life worth living. His one body was broken so that we who were broken might become one body in him. Though divisions persist in the world, in Christ, in Christ, not in you and me, in Christ, there is no longer Greek nor Jew. There is no longer male nor female. There is no longer slave nor free in Christ. In Christ, we are as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In Christ, we are new creations. The old is gone and the new is even now becoming an eternal reality. Those things are not happening because Jesus is in us, but because we are in him. It's good to know the answer to the question, is Christ in you? Because... It is something we can say, I tangibly asked for. I asked for Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to come into my life, to be enthroned in my heart, to hold 
Each one of my thoughts captive to his word. You and I can answer the question, is Christ in you? Because each one of us knows whether or not we've ever asked him to be. Whether or not we've ever opened the door and let him in. But as we mature in our faith, it is important for us to understand the other side of that coin. The side of the coin that actually bears out more value in this life. Christ in me is the hope of glory. It is the hope of salvation. Me in Christ is the hope of abundant life here and now. Having Christ in us, having received him as Savior and Lord, guarantees salvation. Abiding, remaining in Christ, living in Christ as a branch of his eternal vine, gives me the abundant life Jesus came to grant. Do you see why both are important? Why I want us to have not only Christ in us, but for us to be in Christ so that we might bear much fruit, even a hundredfold. As Christians, as the body of Christ in the world today, if we are in Christ, nothing is impossible. Nothing. We should remove the word from our vocabulary. He says himself, if you are in me, if you abide in me, if you remain in me, nothing is impossible. Nothing. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Which means that all the good we might do in this life, if it is done apart from Christ, counts as nothing to him. I don't know about you, but I want to be in the nothing is impossible category, not the nothing you do matters category. Abiding in Christ, remaining in him, being connected to him, letting him use us, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our time, our resources, our gifts, our talents, our networks, our everything. Allowing Christ to permeate all of that and work through us as we remain in him, guarantees that nothing will be impossible. This is my hope for each one of us today. If someone comes knocking at your door, whether or not it's a man or a woman, and whether or not their countenance is angry or winsome, that's not the point of the story. They come knocking at your door. The question might not be framed exactly this way, but you know what they're asking. Have you found Jesus? I hope you will smile broadly and confidently and say to them, friend, worry not, he is not lost. He lives right here in my heart. He holds every one of my thoughts captive to his word. He is working right now his will out in my life. He has sealed me with the promised Holy Spirit, and he is even now standing guard at my heart against the evil one. And Christ not only lives in me, but I, I live in him. In fact, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. In Christ, I find my help and my salvation. In him, I find my comforter, my companion, my joy. In him, I have life, both eternal evermore and abundant here and now. In Christ, I am made a new creation. In fact, he's working on that right now to reshape and reform, transform me according to his will to give me purpose and power and eternal divine protection. 
Have I found Jesus? No, but praise be to God that he has found me. For once I was lost, now I am found. And I am not only found, I am deeply rooted and grounded in his love, where I intend to abide and remain forevermore. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Me, in Christ, that's abundant life. Let us pray. Holy God, grant that by the Spirit of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, we might abide and remain in you always. And may, Lord God, our lives become patterned after his, lives of loving service, poured out in sacrifice for one another. In his name we ask it. Pray with me, please. Give me Jesus, Lord. Give me Jesus. You can have all the rest. Just give me Jesus. Amen. True story. You may not believe it, but it is a true story. Don Shelby is a Methodist preacher in Los Angeles, California. He told recently about a fascinating conversation he had with a young woman who called him up at his church asking if she might be married in his church. She acknowledged that she was not a member of his congregation, but she asked if she might be married there, and she asked if he might perform the ceremony. Well, after asking a few questions, Don Shelby agreed to be the officiating minister. And then he said to this young woman, Now... What time do you wish for the wedding to be? At 11 o'clock, the young woman said. Fine, Don Shelby said. 11 o'clock next Saturday. The young woman said, no, not next Saturday. 11 o'clock next Sunday. Don Shelby was rather astonished, and he said immediately, I can't do it at that time. And the young woman said, why not? Well, he was now completely astonished, and all he could think of to say was, well, because I already have a commitment at that time. And the young woman said, well, all right then, we'll just do it the next Sunday at 11 o'clock. Now he was completely flabbergasted. He said, young lady, I have a commitment every Sunday at that time. Do you know what the young woman said? She said... Well, I can't imagine what in the world that would be. True story. Actually, it's not as extreme as it may seem. You see, I rather think it is a symptom of the time in which we are living. America is different now than it was when I began in the ministry more than 35 years ago. And one of the ways it's different is in what I choose to call the loss of our spiritual center. You see, the reality is that more and more people today are like that young woman in Southern California. They are living life with no consciousness of the reality of God at all. That's not the way it was when this country began. That's not even the way it was just a generation ago. But that is the way it is now. More and more people in this society are living their lives with no consciousness whatever of the reality of God in the human experience. I want to focus on that in our sermon today. And in order to focus our attention, 
I want to work with this great verse from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 29, verse 18. The proverb reads, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, what that proverb literally means is this, where there is no vision, where people do not see clearly God's way, God's word, God's will for their lives, where there is no belief in God, no commitment to God's commandments, no allegiance to God's truth, no trust in God's promises, where there is no vision, where people do not see the reality of God, inevitably, those people perish. I want to submit to you that that proverb is one we in America today must begin to take seriously. And so, permit me please, first to try to pinpoint the problem, and then to try to suggest a solution. Proverbs 29, verse 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. First, the problem. You may remember a few years back, after the devastating hurricane Andrew slammed into the southern portion of Florida, television crews were dispatched to that area to film the massive destruction created by that hurricane. One of those television crews happened upon a neighborhood where every single house in the neighborhood was destroyed except one. Every house in the neighborhood leveled right to the ground. Only one house still standing. The owner of that house happened to be out in the front yard picking up some of the debris from the hurricane. The television news reporter said to him, How is it, sir, that your house managed to escape the destruction of the hurricane? Every other house, as far as one can see, is gone. Your house is still standing. The man replied, I built this house myself. I built it according to the Florida State code for buildings. I did what the code called me to do. When the code called for two by six roof trusses, I used two by six roof trusses. I built this house according to the code. And I was told that a house built according to the code would withstand a hurricane. I built according to the code. The house stood. Apparently, nobody else in this neighborhood Followed the code. Dear friends, what is true for the state's code for building is equally true for God's code for living. If we choose to build our lives and our nation upon God's code for living, God's righteousness, God's moral standards, then believe me, we shall be able to withstand any storm. However, if we fail to follow the code, if we fail to build on that sure foundation of God's truth, God's righteousness, God's justice, God's standards for moral living, then mark it down, sooner or later, 
The storms of life will sweep us away. I would be willing to suggest to you that that is precisely what is happening in this country now. Do you realize that in the last 25 years, we have experienced in America a 560% increase in violent crime, unprecedented in its scope, making America now the most violent society on earth. More murders, more robberies, more rapes, more abuse, more addiction, more promiscuity, more profanity than ever before in our nation's history. As troubling as that is, what is even more troubling is the fact that there is no real outcry of public outrage. No outcry of outrage. It's almost as if we're getting used to it. In the last 25 years, we have become so profoundly permissive in this society, so accepting of what once was unacceptable, so fuzzy about what is right and what is wrong, so wishy-washy about ethical standards, that we are in danger of losing our moral clarity as a nation. In his classic novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky reminds us that when God is left out, everything is permissible. Well, in our society today, it certainly seems that everything is permissible. And it is precisely because God is being left out, or what's worse, in my view, God is being driven out. To make the point, I want to share with you a little prayer prayed by a Jewish rabbi at the graduation ceremonies of the Nathan Brooks Middle School in Providence, Rhode Island. Here is the prayer Rabbi Wiseman offered. Listen. God of the free, hope of the brave. For the legacy of America, where diversity is celebrated and the rights of minorities are protected, we thank you. May these new graduates grow up to guard it. For the political process of America, in which all of its citizens may participate, and for its court system, where all can seek justice, we thank you. May those we honor this morning always turn to it in trust. For the destiny of America, we thank you. May the graduates of the Nathan Brooks Middle School so live that they might help to shape it. May our aspirations for our country and for these young people who are our hope for the future be richly fulfilled. Amen. Would it shock you to know that that prayer was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court? Dear friends, I think I'm reasonably knowledgeable about the issue of prayer in schools. I think I'm fairly conversant with its constitutional implications. And I certainly believe in protecting the rights of all, particularly the rights of minorities. But I want to tell you something. If a prayer like that, deliberately seeking to be fair religiously, if a prayer like that can be declared unconstitutional in these United States, 
I submit to you there is something terribly wrong in the soul of America. What is happening now is that we are permitting the religion of secularism to be installed and established as the religion of America. We are allowing a system of no belief to become the real belief of this land. I don't care what anyone else may say, and I don't care how intellectually sophisticated they may seem in advocating that position. But I want to tell you something. That course of action will not carry us very far. The proverb is true today as it was when it was first written. Where there is no vision, where people do not clearly see the reality of God in their lives, those people inevitably perish. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm hopelessly idealistic. I happen to believe that God made this nation what it is. And God set its course of destiny in the world. I happen to believe that if ever we forget that, if ever we forget Him, if ever we turn away from acknowledging God and God's righteousness in life, then this nation will gradually disappear from the face of the earth. I happen to believe that now in the time in which you and I are living, we are actually in danger of losing what this nation really is all about. Show me, if you can, any evidence to the contrary. The problem, I think, is plain for anyone with eyes to see. So, now, if I may, solution. I want you to understand that for all of my articulation of the problem as I see it, I am not at all pessimistic about the United States of America. Ha! Exactly the opposite. I am profoundly hopeful and optimistic about the future of this land. Why? Because I'm a Christian. Because I believe in God. And because I believe that God's truth and God's righteousness ultimately will win the day. That means that our only hope, our only solution is to follow the wisdom of the proverb, to recapture our spiritual vision, to turn to God in faith, and to commit ourselves anew and afresh to God's standards for righteous living. Walker Percy is a name you need to know. Walker Percy was not only an accomplished medical doctor, he was a highly acclaimed novelist as well. Walker Percy said, It is only when we turn our affections and our desires toward the right things, toward noble, enduring, spiritual things, it is only then things will get better in this land. Walker Percy was absolutely right. Ha. You know, I keep remembering that a number of years back, a visiting professor from the University of Moscow visited in Washington, D.C., and he was interviewed there by the Washington Press Corps. And in the course of the interview... This professor said rather derisively, religion in the Soviet Union is dead. There's nobody left in the churches except a few little old ladies. In light of what has happened since in what we used to call the Soviet Union, 
Perhaps the professor needs to reassess his significance of those believing little old ladies. Because you see, those little old ladies turned out to know more about what was going on in the world than all of the leaders of the Kremlin and all of the faculty of the University of Moscow. Those little old ladies won. Lenin is gone. Stalin is gone. The Soviet Union is gone. The little old ladies won by God's grace. (laughs) The little old ladies won. They believed in the power of Almighty God. And they knew that nothing, no ism, No political system, no harsh dictators, no secret police. Nothing can stand against the power and the purposes of God in the world. The same thing is true in this country today. I happen to believe that ultimately God's truth, God's righteousness, God's justice, God's love will win the day. And on this Memorial Sunday... I am calling all of us simply to be part of the victory. Let me finish with a wonderful little story about what happened one day in the studio of the great sculptor Gutzon Borglum. Gutzon Borglum is the sculptor who created the magnificent bust of Abraham Lincoln that now graces our nation's Capitol building. As he was in his studio working very hard to create this masterpiece, Gutzon Borglum was very carefully chipping away at one side of this great block of stone, And as he did so slowly, ever so slowly, the face of Lincoln became visible and even recognizable. It was at that point that Borglum received a visit from a family he knew, a man, a wife, and their little girl. And as Gustav Borglum was visiting with this family, this mom and dad, The little girl was just standing there looking at this great block of stone. Suddenly, she realized that she was seeing the face of Lincoln. Immediately, with youthful exuberance, she cried out, Hey, that's Abraham Lincoln! Borglum turned around and said to her, Yes, honey, it surely is. With that, this little girl put her hands on her hips and looked up at the great artist and said, how did you know he was in there? There is something, isn't there, inside of America. There is something very special, something very beautiful, something very wonderful. It is our national soul, America's soul. I submit to you that the only thing that can unlock that soul and bring it forth and let it show is the power of God. Secularism can't do it. Materialism can't do it. Humanism can't do it. Hedonism can't do it. Atheism can't do it. Only God can unlock the soul of America. Only God God's truth, God's righteousness, God's justice, 
God's love, and yes, God's Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, dear friends, if ever we were to understand that, and to embrace that, and to commit our lives to that, let me tell you, by the power and by the grace of God, we could turn this world upside down, and we could turn this nation right side up. Soli Deo Gloria. God alone be the glory. Amen. Pray with me, please. Breathe on me, breath of God, and set my soul on fire. Amen. A few years back, UCLA was playing Stanford University in football. UCLA killed them. The final score was 64 to nothing. After the game, a reporter approached the Stanford University football coach, and the reporter asked, Coach, when was the turning point in that game? The coach responded, when they played the national anthem. <laughs> I want to tell you, sometimes it seems to me that that's the way it is for us in life. I mean, we start out losing the battle to sin and evil in the world and in our own experience. Yes, sometimes it seems to me that we are consistently engaged in doing just exactly what we know we shouldn't do. I guess maybe that's why for the last thousand years the Bible has been the best-selling book on the planet. Because the Bible is dedicated to helping us know what to do when in life we blow it and we know it. This story from the life of Simon Peter is a case in point. The story actually unfolds in three separate chapters. Chapter 1 is entitled Grace. Chapter 2 is entitled Guilt. Chapter 3 is entitled Grace. Now, I know you're thinking to yourself at this point, now, wait a minute. Chapter 1 and chapter 3 are the same. Right. You are absolutely right. Peter's story begins in grace. And Peter's story ends in grace. What's more, your story is the same as is my story. Permit me, please, to try to show you what I mean. Chapter 1, grace. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 14 that Jesus gathered his disciples together, and there it was on the night before he died, he spoke to them very plainly. He said, listen, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. I have to tell you, I find that to be an amazingly gracious word from the lips of our Lord. Had I been Jesus, I wouldn't have said anything like that. 
Had I been Jesus, I would have said, I know uh, that you are going to fail me. You are going to forsake me. You're going to leave me high and dry. And therefore, I'm just going to have to find some stronger and better people on whom to build my kingdom. That's what I would have said. But that's not what Jesus said. No. No, Jesus said, I know you are going to fail me, but it's all right. For after I have been raised from the dead, I will reconnect with you in Galilee. Amazing. Do you see what Jesus actually is doing? Jesus is forgiving his disciples in advance. He is forgiving them before they ever did anything to warrant that forgiveness. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, I want you to understand that he does the same thing for us as well. Has it ever occurred to you that there is no new sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in every generation? It happened only once. It happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus died on the cross for our sin, yours and mine, long, long before we ever were born. Long, long before we ever did anything requiring that kind of forgiving sacrifice. Amazing. That's grace. Jesus forgives us in advance. June the 6th, 1944. That date has great significance for shaping the world in which now you and I are living. June the 6th, 1944. We know that day, of course, as D-Day, the Normandy invasion. This massive military maneuver was launched from England, crossed the English Channel, and then landed on the shores of northern France in the region of Normandy. I have to tell you, one of the most unforgettable experiences of my life occurred just last summer when Tricia and I were blessed to stand in the spectacularly silent beauty of the American cemetery at Normandy. A cemetery stretched out high atop the cliffs, towering over what we know as Omaha Beach. We found ourselves moved to the core of our being. As we walked past row after row after row of white crosses set amidst lush green grass. 10,000 crosses telling 10,000 stories of uncommon courage and sacrifice. If, as the saying goes, war is hell, and it is, if it is true that war is the ultimate expression of human sin and evil, and it is, nevertheless... Sometimes the evil of war can evoke an almost indescribable bravery and sacrifice 
sufficient to give credence to the divine decree. There is no greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. To stand in the overwhelming beauty of that place. To be confronted by the reality and the result of such bravery and sacrifice. I have to tell you, it cut right to the quick of my soul. But there in Normandy, I learned something else that happened on that day, June the 6th, 1944. Something that cut right to the heart of my faith. The responsibility for that enormous military thrust fell squarely upon the four-starred shoulders of General Dwight David Eisenhower. On the night the invasion was to be launched, General Eisenhower spent hours and hours talking personally to the young soldiers under his command speaking to them very much like a father delivering last words to a son. And then at the appointed time, as wave after wave after wave of troops and boats and planes launched into the darkness, General Eisenhower stood transfixed with his eyes awash in tears. Then in the wee hours of the morning, he returned to his own quarters. He sat down at his desk, and in his own hand, he wrote a note. It was a message intended to be sent to the White House in the event the mission failed. Of course, the mission didn't fail, and the message never made it to the White House. But now... Thankfully, the message has made it into history. Here is what General Eisenhower wrote. Our landings have failed. The troops, the air, the Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame attaches itself to the event, it is mine alone. Dwight David Eisenhower. Many brave things done, June the 6th, 1944. One of those brave things was this. The general who took the blame, even before the blame ever needed to be taken. We see something of that in this story of Simon Peter. Jesus, in advance, saying to his disciples... I know you're going to fail me and forsake me. I've known it from the very beginning. But it's all right. For after it is all said and done, I will meet you again in Galilee. Jesus, forgiving in advance. That's grace. Pure grace. Pure, amazing grace. Chapter 2, guilt. Afterwards, Jesus took his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, the soldiers arrived to arrest Jesus, to take him into custody. At that point, 
his disciples faced a choice. They had to choose between their friend and their skin. They chose their skin. They took off. They all ran away. They left him there alone to be seized by the soldiers, to be carted off to stand trial, if that's what you want to call it, to stand trial in the palace of the high priest, Caiaphas. Now, at that point, the Bible gives us a wondrously telling little detail. The Bible says very simply, Peter followed at a distance. (laughs) You see, he didn't want to be too close to Jesus. Ah, but he didn't want to be too far away either. He didn't want to be with Jesus, but he didn't want to be without him either. And so he followed at a distance, tried to make himself invisible, then tried to obscure himself in the dark shadows of the courtyard of the palace of the high priest. I tell you, His spirit at that moment must have been in a turmoil. And then his heart must have jumped out of his chest when suddenly the servant girl of the high priest pointed at him hiding in the shadows and said, You are one of his friends. Peter immediately retorted, I don't know what you're talking about. A few moments later, another accusation, and from Peter, another denial. And then after that, Yet a third charge leveled against him. You're one of them, I know it, because you speak in that very noticeable Galilean way of speaking. Stop this sermon right here. Sidebar. Maybe, yes, maybe Peter did, in fact, speak with what's called the Galilean accent. You know, like some people now speak with a southern accent. Or maybe... Maybe it was that Peter had spent so much time with Jesus that he had actually taken upon himself some of Jesus' own expressions and mannerisms. I don't know for sure. I want to ask you something, though. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, because of the way you and I speak and act each day, Other people would be led to label us as followers of Jesus Christ? Ah, I'll let that thought save for another sermon. Back to this sermon. Peter responded to the charge by screaming, I do not know the man. And then he proceeded to try to cover his denial with a great blanket of blue language. And at that moment, somewhere in the distance, a rooster began to crow, signaling the coming of the dawn's early light. And in that moment, Peter simply retreated back into the deep darkness of his own denial and deceit. In that moment, he realized that he had done what he promised Jesus he never would do. He had sworn to Jesus that he would never fail or forsake him, and yet now that is precisely what he had done. And in that moment, a great load of guilt, a massive load of guilt, came crashing down upon him with such force that Mark says, Peter, broke down and wept. I want you to notice something here. Peter 
didn't try to rationalize away what he had done. He didn't try to put a positive spin on things. He didn't seek to explain or justify his behavior. He didn't attempt to put the blame on someone or something else. No. He just buried his bearded face in those thick fisherman's hands of his, and he cried his eyes, and he cried his heart out. Guilt. Heavy, heavy guilt. I want you to note this down. I do not often say wise things, but once in a while, God gives me a wisdom, not my own. So write this one down. Honesty brings healing. Secrets bring shame. Honesty brings healing. Secrets bring shame. Peter knew that the only way to get rid of his guilt was to be honest with God. To get it out. Even if he had to cry it out. And that's what he did. Dear friends, if you are being tormented by yesterday's failures, whether they took place last week or 20 years ago, the way to deal with that is to get it out. Even if you have to cry it out, get it out. Now, you don't have to tell everybody about it. For heaven's sakes, you don't have to tell everybody about it. Ah, but you do have to tell the one who knows all about it. You do have to tell the Lord. Back in the 17th century, the king of Prussia visited a prison in the city of Berlin. And when the king stepped into the prison, immediately all of the prisoners in that place clamored toward the king, all of them claiming to be innocent, all of them declaring that they had been unjustly charged and therefore were unjustly imprisoned. All of them, all of them, that is, except one. There was one man who stayed in his cell. The king was rather intrigued by that. So he walked over to the cell and he said to the prisoner there, Why are you here? And the prisoner said, I was charged with theft. And the king said, Are you guilty? And the prisoner said, Yes, sire, I am. I am getting what I deserve. Whereupon the king wheeled around on the guards and he said, Get this guilty man out of here. I don't want him contaminating all of these innocent people. You see, that's what happened to Peter. He was honest with God. That's what I want you to be aware of. That if we are honest with God, God will set us free from yesterday's failures. Ah, that brings me then to chapter 3, grace. This story of Peter ends in two little words. That's it, two little words. Two remarkable little words. You find them right at the end of Mark's gospel account, in his account of the resurrection. It's, well, it's in Mark chapter 16. We are told there about the resurrection and about how then the angel of God spoke to the women at the now empty tomb. And the angel said to the women, Go tell his disciples, and here are the two little words, And Peter... You hear that? Peter's name is called. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. 
Peter's name is mentioned. Go tell his disciples and Peter. I tell you, it is almost as if all heaven and earth had watched as Peter had fallen flat on his face in failure. And now suddenly, it's as if all heaven and earth has rallied to lift him up to another chance at glory. Go tell his disciples and Peter, especially Peter, that he is in Galilee and he is waiting for you. You understand? What he does for Peter, he does for us. Peter's story began in grace. And here, his story ends in grace. The same thing is true of your story and mine. For our God is the God who offers us the second chance in Jesus Christ. Grace, amazing grace. Will you let me please be very personal with you for a moment? My beloved professor, James Stewart of Scotland used to say, every sermon well preached will cause you to die a little. It's true. You see, what makes a sermon a sermon is the anointing touch of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit touches a sermon, the Holy Spirit sets that sermon on fire. And when the Holy Spirit sets that sermon on fire, it consumes something down inside the preacher. Take to the pulpit in the grip of that spirit, James Stewart used to say to me. And it may cost you. It may cost you dearly. It may even ultimately consume you. Nearly two years now. I have been taking to this pulpit in the grip of that Holy Spirit. And I know the cost of pouring yourself out in the pulpit with all of the passion you possess. In the hope that the people to whom you speak might come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, as Master and Friend, in the hope that there might be some here who in this moment are so touched by the power of Christ that for as long as they live, they will never forget this day in this sanctuary. And I know the cost of wondering if it happens You see, more than anything else in all the world, I want you to know that you matter to Jesus Christ. I want you to know that your story begins in His grace, and your story will end in His grace as well. I want you to know that in your life, when you blow it and you know it like Peter did, you can count on the fact that in Christ... God is going to call your name in love. And God is going to offer you another chance at glory. I want you to know that God loves you. Loves every single one of you. Loves you as if you were the only one in all the world to love. And therefore, No matter what it may cost, I'm going to keep taking to this pulpit in the grip of that Holy Spirit. I'm going to keep telling you about Jesus Christ. I'm going to keep calling you to commit your life to Him. I'm going to keep preaching His transforming, life-giving, world-changing, death-defeating gospel until under the consuming fire of the Holy Spirit there is 
of me. Nothing left. Pray with me, please. God on high, hear my prayer. I ask but one thing of you, that these people whom I so dearly love may fall in love with Jesus Christ. Amen. Pray with me, please. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We sang about our souls panting for God like a deer panting for water. The psalmist says that his body aches for God. He considers God all through the watches of the night, seeking God, yearning after God. It's an issue of intimacy. You and I live in a generation that is marked by unprecedented wealth, instant access to people of every time zone at every moment, more leisure time than any generation in recorded history, and yet we are, tragically, more alone. We have a greater sense of isolation. A greater percentage of us are depressed, and too many of us are bereft. With the ability to forge relationships with everyone, we fail to form relationships with anyone. Our ability to communicate across time and space, advances that have the hoped-for design of heightening community, have actually left us increasingly isolated from one another. We spend more time on the internet than we do in face-to-face -face conversations. You don't believe me? Time it. Time how much, how many minutes you actually spend each day in a God's honest truth, face-to-face -face conversation with other people versus how much time you spend reading your email or surfing the web. Now, some of you say, well, I escaped that entirely. I don't have a computer. So we don't communicate with you at all. We used to play tag. Now we play phone tag. We used to celebrate our birthdays together. Now an alarm on our Palm Pilot alerts us to the fact that someone in our Rolodex is having a birthday and offers to generate an e-card sent directly to them that we never have to give a moment's thought to. Six of you sent them on Thursday. I know. We do our banking without any relationship to a banker. We can employ people to clean our homes, kill our bugs, and keep our landscaping up without ever having to meet them, without even speaking the same language, without ever knowing their names. We can plan our vacations with the help, without the help of a travel agent. We can use our e-ticket to check in online. We can, when we arrive, bypass the Hertz counter and go directly to our self-chosen rental car.
We can bypass everyone except the person that frisks us at security and the hotel check-in clerk. I actually had my windshield replaced this week without ever having to speak to an actual human being. I communicated with my insurance company via their website. They replied to me via email, informing me of the glass company in my area that would be doing the work. I left them a message on their recorder. They left me a return message on my cell phone with instructions about the day and time they'd be doing the work. And when I returned home that evening, sure enough, there was a new windshield in my car. I never saw anyone. I never spoke to anyone. I never signed anything. I have a full-blown relationship without the complication of an actual conversation. This is progress, right? Yes and no. Advances in technology in this information age have indeed made it possible for an individual to manage more with ever greater efficiency. But efficiency is not intimacy. Like voyeurs, we have a lot of highly personal information about other people. But it is not information that is gained through mutually vulnerable relationships, relationships that are built on time and trust. So although we are saturated with information, we are, many of us, devoid of intimacy. To my way of thinking, the most tragic outcome of all this is that although our hearts do yearn for God, we ache for God, for intimacy with Him, most of us settle for far less than that. We accept information about God in place of intimacy with God. We work an efficient hour of worship into our weekly calendars and an expedient moment of prayer into our cluttered days. We fool ourselves into believing that having Christian friends or hanging out with other church people is as good as knowing Christ or hanging out with him. In so many ways, we are guilty of exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Intimacy with God for information about God. Too often we worship the creation instead of the creator. Maybe most sadly in our society, we have allowed the concept, the great, broad, deep concept of intimacy to be reduced to the act of sex. That bars us from ever even thinking fully about intimacy with God because we are ashamed to think about intimacy. Friends, in an age where sex happens all too anonymously, where people can have sex via the internet, never meeting one another, we dare not equate intimacy with sex. None of us would ever do such a thing, you say. None of us would ever have anonymous sex, right? I'm even making you terribly uncomfortable by saying it. Well, consider for a moment what anonymous sex really is. It is going through the physical motions, going through the act, going through the physical motions without any true care or concern or knowledge of the other, with a total emphasis on self-fulfillment. You and I would never do that. Do you know that is the very charge that God leveled against his people in the days of the prophet Isaiah? 
It is exactly that charge. They were going through the motions. They gathered every Sabbath day. They followed along in their bulletins. They listened to the word that was read. They said the required prayers as they were pre-printed for them. They gave alms to the poor. They even sang psalms. Week in and week out, they were going through the physical motions of worship. But God says of himself, he was left feeling like a whore, visited by someone who knew him not and loved him little. You and I would never do such a thing, right? We would never just show up for an efficient hour of self-fulfillment and go through the motions as pre-described by someone else in a bulletin. And suppose that that was an intimate act of worship with the Lord our God. Are you in danger of anonymous worship? Worship has the potential to be the most intimate act that any one of us can have in relationship to God. In authentic worship, we enter into the very presence of God, into the inner chamber where God is fully revealed, fully vulnerable, fully present, and so are we. The place where our soul is so knit to the heart of God that where God ends and we begin is blurred. Indeed, where the two become one. Christ's union with his church is described as that of a bridegroom to a bride for a reason. It is intended to be that intimate of an experience. One that we share with others, but not fully. For it is so sweet to be shared with God and God alone. In authentic worship, we are free to confess our sins because we know that the love of the other is pure and steadfast and forgiving. In authentic worship, we are free to sing praises. We are free to lift up a voice that nobody else around us appreciates. For the lover of our souls loves to hear the sound of our voice. In authentic worship, we are totally free to be ourselves, worrying not about those who are around us and what they may think. For in authentic worship, there is but an audience of one. When we worship God in spirit and in truth, worship has the potential to be an experience of ecstasy, unparalleled in human life. You don't have to go to worship. You have the privilege of entering into worship by the power of the Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus Christ. If your experience of God, if in times of prayer, in the context of worship, when singing glory to his name, you are not moved more powerfully than by human intimacy, then it is time for you to examine the nature of your relationship with the living God. If you are not more moved in worship than you are in any other human experience, then your relationship with God lacks the intimacy it was designed to have. No one is leaping up right now saying, I want that! My body aches for that. 
I want to be in a relationship with God that is that exciting, that vibrant, that exhilarating, that motivating, that captivating. I want that. That's what the psalmist is trying to describe today. His aching desire to be in an intimate, authentic relationship with the Lord our God. If you yearn for that kind of intimacy with the Lord, then I want to invite you to examine the nature of intimacy itself. Intimacy is more than familiarity. Intimacy is more than closeness. It is more than mutual affection. Intimacy is one of the bases of love, but it is not love itself. Consider the nature of a mother to her nursing child. And you will begin to understand what intimacy is. Consider the relationship of Ruth and Naomi, where we talk about your God becoming my God and your people becoming my people. And you will begin to understand the nature of intimacy. Consider how the soul of David was knit to the soul of Jonathan. And you will begin to understand the nature of intimacy. Consider the relationship of Jesus to the disciple whom he loved. And you will begin to understand the nature of intimacy. Intimacy requires proximity or closeness. Intimacy requires vulnerability and trust. Intimacy requires and more than dependence and more than independence, a true interdependence. Intimacy requires encouragement and appreciation. It requires listening and understanding. Intimacy requires accountability and forgiveness. It's true in human relationships, and it is true in the relationship that humans have to the Lord our God. The Bible says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. If you want a more intimate relationship with God, then draw close to him. Enter into his presence. Acknowledge his presence in every moment, in every place, in every circumstance. Begin to consider how your life is lived constantly in relationship to him. Introduce yourself. If you want to meet somebody, what's the first thing you need to do? You need to introduce yourself. Now, granted, early on in a relationship, we only show what? Our best self. We put our best foot forward. Do your two feet really look that different from one another? Just curious. We put our best foot forward, right? We let, we let them in on all of the good things about us. We're a little bit of self-promoters. That's okay. God knows all that, and, and it's okay. Tell them all those things. Introduce yourself. But you and I know that as a relationship develops, as we come to trust that someone is not going to pull back their love because we are imperfect, as we begin to trust that God's love is steadfast and enduring, as we begin to trust that God is slow to anger, that he is steadfast and forgiving, as we begin to trust God, we begin to reveal not only the good, but the bad and the ugly. And we find out that God loves us still. If you want to grow in the intimacy of your relationship with God, you have to be willing 
to take off your Sunday morning clothes and be before God as you are. We don't need to dress things up for him. He was stripped for our transgressions. He was laid bare for our iniquities. We don't need to put on false pretense for him. If you want to grow in intimacy with the Lord our God, bear yourself before him and find that in the most vulnerable vulnerable position of your life, he gathers you in with love, with grace, with the covering of his wings. The best part of an intimate relationship with God is that it never ends. As much as we love other people, our relationships with them do on this earth come to an end. Our relationship with God grows continually into eternity. If you are a widow or a widower, or if you have suffered the grief of the loss of a child, or if you're single, you've never been married, there is a lover of your soul. If you're in a marriage that frankly is unsatisfying, there is a lover of your soul. His name is Jesus. He loves you more than any human being ever will. He knows you thoroughly, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he's dying to be in a relationship with you. His love is eternal. His desire to be in a relationship with you has no bounds. And he is willing to pay the ultimate price just for an introduction. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that it is Jesus. It is Jesus. Jesus is the one who has opened the possibility of you and I having an intimate relationship with God. He is, his body serves as the curtain torn apart so that you and I can enter into the Holy of Holies and be in the very presence of God where an intimate relationship with him can be established and grow. You and I enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He is the one who grants the possibility of intimacy with God. And so a relationship with Christ is essential. The psalmist earnestly seeks God. His soul thirsts for God. His body longs for God because he knows that the love of God is better than life itself because he knows that his soul will be satisfied with no other relationship now or in eternity. Jesus affirms that those who seek will find, that those who ask to them it will be given, that those who knock to them the door will be opened. And so I encourage you, If you want to have an intimate relationship with God, then seek him out. Ask him for it. And keep knocking until that door is open to you. And never be satisfied with anything less. Because you were made to be the lover of God's soul. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, please.
Give me Jesus, Lord. Give me Jesus. You can have all the rest. Just give me Jesus. Amen. I think it's true. No sermon is so bad that you can't draw one good thought from it. No novel is so bad that you can't glean one good idea from its pages. No movie is so bad that you can't find one good line within it. Take, for example, the movie Always, directed by Steven Spielberg. It was a terribly inferior movie, but it did have one good line within it. In the story, the lead character dies in a crash. He later on returns as a ghost, and he appears to the woman he loved. He says to her, I loved you. I should have put it into words. I should have told you and shown you that I love you. For I have learned that the love we hold back is the only pain that follows us here. There it is. That's the one good line in that bad movie. The love we hold back in the here and now is the only pain that follows us in the hereafter. Now, I want you to take that line and put it in the side of your brain for just a little while. I'll come back to it later. It is never easy to be a father. Never. Anyone who has ever been a father, or a mother for that matter, knows the daunting challenge parenthood can be. And the reason it's so hard is because all of us are amateurs. No one but no one is an expert. We have all kinds of so-called experts in parenting, but they have just as many troubles with their children as you and I have with ours. No one is an expert. In my experience, and I speak from my own person as well as from the personal experiences I have had, no parent is good enough or strong enough or wise enough or patient enough or mature enough or secure enough to be a parent. And therefore, we have no alternative except to throw ourselves onto the mercies and the resources of Almighty God. Therefore, today, when I use the phrase, Godly Father, I am not referring to fathers who are perfect in their living and in their parenting. Quite the contrary. I am referring to fathers who are totally dependent upon the grace of God, both in their living and in their parenting. Larry Crabb has a wonderful little book called The Silence of Adam. And in that book, Larry Crabb suggests that godly fathers are to deliver three messages to their children. The three messages 
are, it can be done. I believe in you. You are not alone. I would go on to suggest that all of us as males, biological fathers, adoptive fathers, surrogate fathers, stepfathers, grandfathers, or just male role models, all of us can deliver those three messages to the children who are coming along after us. It can be done. I believe in you. You are not alone. I want to take those three messages and fill out the blanks by referring you to the experience of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. If you think it's hard to be a father these days, well, let me ask you to consider how hard it must have been for Joseph to be a father. I mean, given the circumstances he had to face. Take a look with me for just a few moments. A godly father delivers to his children this message. It can be done. That is the message of courage. Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, was quite clearly, I think, a man of great courage. One example. Shortly after Jesus was born, when this family had to face the murderous threats of King Herod, at that point, Joseph gathered up his wife and his newborn child, and he proceeded with them to brave a long hazardous journey across trackless desert wastes all the way to Egypt. And there, in a land not his own, living with the constant fear of detection, there Joseph provided care and protection for his family, all during an exile which lasted at least several years. I believe it was his courage that led Jesus to so admire and respect Joseph. So much did he admire and respect him that later on Jesus began to refer to God as Father. Joseph was, you see, a godly father who delivered to his son the message of courage. It can be done. Later on, when Jesus had to face the pain of opposition and crucifixion, he faced all of that with incredible courage. And I believe he thought to himself, it can be done. My earthly father, Joseph, did it. He faced fear and failure, heartache and opposition. And because he trusted in God, he made it through. It can be done. That's the message that a godly father or grandfather ought to be delivering to children and grandchildren. The message of courage. It can be done. It's a wonderful little piece. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's entitled, 
how fathers mature. It's actually rather cute. Because you see, in spite of the title, what it is, it is an account of how children actually transition in their understanding of their fathers. Listen, (laughs) four years, my daddy can do anything. Seven years, my dad knows a whole lot. Nine years, dad doesn't know quite everything. Twelve years, my dad just doesn't understand. Fourteen years, pop is so old-fashioned. Seventeen years, the old man is out of touch and out to lunch. Twenty-five years, dad's okay. Thirty years, I wonder what dad would think about this. Fifty years, I wish I could get my dad's input right now. Sixty years, I wish we could have one more talk together. My dad is now with the Lord. My dad's life on this earth was not easy. It was good. It was very, very good, but it was not easy. And in fact, the last 15 years of his life were filled with an almost overwhelming pain and heartache as he nursed my mother through all those years of Alzheimer's disease. His life was very good, but it wasn't easy. And yet, through it all, he kept trusting in God, and he kept delivering to his son the message of courage. And that is why, even though I may never reach his stature, I will still follow his example. Always being of good courage, making it my aim in life as it was his, to always please the Lord. That's the message my dad delivered to me, the message of courage. It can be done. Let me urge you, fathers, grandfathers, deliver, never fail to deliver to your children and to your grandchildren or to any children within the circle of your care and concern, never fail to deliver to them the message of courage. It can be done. That's the first message a godly father delivers to his children. And a godly father delivers to his children this message. I believe in you. That's the message of faith. Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, was quite clearly a man of faith, great faith. Just one example. We're told in the Bible that when Jesus was 12 years of age, Joseph took him all the way to the city of Jerusalem so that Jesus could study under the leading rabbis in the temple at Jerusalem. Now, I want to suggest to you that only a father with a great faith determined to share that faith with his child would have undertaken such a spiritual pilgrimage on the limited financial resources Joseph possessed. But that is precisely what Joseph did. Joseph delivered to his son the message of faith. By the way, that reminds me, you can note this down, the greatest inheritance a godly father or grandfather can leave to his children and grandchildren is not money. It's faith. They need to know that they belong to God. Our children are not ours. They are God's. And they need to know that they belong to God and they will be His forever. Now, what that means in practical terms is this. 
If you have a broken relationship in your family circle right now, then let me call you to begin putting that right right now. Robert Fulgham, in a little book called From Beginning to End, tells of the relationship, or rather the lack thereof, between him and his now deceased mother and father. Listen to what he wrote. My parents died without any reconciliation between us. I, their only child, did not live up to their expectations, nor did they to mine. I wish it had not been so, and they must have felt the same way. The ritual of reunion never happened. The distance between us was so great that I didn't even attend their funerals. Though I tried to sort through that story to make sense of it, I cannot. Perhaps when I'm older and wiser, I will understand. I only mention this because it is important to acknowledge how much I empathize with those for whom reunion remains an unfulfilled hope. Some things, when broken, cannot be fixed. My parents probably wanted to welcome me home as deeply as I wanted to be welcomed. Now, in my later years, I sympathize with their sadness. When, from time to time, a distance develops between me and my children. How incredibly sad. Robert Fulgham may be right about a few things in life, but he is dead wrong when he says some things in life when broken cannot be fixed. The cross of Jesus Christ says no to that. The cross of Jesus Christ says anything in life when broken can be fixed by the love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So be engaged in building, or if necessary, repairing the relationships in your life, particularly the relationships between parent and child. Give your children and your grandchildren the gift of faith. That means taking them to church, yes. Because being in church every Sunday does keep you grounded in the faith. But it means much more than that. It means bringing the values and the language of the faith into your home. Play spiritual music. Incorporate grace at mealtimes. Set aside regular times for family prayer and study. Tell your children and your grandchildren what you believe and why you believe it and how you believe it and how it impacts your everyday life. Let them hear it from you directly. Say to them, I believe in you because God believes in you. Give to them the gift of faith. And then a godly father delivers to his children the message, you are not alone. That is the message of love. Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, was obviously a very loving father. We catch glimpses of that, but glimpses are enough. Just one example. In this story where Jesus was in the temple at Jerusalem, you remember in the story it tells us that in the course of that visit to Jerusalem, Jesus and his parents got separated. And his parents were searching for him diligently, maybe even frantically, you kind of get that feeling. They searched for him for three days, the Bible tells us. 
And then they found it. And his mother Mary said to him, and I want you to listen very carefully to the words. Mary said to him, your father and I have been searching anxiously for you. I submit to you, only a loving father can be an anxious father. It happened a few years back. I read about it in the newspaper. A man was flying a single-engine plane over the great Okefenokee Swamp over in Georgia. That's a risky thing to do because if something happens to the plane, there's no place to set it down in the Okefenokee Swamp. It's nothing but a marshland, bogs and pools and alligators and snakes. It's not the kind of place you want to be. Well, this plane lost its engine and the plane plunged into the Okefenokee Swamp. A rescue was set up and put in place, and the rescue teams began to move out into the swamp, searching for the plane and the pilot. They searched and found some pieces of the plane, but they never found the pilot. The pilot's father, in the meantime, was at the search command post, hour after hour, hoping and praying. After several days, the searchers gave up. They came to the father, and they said, "'We're sorry.'" Your son obviously did not survive, but we cannot find his body. The search was then called off. It was at that point that this father, 72 years old, white-haired, physically mm, a little frail, with no special equipment, actually went into the great Okefenokee swamp himself. Later on, when he came out of the swamp, he was carrying the body of his son. The reporters said to him, Mr. Maddox, how did you do that? The rescuers said they couldn't find your son. And Mr. Maddox said, you just don't understand. That was my boy in there. And I wouldn't come out without him. Fathers and grandfathers, deliver that message of love to your children and your grandchildren. You are not alone. You will never be alone. I will be there with you and for you, and so will God. You remember that line I asked you to tuck away in the side of your brain? Get it out. The love we hold back here on earth is the only pain that will follow us hereafter in heaven. Dear friends, love at all costs. Love those whom God has given you to love. That reminds me of Barry, father, and his young son, Andrew. Andrew suffers from Down syndrome. Andrew has a body that's 15 years old, but his mind stopped growing when he was four. Barry, when encountered with that, couldn't stomach it. He couldn't accept his son's limitations. He began to resent his boy. Ultimately, he lapsed into depression. He then suffered a nervous breakdown. After some rather extensive counseling and some extraordinary love and support from his church family. Barry began to turn things around. He began to see his son Andrew for who he was, not for who he wished he might be. Barry's return to wellness evoked an amazing response in Andrew. Let me give you an example. Andrew in his Sunday school class, the Sunday school teacher, made a parallel between the consistent 
rising of the sun and the moon and the consistent love that God has for us. Andrew was completely captivated by that idea. And so he said to his dad, Dad, can we watch the moon rise the next time it does? Barry said, sure, son. And so on the next full moon, the whole family gathered out on the front porch facing the eastern horizon. Andrew actually began to tremble with excitement. And then, just as the moon began to rise above the distant hills, Andrew suddenly began to cry. And he did something he'd never done before. He circled his dad with his arms. And he said, Dad... Have you ever seen the moon rise before? Barry was so moved he couldn't even respond. The whole family sat in silence for a few moments. It was as if Andrew's sense of awe was contagious. And they watched the moon rise into the night sky. And when the full moon could be seen there, Andrew, still holding on to his dad, said, Dad, you know... God loves us like that. You know that, don't you, Dad? It's amazing. To this very day, every full moon, the whole family gathers on the front porch and they watch the moon rise together. Andrew and his dad always sit right next to one another with their arms around each other. Never easy to be a father. Never. Or to be a mother, for that matter. But by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we can do it. We can encourage each other in faith. We can affirm each other in hope. We can accept each other in love. And every once in a while, we can wrap our arms around each other and watch the moon rise and remember how much God loves us all. Fathers, Grandfather, on this Father's Day, tuck that away in your heart. Pray with me, please. God on high, hear my prayer. I thank you today for my dad, who spent so many years in a pulpit like this, and now watches his son do the same. And I thank you for the great blessing you have given me. Be an adoptive father, and now <laughs> a grandfather. Will you help me try to be worthy of both? Amen. Christianity is the only faith in the world which can be called a singing faith. I believe that's true because we as Christians have so much to sing about. During this year of work from the Providence pulpit, periodically I am taking a look at the gospel message contained in the great songs and hymns of our faith. Today, another sermon in that set. Pray with me, please. Lord, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Amen. A song of faith in a sermon of grace. Francis Ridley Havergal was born in the year 1836 in Worcestershire, England. She was reared in a minister's home, and from the earliest moments of her childhood, she had but one goal in life, and that was to be a true servant of Jesus Christ. As a result, at the very tender age of four, 
She was already memorizing portions of the Bible. By age seven, she was writing beautiful poetry, all of it dedicated to her Lord. She went on in her life to become a noted linguist, a concert musician, and a respected Bible scholar. It wasn't easy. You see, for all her life long, she fought against the ravages of ill health. And she wound up dying long before her time. She is perhaps best known and remembered for a song, a hymn that she wrote, a hymn entitled, Take My Life. It is a hymn noted not only for its wondrous poetry and its powerful message, but also for the circumstances under which it was written. You see, in December of 1874, Frances Habergal went with ten of her friends on a week-long house party. It was meant to be a vacation. It turned out to be a great spiritual awakening. I want you to listen to her very own words as she describes that week. There were ten other persons in the house, some unconverted and long prayed for, some converted but not yet rejoicing Christians. So I prayed, Lord, give me all in this house. And God did. Before we left that place, every single one had received a blessing from the Lord. The last night of my visit, I was too happy to sleep, and I spent most of the night renewing my own commitment to Jesus Christ. And then in the course of the night, these little couplets formed themselves in my mind and began to chime in my heart one after another after another, until they all finished with the words, Ever, only, all for thee. Francis Habergal took those little couplets and fashioned them into the song or the hymn, Take My Life, a hymn which magnificently portrays what it means to make a total commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, dear friends, you and I are living in a time of self-centered ambition and pleasure-seeking lifestyles and unfulfilled expectations. And in the midst of a time like that, I believe that the value and the power of a true and total commitment to Jesus Christ ought to be exalted and celebrated. That is precisely what Frances Havergal's hymn does. Her words actually remind me of a conversation I had with a young college student. The two of us were talking together, and in the midst of that conversation, he said to me, he said, you know, I, I guess I could, without much effort, write down a list of things in life that are worth living for. But what I really want to know, is there anything or anyone in life worth dying for? Whew, heavy question. Is there anything or anyone in life worth dying for? 
that question forces us to confront the deepest commitment we make in life. Now, there are some people who answer that question by making a commitment to self. You can do that in your life. You can make a commitment to yourself to make your own selfish desires the full focus and attention of your life. You can decide that you are going to spend your life doing the things that are necessary for your own pleasure and profit. Yes, you can adopt the attitude which led William Ernest Henley to write his poem, Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You hear those words? They sound brave and courageous, don't they? Let me tell you something, dear friends. You think deeply about those words. You uh, engage those words with intellectual honesty and you will rapidly realize that that kind of attitude is absolute foolishness. Mark this down. The seas of life are too broad for any of us to sail them all alone. The oceans of the human experience are too rough for any of us to stay at our own helm all of the time. Yes, try to live your life for yourself and yourself alone, and I promise you, sooner or later, you will be sunk by loneliness, sucked under by wasted or missed opportunities, or smashed to pieces on the rocks of someone else's attempt to sail through life all alone. Take the case of Absalom. You can read about Absalom in the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 18. Absalom was the son of a king, King David. Absalom possessed a brilliant mind, a mind even more brilliant than that of his father. But Absalom used his mind in very calculated ways to accomplish his own purposes. Absalom had a very winsome personality that drew others to him. But he took sadistic delight in manipulating those other people to serve his own ends. Absalom was inordinately handsome, devilishly so, and yet he was so conceited that he couldn't see beyond the end of his own nose. He seemed to be in the driver's seat in life if you looked at him from the outside. However, he made the fatal mistake of trying to determine and control his own life and his own destiny. He wound up turning away from God. He turned against his father he then led a rebellion designed to drive his father David off the throne of Israel so that he could take that throne for himself. In the ensuing battle, when the fortunes of that battle turned against him, Absalom turned tail and ran. He got away on his horse, and as he was galloping away from the scene of battle, 
His long flowing hair, which he dearly loved, was splayed out in the wind behind him. And as he and his his horse ran under the overhanging branches of a tree, that long flowing blowing hair got caught in the branches of the tree and tangled there. And the horse literally ran out from under him and left him dangling there by the hair in midair, thrashing and flailing about, Thrashing and flailing, that is, until one of King David's soldiers plunged three quick darts into his heart. Absalom, you see, ruled a very small kingdom, the kingdom of only one, himself. And as is so often the case, when one lives for oneself alone, Absalom brought that tiny kingdom to terrible destruction. Now, you in your life can make that kind of choice. You can say, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You can choose to live your life for yourself and yourself alone. If you choose to do that, then all I can say to you is, remember Absalom. He lived for himself alone, and he died by himself alone. How sad. And then there are those who choose to answer the question, is there anything in life worth dying for? They choose to answer the question by making a commitment to the crowd. Now, You can do that in your own life. Let me just say very quickly here that I am speaking to those of you who are young, or not to you alone. I'm speaking to everybody here, of course, but I'm speaking especially to those of you who are young. You can choose to follow the crowd in your life. We are living in a time where there is intense pressure upon us to become just like everybody else. And because we want to be accepted and loved and included, we tend to yield to the pressure of the crowd. We tend to go along in order to get along. And yet I want to tell you something. Sooner or later, making that kind of commitment in your life will bring you to peril. Take the case of Zedekiah. You can read about him in the book of Jeremiah or the book of 2 Kings. Zedekiah was the king of Judah. And Judah came under siege from the forces of a Babylonian king named Nebuchadrezzar. Note, please, this is not King Nebuchadnezzar. That was another Babylonian king. This Babylonian king's name was Nebuchadrezzar. Well, Nebuchadrezzar and his forces attacked Judah. At that point, Zedekiah recognized the crisis of the moment. But Zedekiah didn't have the strength or the courage to stand on his own. And so he turned to the crowd. He turned to the people around him and asked for their wisdom and advice. They all said unanimously, stand and fight. It was at that point that Jeremiah, the prophet of God, came to Zedekiah and said, the Lord commands you to surrender. Well, Zedekiah had a spine like a wet noodle. He couldn't bring himself to go against the wishes of the crowd. And so 
He fought. He was severely defeated. And as a result, King Nebuchadnezzar's forces seized Zedekiah and two of his sons. Zedekiah was made to watch while two of his sons were executed. And then two of Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers took Zedekiah's arms and held them fast. A third soldier took a hot iron and blinded Zedekiah. They put out his eyes. And at that point, King Nebuchadnezzar said to Zedekiah, Zedekiah, when you could see, you wouldn't see. Now, when you want to see, you will not see. I speak to all of you, but especially to those of you who are young. You can follow the crowd if you wish. You can make the choice that you are going to be just like everybody else. If you make that commitment in your life, all I can say to you is, remember Zedekiah. When he could see, he wouldn't see. So that when he wanted to see, he couldn't see. How sad. And then there are some who, in answer to the question, is there anything or anyone worth dying for, answer by making the commitment to Jesus Christ. I want you to hear unmistakably that that is precisely what I have done in my own life. And I can tell you on the basis of the life which has been mine to live as a result that there is nothing more exciting, more thrilling, more powerful, more dynamic, more strengthening, more encouraging, more joyful, more satisfying than making a total commitment to Jesus Christ in your life. Jesus is not only worth living for, Jesus is worth dying for. Some of history's greatest people have understood what that means. Michelangelo was the most gifted man of his day, maybe the most gifted man of any day. How did he use those gifts? By trying to portray Jesus and the life Jesus lived. Johann Sebastian Bach possessed musical ability that was legendary. And how did he employ that talent? By spending his days writing down the melodies that Jesus was humming in his ear. Christopher Wren possessed an architectural genius unsurpassed. And how did he use that genius? By building soaring cathedrals to the glory of his Christ. Albert Schweitzer was a medical doctor and what's more, a PhD three times over. And the world set before him all of the trappings of glittering success. And what did he do? He followed Jesus out into the darkest, deepest jungles of Africa. And there he spent the rest of his life ministering to the needs of ordinary people in the name of his Christ. Madame Curie and Blaise Pascal, scientific scholars known the whole world over, and yet they clutched to their hearts the cross of Jesus Christ until their lives were gone. Mother Teresa 
grew up amidst astounding wealth in Yugoslavia. But she turned away from the wealth which was hers and went instead to the desperate slums of the city of Calcutta in India in the name of her Christ and in the process became the most admired woman of the modern era. Oh, yes. Some of history's greatest people have known what it means to make a total commitment to Jesus Christ. Ah, but more to our purposes, ordinary people can experience exactly the same thing. Ordinary people like Stan. Stan was a, an up-and-coming young businessman. Stan worked for a company which entertained a lot, and they served a lot of drinks there. And Stan began to take those drinks. And Stan then took more and more of those drinks. And Stan got to the point where he couldn't stop taking those drinks. Stan had a wife and two daughters whom he dearly loved. And at one point he said to himself, I must stop this for the sake of my wife and my girls. He couldn't stop. At one point he was home at night. He had a glass in his hand. And he said to himself, I'm going to put this glass down and walk away. And he couldn't put it down. Despair overwhelmed him. Later on, after everyone was asleep, he got a pistol and he went down into the basement of his house. And there he put the pistol to his head and he couldn't pull the trigger. He couldn't stop drinking and he couldn't even stop the life that was destroying the people that he loved most in the world. In sheer desperation then, he fell on his knees on the basement floor and he screamed, Jesus, kill me! Jesus, take my life! And Jesus did. He cried, Jesus, take my life! And Jesus took his life. Only not in the way Stan expected. No, Jesus took his life. And he lifted Stan up off the floor of that basement. And from that moment, he began to turn Stan's life around. Jesus helped Stan to master what Stan could not master alone. I know that's true because Stan was a member of a congregation I serve. That's what Jesus does for a life. Jesus, all I have to do is mention the name Jesus. That name which is above every name. Jesus. That name at which every knee shall bow. Jesus. That name which every tongue shall confess. Jesus. Jesus is worth living for even more. Jesus is worth dying for. My great friend, the late Dr. Bill Bright, used to love to say that all of us have a throne in our heart. And we determine who is going to sit on that throne. He was right. Give the scepter to yourself, your heart will be broken. Give the scepter to the crowd, and your heart will be crushed. But give the scepter to Jesus Christ, and your heart will be filled with peace and power and pardon and joy, and your life will be marked by discipline and direction and devotion and fulfillment. Jesus is worth living for. Jesus is worth dying for. That's why Sunday after Sunday after Sunday from this pulpit, I call you to make a total commitment to Jesus Christ 
in your life. Make the words of Francis Havergal your very own. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to be. Take my heart, it is thine own. Let it be thy royal throne. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Ever only all for thee. Pray with me, please. God on high, hear my prayer. Take my life. It is your own. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Pray with me, please. Give me Jesus, Lord. Give me Jesus. You can have all the rest. Just give me Jesus. Amen. Are you aware of the fact that when Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address, he added two words to that address which were not in the address as it was originally written? In the notes, Lincoln wrote down in preparation for that address... He included the line that this nation shall have a new birth of freedom. However, when he actually delivered the address and he came to that line, he said that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. He added the two little words, under God. Well, that phrase, this nation under God, has become so much a part of our national vocabulary and our national understanding that we actually added it to our pledge of allegiance to the flag. However, when Abraham Lincoln first used those words, it was most unusual. You see, Lincoln was declaring for all the world to hear his deep abiding conviction that the destinies of all the nations, including this one, are determined by God. I have no doubt that Lincoln was influenced in his thinking by the very eloquent words and phrases of Psalm 33. Permit me, please, to try today to show you what I mean. The psalmist first declares that God directs the nations. Listen to the words. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere the Lord. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God directs the nations. Now, I'm going to ask you to permit me, please, to try to flesh out those words for you by taking you right now on what I will confess to you is a sinfully quick tour through human history. It is a risky thing to do, but I'm going to do it anyway because I am trying to make a point. So hang on, here we go. 
God wishing to make His voice and His will known in the world chose a nation, Israel, to become the agent of His instruction. Israel, however, became a stiff-necked and proud people. They came to believe that because Israel was great, Israel had been chosen by God, when in fact exactly the opposite was true. Because Israel had been chosen by God, Israel became great. Ah, but the people of Israel would have nothing to do with that kind of thinking. And so God realized that Israel would have to be humbled. It was then that God raised up the Babylonian Empire for just such a purpose as that. The Babylonians swooped down with a conquering army, captured the people of Israel, carted them away into slavery, where indeed they learned humility and subjection. However, the Babylonians themselves displayed no subjection or humility before the Lord at all. And as a result, in time, their great empire passed into history. This was accomplished through the rise of the Persian Empire. The Persians rose up and came with mailed fists and beat upon the brass gates of Babylon until they fell. And the Babylonian Empire was gone, and the Persian Empire was on the rise. However, the Persians became addicted to their power, and in time the Persian Empire too uh, fell into decay and disintegration. Ultimately, in spite of all its splendor and power, the Persian Empire disappeared into the mists of history. Now it was then that God decided that He would come to the people of this world in a new way. He wanted to walk with His people. He wanted to talk with His people. And so He chose to come into this world in human form in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, if that were going to succeed and be effective in its work of reaching the world, there would have to be developed a language which would begin to spread across the earth, thus easing the communication among the peoples of the world. And so it was that the Greek civilization arose. God put it into the mind of a young Greek named Alexander that the world needed to think Greek and speak Greek. And so Alexander set out to conquer the world. And for all practical purposes, that's exactly what he did. Unfortunately, Alexander became intoxicated with his power. He began to see himself as being God until a little wine washed him away. Ah, but God had done what God set out to do, for now there was indeed a language abroad in the world which could capture the words of God spoken by Jesus Christ, and that language could be readily heard and understood by the people of the earth. And so it was then that God sought to bring the nations of the world into an unprecedented unity. The Greeks were laid aside and the Romans were brought to the fore. Under the Romans, uh, there was created in the world a commonwealth of nations unprecedented in human history to that time. 
Roman rule, Roman power, Roman peace, Roman law, Roman roads, Roman ships, Roman seaways, tied one country to another to another, and thus made possible the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ with extraordinary speed and effectiveness. Ah, but Rome never fully bowed the knee to the Lord. And so the great Roman Empire crumbled. Nothing left today except just ruins for tourists to see. The people whom God used to finally bring down the Roman Empire were the savage Huns from the north. However, these people, in spite of their animal skin clothing and their rough-hewn exterior possessed inside a deeply ingrained but undeveloped love for deep thoughts and higher aspirations. It was that love which led ultimately to the creation of the great universities of Germany. And there Christian scholars came from all over the world. There they began to articulate the great solid beliefs of the Christian faith. And from there they began to spread those beliefs out to the civilized world, both west and east. Ah, but the story of the Germanic Empire is not so bright and beautiful because the Germanic Empire made the mistake of pushing God off the throne in life and worshiping instead the God of materialism. And consequently, the story of the Germanic Empire is a story of great decline. It was the Creator's design at that point to bring front and center onto the stage of history the people known as the Angles and the Saxons, the Anglo-Saxons, the Druids set aside their animal sacrifice, the Celts began to carry the cross of Jesus Christ, and Angoland, or as we call it, England, became the first great colonial empire in the world. And that colonial empire spread until it quite literally encircled the globe. Now, wherever the English went, they not only took the flag, they also took the Bible. However, in time, the English became more concerned with the acquisition of gold than with the extension of the gospel. And as a result, the great British Empire, upon which once the sun never set, is remembered now only in our history books. It was at that point in the flow of human history that God chose to forge a new people, a new nation, a nation like no other nation which had ever been on the face of the earth. This nation would be formed by all of the people of the world. And so it was that God brought men, women, and children from every land on earth to this land. And so much was that the case that speaking of this land, the great writer Herman Melville could say, we are not a narrow tribe. Our blood is like the flood of the great Amazon River, a thousand noble currents sweeping into one mighty flood. We are not so much a nation as we are a world. Herman Melville was exactly right. In the creation of this nation, it is absolutely clear that God was developing His strategy, fulfilling His purpose, 
and determining his destiny for his people in the world. No one has ever said it better than the great Phillips Brooks of Boston who said, I cannot see how one can be an American even if one is not a Christian and not catch something with regards to God's purpose for this great land. How true. How absolutely true. There you are. A flow... A flow through human history painted, I know, in ridiculously broad and sweeping strokes. And yet, dear friends, I would contend with you, whether it is done broadly or narrowly, you look at the history of humankind and you cannot help but see the words of the psalmist shining through. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let the people of the world revere Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded. And it stood firm. Yes, God directs the nations. Ah, but the psalmist also declares that the nations depend upon God. Again, I ask you to listen to the words. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of His heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He chose for His inheritance. Dear friends, can you ever find a more vivid or a more significant illustration of those words than the story of America. You will understand, I hope, if I speak passionately now about this nation I so dearly love. Henry David Thoreau once recommended that we ought to begin each day by praying, Lord, I thank Thee that I have been born. That's a noble prayer. But I have to tell you that whenever I pray that prayer, I always add some words to it. I pray, Lord, I thank Thee that I have been born and that I live in America. Mind you, I would never disparage people who live in other lands, not for a single moment. Never would I do that. But it is because my heart is in America that America is in my heart. Christopher Columbus, when he arrived here, thought that he had found paradise. Ah, but you and I know that America is not paradise. We know that paradise will be found only on the other side of death. And yet I would suggest to you that there have been times in the history of this land when we have come close to being paradise. There have been times in our history when we have been so acutely aware of God's guiding hand that we have received the full measure of God's blessing upon our national life. Ah, but then there have been other times in our history when that has not been true. Other times when we have not trusted God, when we have relied too much upon our own resources, when we have fought too hard for our own desires. And in fact, I would suggest to you that it seems to me at least that we are in a time like that in this nation today. We have become a nation, it seems to me, where Patrick Henry's great and noble cry, give me liberty or give me death, has been shortened to just give me. It seems to me that we have become a people 
who have forgotten that freedom does not mean the license to do as we please, but rather it means the liberty to do as we ought. It seems to me that we have become a nation where anything goes, forgetting history's clearest, most unmistakable lesson, that in a nation where anything goes, sooner or later, everything is gone. Mark this down. God is not so genially tolerant as to be morally indifferent. God has lifted nations. God has lowered nations. God did not run out of ideas after thinking up America. God can remove us from the flow of human history just as surely as Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome. For God's purpose and God's truth will prevail in this world with America's help or without it. And therefore today, on this Independence Day weekend, I call us to remember who we really are. I call us to recapture the decencies of life which have been so smothered by the philosophy of anything goes. I call us to unite our voices together and to cry out for all the world to hear that we have had enough of cleverness without wisdom, brilliance without values, Liberty without responsibilities. Power without compassion. I call us to make a declaration of dependence. Oh yes, we have already a declaration of independence and I thank God for it. But now I call us to make a declaration of dependence upon God, to declare that we shall strive to live in this nation the way God desires for us to live. I call us to these things because I so love America. There is in me a deep and unabashed love for this land. I glory in her history. I exult in her freedom. I am wounded by her failures. I am hurt by her occasional blindness. I love America. I love becoming absorbed in reading about her great heroes and heroines. I love the sheer genius of her constitution and her bill of rights and her valiant attempt to make all of them work for all of the people all of the time. I love America. I am moved to tears when I sing her songs, when I see her flag, when I speak of her promise, and when I pray for her people. I love America. America testifies to the great and glorious truth that that nation which trusts upon the greatness of God is a nation whose own greatness shall be revealed through the story of human history. I love America. I know I cannot speak for you, only for me. I cannot articulate your hopes, only my own. Ah, but I can do that. And perhaps, just perhaps, by the grace of God, my thoughts and my hopes shall be yours as well. You see, dear friends, because I so love America, this is what I long for. This is what I hope for. This is what I pray for. America, first, only, always, one nation under God. Let me say it again. This is what I long for, what I hope for, 
what I pray for. America, first, only, always, one nation under God. If that were true in this nation today, then the promise of the psalmist would be fulfilled. Blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. Soli Deo Gloria. God alone be the glory. Amen. In the song that Chalmers just sang for us, there is a faith that attests to the fact that God never slumbers nor sleeps. In the song that we sang just prior to the offertory, we claim that God's got the whole world in his hands, even the wind and the rains. We propose to have a faith in a God of all places and all times and all circumstances. And yet, there are things that happen in our lives and in the world that threaten those foundational ideas, even the very foundations of our faith. So before the sermon this day, I would like for you to go with me before the Lord in a time of prayer. Let us pray. Holy God, we believe that you have the whole world in your hands. We believe that you do not slumber and that you do not sleep. We believe that you love people everywhere. We believe that you have a plan for our lives, a plan for our welfare and not for our harm, a plan with a future filled with hope. We believe that you are able to do far more than we dare ask or imagine, and yet there are some things that we ask and imagine that you do not do. There are mornings that we awaken and we find out that evil has been sown in the hearts of men and they have done what is evil in your sight to one another. We learn that bombs have blown up and people with them. We learn that terror is on the rise. You alone, Lord God, are our rock and our salvation. We will not fear, for you are with us, holy God. Even as storms rise in the torrents of the sea, even as the earth shakes, you are our God. And we are your people, the sheep of your hand. We ask, Lord God, that you would make yourself known to us, even in the midst of the storms. For those here today, Lord God, whose Lives are placid and peaceful. We thank you. We thank you for the seasons of time in our lives when joy runs rampant. And Lord God, for those here this morning whose lives are stormy, for whom the rains have come, tend to them, Lord. By the power of your Holy Spirit, surround them with your love and your comforting presence. Assure them of your grace. And set their eyes, Lord God, not on the things of this earth, but on the things of heaven. Open to us now your word and reveal to us your will through it. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Life is filled with storms. 
The Bible is filled with storm stories because the Bible is about real life. Over the next several weeks, we're going to take a look at some of the storied storms of the Bible. We will meet some of the heroes of the storms. And hopefully, together, we will learn a few things about preparing for or even navigating around some of the storms that are in our future. Now, I will admit that I used to kind of chuckle and even make sport of people who always talked about the weather. Or when you'd go to their home, the weather channel was what was always on. I don't do that anymore. I'm one of them now. Channel 24 is one of the ones you can get to really, really quick on my TV. Weather.com's on my favorite list. I visit them with some frequency. Why is that? It's more than just local on the 8s. I'm fascinated by the weather. Truth be told, it's not just the weather. It's the storms. Now, we tune in or we go online to check on what's happening during the day because we want to be able to change our plans. We want to be able to change our lives to accommodate the changing weather. We want to be able to get prepared if there is a storm on the way. We even want to be able to have time to get to higher ground if that's what's called for. But let's admit it. Every single one of us tunes in to the Weather Channel or to weather.com because they have great stories about great storms. It's not actually the weather itself that holds our attention. It's the storms. Even the threat of a storm, even there's activity in the upper atmosphere that might produce a storm, gets us excited. And frankly, the bigger the better. The more fierce we find, the more fascinating. Tornadoes, hurricanes, flash floods, blizzards, mudslides, lightning, last-minute rescues, stories of survival, heroes, torrents of mud, waves of disaster. We are glued to it. We are fascinated by it. Now, looking outside today, knowing what's brewing out there, I could probably say, isn't it just so gracious of God to be providing a real-life, timely storm for me to point to the outer bands of what I'm sure by Monday will be known as Dennis the Menace, giving us a reminder, a foretaste of hurricane season. But that would be twisting the truth. You see, the truth of the matter is, I knew that when I would be preaching this series of sermons, it would be in the middle of hurricane season. I knew that there was a good chance that we would already have a storm or two to talk about by the second Sunday in July. And I can predict with absolute certainty with absolute confidence that there will be storms in our future. There is no doubt in my mind 
that there will be storms in our future. There will be rain. There will be wind. There will be waves. They will beat against our homes. They will wash away the cars we leave behind. They will beat against our families. They will beat against our faith. How do I know that? Because Jesus, who among other things was quite a forecaster, said that there is a 100% chance of wind and waves and rain in everyone's life. There are storms in the future for us individually, and there are storms in the future for us corporately. There is a 100% chance of rain in our future. Jesus did not say in today's texts, if the rain falls, if the wind blows, if the waves beat against that house. He said when they do, when the rains come, when the wind blows, when the waves beat against that house. Jesus promised us, or at least predicted for us that there would be storms, serious, life-threatening storms in our future. There's not a question about whether or not our lives will be stormy. There will even be, for some of us, what feel like seasons of storms. The question is whether or not we will build our lives in such a way as to be prepared to survive the storms that come, or whether we will build our lives in such a way as to prepare to be washed away by them. You heard me right. You and I today, right now, are either building our lives in active preparation to survive the promised storms of the future, or we are actively preparing right now to be washed away by those self-same storms. Because the storms are coming. If you've never had anybody tell you that before, hear it from me today. The storms are coming. This is just the outer bands. This one is just going to give us a glancing blow. There is going to be one headed straight for us. Hurricane season on an island is a great analogy, but it's just an analogy. God loves us enough to tell us that our lives will be stormy. God loves us enough to give us fair warning. He loves us enough to teach us how to prepare, to tell us how to build and on whom to build our lives. On Christ, who will supply for us a firm foundation, a solid rock to withstand the stormy blast. But it's still up to us. It is still a choice as to whether or not we build there. In today's text, the same story comes upon everyone. Apparently, believing in Jesus and being a follower of him is no insulation against the wind and the rain and the floods of life. Christians have, do, and will continue to suffer the same hardships as everyone else. 
Storms who have names like Dennis or Andrew or Hugo or Camille. And storms who have names like cancer and divorce, addiction, bankruptcy, and depression. Christians are not immune, nor are we insulated from the very real storms of very real life. Now, it is one thing to be caught off guard by a storm that came out of nowhere. It's another thing altogether to fail to prepare for storms that we know are predicted in our future. Today is your storm warning. There is a storm brewing. It will pass directly through your life. I cannot tell you today exactly when it will come, and I cannot tell you exactly what its name will be. But I can tell you with absolute certainty there is a storm brewing on the horizon. It is gaining strength, and it is headed for the foundation of your life. I know that whatever it is, it will rock your world. It will threaten your foundation. It will test your faith. Some of you are living in the midst of those storms right now. For some of you, the eye wall has just passed over your life, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm glad we survived that. The back of the storm is still coming. If the foundation of your life is the shifting sands of our culture, or the shifting sands of your own ability, or your own intellect, or your own planning, if your firm foundation is the shifting sands of your human relationships, then I have bad news for you. The storm that is headed your way is going to turn your life upside down. It's going to splinter your relationships, and it is going to leave you adrift, bereft of everything upon which you now place your faith because your faith is placed on shifting sand. Those foundations are simply not secure enough to withstand the storms of real life. If, however, the foundation of your life is Jesus Christ, if you are truly rooted and grounded in him, then even though the storms come, and they will come, even though the winds blow and the rains pour and the waves beat against your life, then when the storm passes, and it will, you will open the door to the rising sun and you will see that your life withstood all that the world had to throw at it. Will there be damage? Likely. But it'll all be above ground. It won't be down deep where we really live and move and have our being. Foundations are funny things. Few of us, well, maybe some of you who actually, you know, went every day when your house was being built, you actually probably do know what your foundation looks like. 
Anybody who bought a pre-existing house, you probably don't know what your foundation looks like. You're trusting what someone uh, wrote on a sheet of paper that says your foundation is made of and how deep it goes, because most of us haven't really dug down there next to our side of our house to see how many cinder blocks deep that foundation really is or to touch down all the way to that footer that they poured, hopefully, right? Living on an island, your house is probably not grounded far enough down so as to be on a solid rock. There is some shifting sands beneath all of us living here. And the truth of the matter is most of us know more about the paint colors on our walls and the kind of countertops we have than we do about the real nature of our foundations. That's because we don't look at them very often. As long as everything is going well, as long as everything above ground looks okay, then we have a confidence that what's happening below ground is okay as well. The problem with that philosophy when applied to our lives is that you and I are really good at faking it above ground. You and I are really good at putting on our Sunday best and brushing back our hair and putting on our happy face and acting to the whole world as if everything is okay. When we know that at the foundation, our lives are shaken, crumbling, hurting, devastated. But as long as above ground we keep it all brushed back and put together, we think, well, no one will know. Here's the problem. No one can come to your aid. No one can come alongside you as a brother and sister in Christ. The Christian community cannot do what it is called and capable of doing with and for you if you never let on that there's a storm and that it's raging. You and I are vulnerable, and we need to become vulnerable with one another. I'm going to ask each of you to examine your foundations. Examine the foundations of your thought life. What is your thinking really built upon? Is every thought you have really held captive to Jesus Christ? How about the foundations of your physical life? Are you at least working toward treating your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit? How about your financial life? Is the foundation of the way that you earn and spend and invest and give money rooted and grounded in biblical building codes? I'm going to assume that since it's Sunday morning and you're in a sanctuary that your faith life at least has the outward appearance of doing those things. I'm way less concerned about the outward appearance than the inward reality. You need to check on your faith foundation. And you need to judge it against the biblical building codes revealed in Scripture and see whether or not, according to God, that foundation will hold in a storm. It is the storms of life that expose our foundations. You know, you can only see what a house is built, built on when the foundation is being laid or when the foundation has been laid waste. Those are pretty much the two times you get to see the foundation. So most of us don't think very often about our foundations. But our foundations are revealed in storms. 
And so, for those of you who are experiencing storms now, and for the rest of us for whom the storms are just yet on the horizon, now's a good time to strengthen the foundation in expectation that it's going to be revealed when the storm passes us. How we respond to death, how we respond to disappointment, how we respond to stresses and distresses of every kind, reveal what our lives and what our faith are really built upon. You can say, all of us can say, that our lives are built upon a solid rock, that our lives are built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. When the storms come, when the rains fall, when somebody we love dearly dies, when we lose our job, when our child fails and others pass beyond them, when the diagnosis is difficult to bear, when the rug gets ripped out from under us in whatever way it does, then we get to find out whether or not what we said about our foundation was true. I have good news. I have good news for people who, after you examine your foundation, you find that, you know what, it's not where it should be, or it's not as firm as you hoped it might be, or you found some cracks and some faults in it. The community of faith, the church, the people of Providence and beyond are here to help you strengthen that foundation, to fill in those gaps, to fix those cracks in anticipation of the coming storms. Jesus says in today's text, he starts off each part by saying, you know, there was somebody who heard this word of mine, but did not heed it. There is someone who heard this word of mine and did it, heeded it. Jesus says nothing new in today's text. Did you know that? In Ezekiel 33, the exact same prediction is given to those who are hearers of the word only and not doers of it, and to those who are both hearers and doers of the word. Jesus sets it up as a good news story that you can build your house on the solid rock of and the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and your Life will withstand the coming storm. Unfortunately, in Ezekiel 33, Jesus is not a character yet in the story. And so all that is predicted for those who are hearers and not doers of the word is the damnation that after the storm passes, they'll all go, you know what? He was right. Listen to this. Ezekiel 33, verses 30 to 33. As for you... You talk together by the walls and the doors of your houses. You say to each other, come, hear the message that has come from the Lord. And so my people, they come to you as they usually do. They sit down before you. They listen to your words, but they don't put any of them into practice. With their mouths, they express devotion, but their hearts are set on their own gain. Indeed, to them... You are like nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice, one who plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, 
but they do not put them into practice. So when all this comes to pass, that was the when all this comes to pass is the devastating prediction of chaos. When all this comes to pass and the Lord says it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Jesus says the same thing that Ezekiel said. You cannot just hear these words of mine as if they are beautiful music to your ears, as if I am just a beautiful uh, person with nice words. You must do them. You must act upon them. How today are you going to leave this sanctuary and act upon the words of Christ? That your life must be built on the firm foundation of who he is. Otherwise, it will not withstand the storms that are coming. Last summer was a very active storm season. Would you agree? Very active hurricane season. Now, not everyone took the same precautions, but everyone made some preparations. We kept our gas tanks topped off. We kept our important papers in a watertight file box somewhere near the door. We kept an ample supply of fresh water. We made sure that our batteries were new or fully charged. We had little little stockpiles of non-perishable food, and we made sure there was an extra can opener nearby that didn't require electric power. On a few occasions, we made hotel reservations, or we called friends as far inland as we thought we might make it. We didn't know if any of those storms would actually make landfall here. And thankfully, none of them did. But we were all prepared to go if the call came. We will pray for that same deliverance during this hurricane season, but we will prepare as if we might take a direct hit. I don't know if the storm that is headed your way in your life will just strike a glancing blow or if you will find yourself in its dead aim. And so let me say to you today and encourage you today to check your foundation. The Lord has given us fair warning. Let us not only be hearers of his word, but doers as well. Build your life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, for all other ground is sinking sand. Amen. The Bible, like life, is full of storms. Storms fascinate us. Storms frighten us. Storms also tend to give us a perspective on the things in life that really matter. During these weeks of hurricane season, we are exploring together some of the storied storms of the Bible. We're seeking to learn from them about God's presence in the midst of life's trying times, and we're seeking to understand maybe some of the ways that we can prepare our lives for the inevitable storms which lie ahead. Today, we remember the first great storm recorded in all of history, the flood. Through it, God certainly punished 
the sin of humankind. But through it, God also preserved for himself a remnant. In order you would hear God to restore God and renew, announcing different parts of the goodness of creation of his creation as good. Please pray with me. He would call something forth into being, and then he would look at it and he would say, Hey, holy God, may the you know what? Words of my mouth. It's really good. And the meditation of our hearts. It is it's exactly be acceptable what I had in your mind. Sight, you who are our strength. I'm really good at this. And our Redeemer. And the things that I make. Amen. Look at them. They are really good. If you were yesterday to read the first was a good chapter day, would you agree? Of the first book of the Bible yesterday, it was a good, over the day and over and over. We were again. We consider the beauty of the created order in which we are privileged to live. We smile a lot. Yesterday, I had the privilege of being on the beach with my niece and my nephew, who are two and one. And it was wonderful to see their interest in something as simple as a broken leaf stuck halfway in the sand because what might be beneath there? Or their fascination at those little bubbles, you know, that come up where the wave comes up and then it recedes and then there's that little place where a little little puff of air comes out. Somebody's under there, right, trying to breathe. Well, where are they? We dug, we dug, we never ran across one of those little things that was breathing through those vent holes. I don't know how far down they must be, but that fascinates me. The dolphin were only about 10 yards from the edge of the water. Now, I have to admit to you, I'm not sure I've ever seen a dolphin quite that close up, and they are impressive. They are much larger than I had in my mind. He would flap his tail, and I thought he was beating the fish into submission before he was eating them. I don't know. But it was quite a show. And then there were starfish littered along the beach. Now, these are things that you have seen every day. But for Mia and Larry, it was a first. And it was so exciting to turn the starfish over and see that it was still very much alive and to put it close enough to the water where it's amazing how quickly they move. All five, I mean, it's not five legs, right? It's like a thousand legs under there, but it looks like five from the top. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And how fascinated they were with just the tiniest little seashell. Waves lapped up, the tide came in, gulls and pelicans dove into the water, the breeze blew, the sun shone, it was good. I'll be the first to admit to you, there are some parts of the created order that I would not pronounce good. Mosquitoes, cockroaches, snakes, I don't even care that there are some that you think are good. Just snakes in general, that whole category, I could probably, I feel like, live without. I'd probably put spiders in that list as well. But some of you love those things. God loves all those things. And he has pronounced them good. Without exception, God looks upon creation and says, 
it is good. But God's crowning achievement in all of creation, better to God than seahorses or shooting stars, better than whales and elephants, better than volcanoes and eagles and puppy dogs and parakeets, better than mountains and valleys and springs in the deep of the earth, better than all of those to God, one part of creation was pronounced very good. You and me. Humankind. Creation may make us smile, but humanity brings a smile to the face of God. God created us in his image. And then, by great grace and with great hope and profound love, God blessed us with the privilege of serving as stewards over the rest of his created order. And then he set us free to do it. We are not puppets controlled by God. We are made in the image of God to be in relationship with him. And yes, he would love to control things through us, but only through those who would submit to him. And it didn't take very long for the hearts of everyone on the whole earth, to be set toward their own agenda. Unfortunately, by the time we reach the sixth chapter of Genesis, that's really not very long. Chapter one, it is good, it is good, it is good. Oh, it is very good. Chapter six, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. God saw that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had ever made man. God's heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe them out. I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. No more horrible condemnation has ever been levied. No more piercing a verdict ever pronounced. The Lord our God, the God of our creation, our Father, the very lover of our souls, was so grieved by human sinfulness, by the wickedness that we had woven into our lives. God was so heartbroken by the way that we perverted his goodness, that he was actually sorry that he had made us. That is some bad news. In the days of Noah, the text tells us that every inclination of the hearts and minds of human beings was continually evil all the time. For those of you who believe in total depravity, this is actually total, total depravity. Not only was every part of human life touched by sin, but every part of human life was totally sinful. Evil didn't just lap up on their lives. Evil had become their way of life. Things must have been pretty bad, would you agree? Think for a moment about what life would be like if evil were in the hearts and minds of every person upon the earth continually all the time. Things must have been pretty bad. I wonder how our present generation would compare to things in the days of Noah. 
by God's judgment, how often are the hearts and minds of human beings now set on evil all the time? The problem was that people had rejected God. They had completely abandoned any relationship with God whatsoever. Now, you and I readily acknowledge the ways in which Jesus was rejected when he lived upon the earth. We, we know about the rejection that Jesus suffered. We know how his disciples abandoned him in what we perceive to be his hour of need. We acknowledge the rejection, the denial, the abandonment that Christ suffered. What I don't think we often acknowledge is that that's the rejection and abandonment by human beings that God has been suffering since the very first generation. Generation after generation after generation, human beings have been rejecting and abandoning God. And it's real rejection. I don't know how many of you have ever really been rejected by someone that you really loved. But rejection is painful. Rejection is heartbreaking. Rejection has a tendency to sour our hope. God responded to the rejection of humankind with grief. The scripture says that God was deeply grieved because the people whom he had created, the people who he loved, the people whom he had brought forth out of nothingness, the people who he had created to be in a relationship with him, had rejected him. Now, things had gotten so bad in the days of Noah that God was willing to take the most radical of steps to clean things up. Now, you and I do not think about a flood as being a means of cleaning something up, do we? We think about a flood as creating mud and filth and bringing things that should be outside of our lives, rushing inside to the midst of our lives and to the things that we possess and sometimes washing away the things we love. But you see, that's what God had to do. He had to wash away the things that humanity had fallen in love with in order that he might restore in their hearts the first love, the love they were created to have. It's a pretty brutal story. For those of us who would like to say after a horrible storm somewhere in the world where some catastrophic loss of property and life takes place, that, well, God wasn't in that. God doesn't do those things. If we have a biblical faith, we can't say that. If we have a biblical faith, we have to acknowledge that God is in control and God does sometimes send forth what we consider to be catastrophic storms in order that people might be reminded, reawakened, come to an acknowledgement that they do not have it all together, but that even when our lives are in chaos, God can still hold us together. You're thinking to yourselves, that's really not the gospel I like to hear. I don't really like to think about God that way. When we begin to take steps away from what the Bible says about God, God's self-revelation, what God says about himself in Scripture, then we begin conceiving a God for ourselves. 
When we start saying, well, I don't really like that story, so I'm going to ignore it. I'd rather, Carmen, that you be focusing on the end of that story or focusing on Noah and the preservation of life. Focus on the animals. Did they really go on two by two or seven by seven? What is that about clean and unclean? And how did Noah know? Let's not get all caught up in how much pitch was wiped onto the inside and outside of the ark. Let's get our hearts and minds around the fact that in all creation, God could only find one faithful father. In all the earth, God could only find one faithful man. Think about all the people that live upon the earth and how heartbroken God must have been that all but one had rejected him. But God found Noah to be faithful. Now, the faithfulness of Noah is determined by one thing. He walked with God. I'm going to tell you, in the days of Noah, Noah was the odd man out. If everybody else in his family, so you're talking about his parents, his brothers and sisters, his clan of folks, everybody in his neighborhood, everybody that he dealt with on a daily basis, everyone in his nation, Everyone everywhere except for him was walking away from God. Noah walked with God. How odd do you think that made him? Some of us think to ourselves, well, that would set me apart from the crowd. I'd be so special. It set Noah apart from the only crowd there was. Because of the faithfulness of Noah, because we assume of his spiritual leadership in his own household, His wife was also found to be faithful, and his three sons, and their three wives. I want you to consider that for a moment. Those of you who are raising children, consider that Noah and his wife were able to raise three boys in a completely depraved culture, in a culture where Not even the institutions around them, certainly not whatever their media of the day was. Nobody was supporting the way that they thought about God or morality or right choices. Nobody supported them in those things. They didn't have a parenting class. They were the only parents that were seeking to raise their children to know and love and serve the Lord. You think that made them a little odd in their community? Well, God was about to ask them to get even weirder. In the middle of the desert, hundreds of miles from the closest ocean, years before the first clouds formed on the horizon, long before meteorologists were getting nervous about the fact that it appeared to them with wringing hands that the oceans were rising. Long before anyone thought that it was odd that it was raining in the desert. Long, long, long before then, God said to Noah, build me an ark. God gave Noah very specific instructions about how that ark was to be constructed. I feel compelled to review those numbers with you. Because the magnitude of the ark is pretty staggering. For those of you who own boats, or for those of you who from time to time take cruises, 
I want you, the next time you go on a cruise, to think about the size of this ship that God asked Noah to construct. Noah, one guy, not a shipbuilder, in the middle of the desert. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. It should be made entirely of cypress wood. Anybody think that's a lot of cypress? It should be covered with pitch on the inside and out. It should have three interior decks, but only one door. No windows. It should have 18-inch vents all the way around the top, just beneath the roof. Now, I don't know how many resources it took Noah to get this project together. We do know it took Noah a really long time. Think about the human time required. Think about the money or the financial resources required to build an ark in the middle of the desert. Now, in addition to building the ark, what else did Noah have to do? Oh, come on, you know the story. He had to get those animals together. Some of you have been on safaris. I want you to imagine a global safari in which two of everything needs to be collected, and it needs to be brought home. For those of you who have ever told a child, no, no, we don't take in stray animals. See, you wouldn't have done well with this instruction. I'm assuming that Noah's wife and his boys and their daughters were all in on this, and maybe they sort of had a divide-and-conquer system to things. All right, Ham, you go out there and you collect all of the things that creep and crawl, and Jephthah, you go out there and you collect two of every bird, and I don't know, you're going to have to build an aviary. Was that in the instructions? No, but it seems sensical, because if we gather them, where are we going to keep them until it's time for them to get on board? Or maybe, as we sort of play it out in our minds, God sort of announced to all the animals in some voice, when it started to rain, head for the ark. Here's the problem. They were all in the ark before it started to rain. God told Noah, it's going to start raining. Get on board and seal the door shut. I'm actually happy for Noah and his family for how loud it must have been in the ark. Because I cannot imagine when the water started to rise, how many people fled in hope to an ark that was not built for them. All humanity, save for the eight people on the ark, every other human being upon the earth died. We think of our, we think to ourselves, well, this whole thing only took 40 days and 40 nights. Oh, contraire. Scripture says this. The rain started to fall on the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year. It stopped raining 40 days and 40 nights later. But the floodwaters didn't even begin to recede until five months after that, a full 150 days. 20 feet of water covered even the highest mountains of the earth. Genesis 7.23 says, During that time, every living thing upon the earth perished. Only Noah was left and those who were with him upon the ark. And God remembered Noah, and God began to blow a breeze across those flood waters 
all around the earth. And God opened what scripture describes as the drains in the bottom of the ocean so that the water would recede. It's a pretty amazing idea, isn't it? Yeah, we haven't found those yet. And on the first day of the 10th month, remember this all started on the 17th day of the second month, those of you who are calendar keepers, on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains began to appear. And on the 27th day of the second month of Noah's 601st year, that's right, a full year and 10 days later, the earth was completely dry. And God said to Noah, come out of the ark and all of those with you. And God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said, repopulate the earth. He gave them the same instruction that he had given to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Are we the children of Adam and Eve? Certainly. But even more so, we are the children of Noah. The remnant that God preserved is the only remnant whose generations proceed into history. God established a covenant with Noah and with his family and through them with every generation that would ever follow. You know the, the sign of the covenant, right? What is the sign of the covenant? Covenant of Noah. What does God set in the, in the sky after a storm? A rainbow? Here's the thing. We tend to think about the rainbow, which we're so glad comes out, right? It's a beautiful thing to, to see. We tend to think of the rainbow as our reminder that God will never again destroy the earth with a flood. Is that the way you think of the rainbow? Here's what scripture actually says about the rainbow. Is it the sign of the covenant? Yes. But it is not set in the sky to remind us of God's promise never to destroy the earth with a flood. God sets the rainbow in the sky to remind himself of the promise that he has made to never pour out his wrath in that way again. Listen, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant that will be for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. For whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember, says the Lord, the everlasting covenant between me and all living creatures of every kind upon the earth. The rainbow is a profound sign of a profound promise, a covenant that reaches from the days of Noah even to today, and from now until the end of time, that God will never again cover this beautiful creation with water, flooding life. But the rainbow is a reminder to God as much as it is a reminder to us. You and I should be reminded when we see the rainbow that God hates sin and that there was a time that in order to get rid of sin, God was willing to get rid of human beings. I am profoundly grateful that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to take upon himself 
the punishment that was due to us all. That no longer would God's wrath flow forth in a flood upon the earth, but that God's wrath poured forth upon Christ, who alone died, one for many. The wrath that was upon him should have been the flood that was upon us all. As much as we are the sons and daughters of Adam, we are more so the sons and daughters of Noah, but even more so, we are the brothers and sisters of Christ. Because of his sacrifice on our behalf, an ark is no longer needed. The storm is brewing on the horizon, and we, were, we are without excuse to deny it. We know that God's wrath is coming again. We know that it's coming in final form. For those of you who say to yourselves, well, I don't know, I don't know anything about that. Let me tell you that you need to read the words of Jesus Christ that are recorded in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't have time to read the whole New Testament, just read Jesus' words in the Gospels. He gives us perfect prediction, forecasting, forewarning of what is in store in the future. And it is a storm of epic proportions. Or read the book of Revelation. There is a storm on the horizon. I do not know precisely the time. Neither does Jesus. He said that is only for the Father to know. Here's what I do know. The evacuation plan has been published. We know the name of the one who will provide for us the lifeboat to eternity. You get to choose during the next worldwide catastrophic storm. Will it be a flood? No. Does scripture tell us what it will be? Yes. You get to choose this time whether or not to walk with God, the way of salvation in Jesus Christ, and get on board with him or suffer the annihilation that will come. The storm of Noah should be received as a huge storm warning for all of us. That we want to be found by God, to be faithful. That when he surveys the earth, if even he sees evil in the hearts of many, he would see Christ in the hearts of some. That when his view ranges across the earth, as the psalmist says, God would see us and say, they walk with me. Come what may, they will be saved. That is the remnant that will repopulate the new heaven on the new earth where we will be privileged to walk with God forever. The storm warnings have been raised. The storm flags are flying. The evacuation plan is in place. Now's the time. Even as odd as it may make us by comparison to those around us, now is the time to walk with God and him alone. Let us pray. Holy God, we stand this day upon your promises. We stand this day upon the promise that you made to Noah, and we stand this day on the promise that you have made to us in Jesus Christ, that whoever 
would call on the name of the Lord, would be saved. Open our hearts and minds, Lord God, to the ways in which we have rejected and abandoned you. And then invite us, Lord God, to walk the way of salvation with Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. In his name we ask it. Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The Bible, like life, is full of storms. Storms that at once both frighten and fascinate us. Storms that give us a perspective on what really matters in life. In these weeks of hurricane season, we are exploring some of the storied storms of the Bible, seeking to learn from them about God's presence in the midst of those storms, and also seeking to live lives that are more ready or more adequately prepared for the storms which we acknowledge will inevitably be in our future. Today, we acknowledge God's sovereignty over even the wind and the waves, And maybe more importantly, we are going to acknowledge that sometimes he calms the storms, but other times he calms his child. The disciples were with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. They were crossing from one side to the other. Jesus was asleep on the boat. A storm suddenly emerged from out of nowhere. Now, you're thinking to yourselves, we've heard this text preached on earlier this year. When Dr. Eddington revealed to us that, indeed, this was a tsunami, a storm that erupted from the depths of the sea, a storm without warning, a storm that brought forth huge waves that surely would have overwhelmed that little boat. You and I know the story. They woke Jesus. They were terrified. They said, Lord, don't you care that we're drowning? And Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves, and he said, peace. Be still. It's not the first time in Scripture that God stilled a storm. You see, the psalmist bears witness to the fact that those men who go down to the sea in ships for all sorts of reasons, more often for fishing than for pleasure, more often for financial uh, reasons than maybe you and I would alight out on a lovely evening to watch the dolphins or the moon rise over harbor town. These men went out into the sea in ships in order to bring home the means by which they would support their families. These were fishermen, both the ones of whom the psalmist tells, and yes, the ones who were in the boat with Jesus on that day. These were men who knew the dangers of the sea. The difference between those of whom the psalmist speaks and the disciples in the boat with Jesus is that when the storm arises, the men in the days of the psalmist knew the Lord was with them, even in the midst of it. Yes, like the disciples, they cried out to the Lord, but not really so much for fear of their lives as in faith, in the faithfulness of God. To hear their cry. The disciples find themselves wondering, how could Jesus sleep at a time like this? Doesn't he know that we're going down with the ship? 
Doesn't he know what we're going through? Doesn't he know the whelming waves that are pouring in upon my life? Does God not care what I'm experiencing? Does God not care that I am drowning here? Disciples like you and I become so fixated on the here and now, so fixated on the wind and the waves, so fixated on the current crisis, the urgent, the immediate, the momentary affliction, that they are blind to the reality of who they are with and who is with them. Who is with them in the boat? Who? Jesus. Who then are they with in the boat? Yeah, this is one of those times where it is the same answer twice. Jesus is with them in the boat, but more importantly, they are with Jesus in the boat. Jesus, you see, who sees through the storm all the way to the other side. Jesus who knows God's intended plan for his life. Jesus who knows this is not the time he's going down. Jesus who knows God's purpose and God's plan. And Jesus who knows more than anyone else the faithfulness of God. You and I see the storm that we're in. Jesus sees through the storm all the way to the other side. He knew where his life was headed, and he knew that those who were on board with him would also be seen through. Jesus doesn't just promise a light at the end of the tunnel. He is the light. Jesus doesn't just promise a way through the valley. He is the way. And he is the good shepherd who walks the way with us. Jesus doesn't just promise a counselor in the midst of our perplexity. He sends his own Holy Spirit to be our constant companion and our guide. Jesus doesn't just promise to be there waiting for us in the end. He promises to be the one who takes us there to the end. And what I now see as a foreshadowing of Jesus' calming of the storm upon the Sea of Galilee The psalmist tells us that in the midst of a great storm, they cried out to the Lord, and he brought them out from their distress. He made the storm still. He spoke to the wind and the waves, and they were hushed with a whisper. And then we are reminded by the psalmist to praise God for his steadfast love. People who have just been through a storm are called to praise God for his steadfast love. You and I sing, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. That's not a song that we sing only in times that are good and glorious and great. That is a song that we sing in the depths of despair. You see, a faith that is only a faith on a bright, sunshiny day on calm seas is, well, frankly, not much faith. So says Jesus to his disciples. But a singing faith that declares that God is great and faithful even in the midst of the whelming flood, that, my friends, is a faith worth having. God is not fickle. God is faithful. His mercies are new every morning. I love that. I love that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and yet his mercies are new every morning. Isn't that fantastic? God, who never changes, is constantly offering to change my life, to change my reality, or to change how I live in the midst 
of the reality that I have. Yesterday I was walking on the beach and I found myself smiling inexplicably. This happens from time to time. I look, I think, probably fairly foolish doing it. One of those dumb, broad smiles. Like, it suddenly occurs to you that you're, you're walking by yourself. There's a lot of people out there, but you're really by yourself. And you have this stupid grin on your face. And you think to yourself, I, I, stop. I hope nobody saw that. I began to wonder why. Why was I smiling? What came to me was a sense of the simple joy that I experience as the waves just lap up along the edge of my life. Just as you walk and the waves just, you know, right there at the edge of the beach, lap up on your feet. And I don't know, it's a simple pleasure. But what occurred to me was that at that same time, that same ocean was lapping up on the edge of people's lives in the Netherlands and in Europe and in Africa and in South America and in Jamaica and Cuba and the Bahamas and the Keys. And I began to think of all the people who I know and love who live along the eastern seaboard. And that same ocean was lapping up at that same moment in time on their lives, touching all of us. And then I remembered that this ocean really does spill into all other oceans and surely then all the oceans of the earth are one, and that in that, the ocean touches everyone, laps up on everybody's life. This pervasive, powerful, predictable force, predictable, because you can actually get on the computer and find out when low tide will be a thousand years from now on Hilton Head Island. It's that predictable, and yet you and I both know the ocean is horribly unpredictable. A force that offers the simple joy of collecting seashells in one moment and the devastation of all that we have worked to build in the next. A force that enables us to traverse the globe, but in the next moment holds the possibility of hurricanes and typhoons and tidal waves and tsunamis and cyclones and tempests. She is known to us in many ways, and yet her depths remain unsearchable to us. I think that's what I was smiling about. I think that I was smiling by the simple and yet profound reality that this ocean, which touches everyone and changes everyone that it touches, that is at once known and unsearchable, that is at once everywhere, and yet you can ignore it, even at this close a range. And how much that reveals to me or reminds me of what God has revealed about himself. God is at once everywhere predictably present. God does touch every human life, the world around, and anyone that God touches cannot remain unchanged. And God is at once perfectly predictable in his steadfast love and in his faithfulness, and yet there is an unpredictability. There is an awesome power. There is a force to be reckoned with in the holiness of God. He is at once fully revealed and yet completely unsearchable. And I caught myself smiling. Jesus never, this is going to sound terrible. I'm going to say it anyway. Jesus never promised the disciples a rose garden. But he did demonstrate to them the power of a crown of thorns. Jesus promised his disciples certainly real and everlasting life. He promised them lives that would have meaning beyond this world even as he promised them that in this world they would be persecuted and maligned. He promised them a purpose that would persist into eternity. 
even as he promised them that their lives would be marked by ridicule and humiliation. Jesus promised his disciples riches and greatness in heaven beyond their imaginations, even as he promised them poverty and mediocrity upon the earth. He promised them a community of faith that would become their family, even as he promised them that their own families would be divided, they would be disowned, certainly disavowed. He promised them that even though everyone else in the world might forsake and abandon them, he would never leave them. He promised them that he would be with them always, even to the end of the age. They knew, because Jesus told them over and over and over again, that he was going to die, and that on the third day he would rise again. And then he promised them he would not leave them abandoned or orphaned, that he would send them the Holy Spirit to be with them always and everywhere. Jesus tells the disciples who would follow him into the world that they will never do so alone, that he would be with them. In the midst of storms, yes, Jesus never promised peace. He promised the peace that passes understanding to those who would receive him. The question is not whether Jesus is with us. He says he is. The question is whether or not we're with Jesus. When the waters are rising in your life, who's with you that you can trust? When your own resources come to an end, do you have one with you whose resources never fail? When you're scared out of your mind and you trust the one you're with to be your light and your help and your salvation? When your hopes are dashed and your dreams diminish and you trust the one you're with? The reality is that life is filled with storms. Storms that we cannot navigate nor hope to survive on our own. We need a life saver, a life preserver. We need the one who is the way and the truth and the life, the savior of all. Because the truth of the matter is that sometimes he calms the storm, but more often he calms his child in the midst of it. In November of 1982, when my cousin Angie and I were both 14 years old, she was diagnosed with lymphoma. My aunt and uncle sought the best medical help that was available, but her battle only lasted six months. And in June of 1983, a few days before my 15th birthday, Angie died. I had never experienced the death of someone my own age. I'd never seen my family grieve so deeply. I'd also never before heard my mother and father so clearly articulate their faith. I trusted them. I trusted their faith. I trusted the ones I was with. Eight months later, in February of 1984, Carol Kennedy, who was a wonderfully vibrant, gifted, articulate 17-year-old, died in a car accident. Carol had early admittance to Princeton. She was a senior at my high school. I was a sophomore. But more importantly to me, she was the pitcher of our all-state fast-pitch softball team. And I was her catcher and I had been for seven years. My dad was one of our coaches. At one of the services following Carol's death, I heard my father stand in front of a sanctuary full of student athletes and talk about his faith in God's promises and his faith in God's faithfulness. I trusted my dad. I trusted his faith. I was learning to trust the one he was with. It was only three months later that my 40-year-old father died of a heart attack. My boat had been taking on water for several months at that point. And now I was certain I was going under. But God sent faithful men and women into my life to buoy me 
God did not remove the storms of my life. God did not save all of the people that I love from harm. But God has always been faithful. He saw me through the storms, and he saw through the storms, and all I could see was the wind and the waves. And at the right time, when I was ready to hear it, God sent someone into my life who told me that all I had to do was ask God for peace, and he would give it to me. And I asked, and God granted me the peace which passes all understanding. And I learned for the first time in my life what it means for God to calm his child, even in the midst of a whelming flood. That's the word of hope that I have to offer to each one of us today. Some of you are bailing like mad in your lives, lives that are being crashed against by waves of frustration and fear and loneliness and fatigue and depression and disease and despair, and I know it. What I have to offer you this day is the peace which passes all understanding, which is offered to you in Jesus Christ, who alone is the Prince of Peace. You can trust him. He will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. During the weeks of this hurricane season, we are exploring the storied storms of the Bible. We do so in order to gain a biblical sense of what we might do in the midst of the storms of life and how God is present in the midst of them. We also do it as a way of avoiding the storms that might be lying ahead that are avoidable should we live our lives according to God's will. Today, we meet the prophet Jonah. Jonah's storm-tossed life, I hope, will serve as a wake-up call for us who live in a continual need to repent and to bring our lives into alignment with God's will. Please pray with me. Holy God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and right there, many of us flip the switch in our brain and say, well, this story doesn't have anything to do with me. God's never talked to me. God's never called me up and said, hey, I've got a particular assignment for you. This is your purpose and calling in life. You're wrong about that, you know. You and I can flee from God's will. We can turn our backs to God's word, but we can't deny that it has come. We can't deny that God's word and God's demonstrated will are available to us, that we know full well what God wants us to do, and we know full well the things God does not want us to do. There is no denying that the word of the Lord has come to each one of us. The word of the Lord has come to us through the prophets of old, through the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, and yes, in the person of Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord has come to you. The word of the Lord has come to me. You and I can decide not to follow it, but we cannot deny it. And what did Jonah do when the word of the Lord came to him? Well, Jonah ran away from the Lord. He headed in a different direction. He headed for Tarshish instead of for Nineveh. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship that was headed to the place he wanted to go, away from the place that God wanted him to go, and he paid his fare and he got on board. He did this to flee from the Lord. Apparently, when he purchased passage 
He told them, I'm getting on board with you because you're going in the opposite direction that God wants me to go, and I'm, I don't intend to do what he wants me to do. How do we know that? Because later in the story, it's revealed that they already know why Jonah's on board. Apparently, Jonah and the pagan sailors on the ship were unfamiliar with Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. There's nowhere we can go upon the earth. There's nowhere we can go in the universe to escape God's demonstrated will for our lives. What God has spoken in his word and through his word made flesh is God's will for us. We can try to run away from it. We can try to hide from it. There's nowhere you can go to flee from God. This part of Jonah's story is evidence that you can run, but you cannot hide. The Lord, you see, sent forth what Scripture describes as a great storm. A great storm. So great was this storm that these probably very experienced sailors, these merchants of the sea, were willing to throw their cargo overboard in order to lighten their ship. It's important for you and I to recognize that just like Jonah, our sin has real and often devastating consequences. What we do matters to God. And what we do, because it matters to God, matters in the lives of others. There are real consequences for sin. You can turn your back on God. We can run away. We can chart our own course. We can go in our own direction. But there are very real and often very devastating consequences to sin. If you do things that are contrary to God's demonstrated will, things that you know are not all right with God, then God is going to allow the negative consequences of those sins to swamp your life. There's your storm warning for today. If you choose to go in a direction in your life that you know is contrary to the demonstrated will of God for you, you are actually calling forth a storm. You are actually compelling the consequences of sin to pour in on your life. Who in their right mind would invite that? Here's the bad news that follows the bad news. Those decisions have consequences not only for the person who commits the sin, but consequences for everyone who happens to be around them. It wasn't just Jonah that was caught in the storm that was sent forth as a consequence for his sin. It was everybody who was around him in his life at the time. Which is to say that when you choose in your life to go in a direction that you know is contrary to God's demonstrated will, then not only will your life be disrupted by the consequences of your sin, but you're going to take down the people around you. You're going to take the people who are closest to you into the consequences of your sin as well. I have a whole sheaf of examples here, but I sense that you get the point. I would love to be able to tell you that God does not care what you do. But God clearly does care what we do. God cares because God has a purpose and a passion for our lives. He has a desire that we should follow his will. Because he's an egomaniac? No. Because he's loving and he's caring and he knows what's best for us. And he knows the future that he has for us. A future that is filled with hope. A future that's filled with purpose and promise. I'm going to just use kids and parents as an example. God has clearly said in his word more than once, which is why I picked this one, that you and I are to honor our father and our mother. We're to honor the decisions that they make. 
We are to follow their guidance. We are to seek their counsel. We are even to show appreciation for the sacrifices that they make on our behalf. If you choose not to respect your parents, if you make the conscious choice not to follow their guidance, if you make the decision in your life as a son or a daughter to disregard the sacrifices that your parents have made and are making even now for the privileged life that you are living, then you are setting yourself up for a storm. You're actually calling it forth. You're actually saying to God, bring it on. Whatever you got, I can handle. Let me tell you, that hands on the hip attitude toward God is going to get you nowhere. You might think that it works with your parents and you might think that it works in this world, but it doesn't work with the one who is eternal. All right. In addition to there being temporal consequences for our sin, there are very real, real spiritual consequences as well. Scripture says that the wages of sin is death. Jonah was about to find that out. All the sailors were afraid. Each one cried out to his own God. This is in the middle of the raging storm. Each one of those sailors cried out to their own God. Scripture is telling us there that this is a boatload of pagans. Okay? But this is a boatload of pagans that knew that their lives had theological meaning. That even their false gods cared about what was going on on the surface of life. They understood their lives theologically. You and I often fail, Jonah certain fail, certainly failed, to understand his life theologically. This was not just a boat ride. This was not just a day at church. This is not just a vacation on Hilton Head. There is something that God is doing in your life right now. And the events of this day, the choices you make this day, are not just physical. They have spiritual consequences. Your temporal decisions have eternal consequences as well. What we do matters to God because we matter to God. What was happening on that boat, on that storm-tossed sea on that day, was not just a storm. It has theological meaning, doesn't it? We know that because it's in the Bible, right? You and I are writing the chapters and verses of God's story with humanity right now. What tale, what sign will your life be to future generations? Jonah failed to understand that what was happening was theological, which is a bit of a mystery to me because he was the one who knew why he was on the boat. But he was below decks, sound asleep. The captain went down and woke him up and said, you need to get busy. You need to get busy praying to your God. Here is a missed opportunity if you've ever seen one. Scripture does not go on to say that Jonah appealed to God, that God would be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love things that Jonah surely knew he could ask for. After all, he was fleeing the will of a God who wanted to show his mercy to an entire city by calling them to repentance. God clearly wanted to show mercy in the days of Jonah. Jonah was fleeing from a God who he knew to be merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And in the midst of a raging storm that was not only going to cost him his life, but cost the lives of everybody else on the boat, Jonah, hands on hips, was unwilling to repent, unwilling to call upon God to be merciful. 
unwilling to ask God to calm the storm. Oftentimes we point to Jonah and we say his sin was disregard for God's call in his life. At this point, Jonah's sin is disregard for everybody else. Jonah did not call upon the Lord. At that point, the sailors, because you know they're trying to solve the problem, right? They've tried to solve it by all of them calling on their own gods and that didn't work. And so now they're going to cast lots and they're going to find out who on board is responsible for this calamity. And by the casting of lots, they discover that it's Jonah. So they asked him, who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us? They want to know the name of Jonah's God. They discern that by asking lots of questions. What do you do? Where are you from? What is your country? From what people are you? I want you to think about your answers to those questions. And if out of that, you would come up with an answer that actually confessed your faith. Think really quickly. The answer to the question of what do you do? Say it to yourself. The answer to the question, where do you come from? The answer to the question, what is your country? The answer to the question, from what people are you? For you and I, none of those questions necessarily betray who our God is. For Jonah, his people, his place of origin, his occupation as a prophet, betray who his God is. Jonah's answer to the question is quite shocking. I am a Hebrew. He should have stopped there because he goes on then to say something that I'm going to judge to be false. I worship the Lord. Really? Really? You see, worship that is authentic is worship that is aligned with God's will, that acknowledges that God is not only the God of the heaven who made the sea and the land, but that God is the God of this moment of my life. That God is the one who has a compelling will for my life. That God is the one I'm running away from. God is the one even now seeking to bring me home. Again, it is the sailors who Jonah is with who seem to get it before Jonah does. And they say, what have you done to this God? And what can we now do to get this God to stop bringing this storm? Here again, Jonah missed an opportunity. I got all kinds of ideas that Jonah could have used here. Jonah could have repented. Jonah could have said, you know what? I have good news for you. The God of everything, the God who made the heavens and the earth, is also a God who is merciful, who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love. He is a God who is revealed. He is a God who even has revealed that he wants to show mercy to the Ninevites. He is a God of grace. He is a God of greatness. He is a God who wants to have a relationship with you. And he's actually called my people to be a light to the nations. And that's probably why I'm on board with you today. I thought it was my own will that got me here trying to run away from God. But maybe I'm here to be a light to the nations, to make good on God's deal to all your people. So that when you're asked where you're from and who your God is, you can say, our God is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Wasn't that a great evangelical opportunity for Jonah? He missed it. Short of that. Because, you know, some of us are a little scared to share our faith. I know that. Jonah could have simply said, I've got an idea. Bag Tarshish. Let's head to Nineveh. I'm willing to bet that if they'd set their sails for Nineveh at that point, God would have calmed the storm. But Jonah wasn't ready to repent. He wasn't willing to repent. To save his own life, nor to save the lives of everyone around him. Sin is that powerful, my friends. If you have ever been in a relationship with someone who is addicted to anything, you know how powerful sin is and how the grip of that addiction, how that disease 
leaves them not caring what happens to themselves and leaves them not caring what happens to anybody around them. Jonah's behaving like an addict to sin, unwilling to repent, unwilling to bring the calm that is possible in his own life and in the lives of those around him. Jonah says, throw me overboard. That's his answer to the question of how can we calm this storm? How can we get your God satisfied? How can we get your God to stop railing against you and thus against us? Jonah says, throw me overboard. Now, if you actually read commentaries on this chapter, you're going to discover a fascinating thing. There are people who think this is Jonah making a valiant, self-sacrificial statement. Jonah saying, you know what? Greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Hooey, that is not what Jonah is saying. Jonah is saying, I'm going to get out of this once and for all. Throw me overboard. I can't actually, this is, you know, today we have the tragic uh, thing called suicide by cop. This is the original version. Jonah unwilling to cast himself into the sea compels other people to participate in his sin, asking them to do what they then receive as the unthinkable and throw him overboard. These guys have a better grip on who God is, even though they don't know him, than Jonah, who knows him, ever has. They say, we're not throwing you overboard. And they start rowing for shore. It is a valiant effort. God's trying to get at Jonah. And finally, something that I find pretty amazing and striking in this passage of scripture. They pray to God. The pagan sailors, not Jonah who knows God, not Jonah whom God has spoken to, but a boatload of pagan sailors caught in the midst of a raging storm, not of their own making. They appeal to God. They cried out to the Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing him. For you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. They get it. Jonah doesn't. They seem to know intuitively the difference between guilt and innocence. They seem to have a very clear understanding of who God is and what God's will is for human life. They threw him overboard, as you know. And suddenly the sea grew calm. They feared God. Jonah's sin, Jonah's sinful actions... Even the storm that arose in their lives because of Jonah's sin, God used for good. Don't you find that amazing? We're often prone to say what others meant for evil, God used for good. Well, even Jonah's evil, sinful response to God's demonstrated will, God was able to use for good. How so? He brought a whole boatload of pagan sailors into relationship with himself. All right. Now the beginning of the fish story. God provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Some of you know what Paul Harvey would call the rest of the story. It was in the belly of that whale or that great fish that Jonah finally came to his senses. We often say that it's not until someone is in their darkest hour, it's not until somebody has gone all the way to the bottom that they come to their senses, that they turn and repent. There is no darker place upon the earth than in the belly of the whale at the bottom of the sea. Jonah found himself in his darkest hour. And in that darkness, he appealed to God. Jonah repented. God saved Jonah. You and I tend to think about salvation as being saved from sin and death. And God did save Jonah 
from sin and death. But salvation has a whole other side to it. It's not only salvation from sin and death, it's salvation for whatever it is God wants to do with your life. We tend to call that service. You are saved from sin and death, but you are saved for something as well. It's not just what we escape by coming in relationship, by coming into relationship with God. It's about what we get to do, the privilege of living the abundant life that is offered to us. It might surprise you to learn that God still wanted to use Jonah to reach the people of Nineveh. That is a success story, and you should read the rest of the book of Jonah to get a full grasp of how God used him. But God continued to use Jonah as a sign well beyond his own lifetime. And you're saying, well, yeah, you're preaching on it today, so maybe God's using it as a sign today. Well, I want to point to the words of Jesus, because Jesus lifted Jonah up as a sign. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. He's talking to the people standing right in front of him then. You're asking me for a miraculous sign. No sign is going to be given to you but the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be assigned to this generation. The men of Nineveh will stand up against, the, against you at judgment and condemn you. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But now one greater than Jonah stands before you. The sign of Jonah that Jesus was pointing to was three days in the belly of a whale. Three days and three nights. They thought he was dead. They found that he was alive. And those who believed the sign of Jonah in the days of Jonah repented and turned to God. Jesus stands before the people of his day and I believe makes the appeal to the people of our day. The sign of his resurrection from death, three days not in the belly of a whale, but in a rock-hewn grave, risen not from whatever state of scariness that Jonah lived in for three days in the belly of that whale, but real death. Jesus was dead and buried three days and three nights. And he rose again forevermore. The sign of Jonah is a powerful sign, and it is a sign that calls us to repentance. The sign of Christ, the sign of Jesus, from resurrection to newness of life, is a greater sign still. You probably know right now, if your life or any part of it is headed away from God, you know when you've charted your own course. You know when you've set your own heading. You know when that's contrary to God's word. You know when it's contrary to God's demonstrated will. If that's true of you right now, then it's time to come about. When a ship is headed in the wrong direction or it needs to take a different tack, bringing it around is called coming about. In life, coming about is called repentance. Receive the sign of Jonah as a call to repentance, receive the sign of Jesus as the way of repentance. One way or another, come about. Amen. We are engaged during this hurricane season uh, in a survey of the biblical storm stories seeking to understand from them how God is present in the midst of the storms of our lives and also seeking to prepare ourselves for the storms that inevitably lie ahead. Today, we arrive at the story of a shipwreck. But of course, you're thinking to yourselves, well, I didn't hear that part of the story. Well, my chosen text for today is Acts 21 to 28, 
but I didn't think that reading you seven chapters of the book of Acts would probably be the best use of our time. Although, well, it's probably because you didn't want to stay an hour and a half, right? So I'm going to ask each of you after today's um, worship service, at some point in the coming days, read chapters 21 to 28 of the book of Acts so that you get the entire story um, of today's storm. Let us pray. Holy God, I would ask that you would grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is one of the great storm stories of the Bible. It is the story of Paul's voyage to Rome. He's traveling with 275 companions aboard a large sailing ship. He survives the great storm and a shipwreck at sea. Now, it all starts with a sermon at the temple in Jerusalem, so you know now how dangerous preaching can be, right? The entire saga, which is recorded for us in chapters 21 to 28 of the book of Acts, would make a great movie. It's a classic tale of intrigue. There are lots of well-developed characters. There's a healthy dose of good versus evil. There are several plot twists, raging storms, terror at sea, life-threatening suspense, enough to keep us on the edge of our seat. Did you know the Bible could be so exciting? We join the story actually quite late in its development, chapter 27. At this point, in an attempt to avoid execution by the Jews, Paul has exercised his right as a Roman citizen appealing to be tried before the emperor in Rome. That's how Paul ended up under Roman guard on the ill-fated voyage chronicled in today's text. I want you to imagine for a moment a tin-masted sailing ship. It's a big boat. I want you to imagine that it's anchored, bobbing gently on the Mediterranean Sea. The water is iridescent as the sun dances across the waves. You and I we would smile as the corners of the captain's mouth turned upward and he closed his eyes into a yet unseen breeze. And then, as if on cue, the sails began to gently flap and he got all excited and he turned to the crew and we're setting sail, anchors away. There was a gentle breeze coming up from the south. They thought they had obtained just what they wanted. I think we are often a lot like that. We have in view what's on the surface within the perimeter of what we can see. We only respond to what we're feeling and what is in sight at the moment, failing to heed what lies beyond what we can see and feel. The captain stood on the deck of that ship, self-satisfied, self-confident, self-reliant, with a sense of, I've made it. This wind, this gentle breeze from the south that we've been waiting for, oh, it's up. The winds are with us. Probably in his pagan mind, the gods are with us. Anchors away. I wonder how often in our own lives we have stood on the proverbial deck, taken in what is around us, and in a very self-satisfied voice, begun to think that we have obtained just what we were after. This is the life that I dreamed of. This is precisely what I've always wanted. But you see, it was very late in the season for sailing. The storm warning flags were already aflight in every port along the Mediterranean Sea. Paul himself 
trying to warn them, but the course was set. The heading had been determined, anchors away. It is so hard for us to believe what we cannot immediately see. It's so hard for us to believe that there are storms brewing on the horizon, raging and churning out there. Because right now, life is so good. It's so pleasant. It's all going our way. It's so hard for us to believe that we could allow a friendship to take on qualities that might threaten our marriage. So hard to believe that we could drift from harmless web surfing into dangerous pornography. Certainly, we are not prone to lose sight of the shore line or to lose our bearings amidst the swirling temptations of this generation. Not us. Why not? Why not us? When someone warns us of the dangers ahead, when Scripture warns us of the dangers ahead in our physical, financial, spiritual, emotional, or relational lives, how do we tend to respond? How do we respond when we're warned? Do we trust God? Do we trust God's messengers? Do we take heed of their warnings? Do we take the time to really evaluate our environment to see just how far into the dangerous waters we may have drifted? Or do we puff ourselves up, become self-righteous, confident in our own ability to overcome, accusing others of their own hypocrisy, and blindly continuing on our voyage into a field of icebergs? You remember the voyage of the Titanic. They were warned over and over again of the dangers ahead. They were alerted to the death trap into which they were sailing. But they were arrogant they were deluded into believing that they were impermeable, and that led them into destruction. Our arrogance does the same. So how do you respond to the warnings of others about the direction that your life is headed? How have others responded to the warnings that you have given them about the direction you see their life headed? When you see someone headed toward troubled waters, do you care enough to raise the warning flag? to signal them of the danger ahead, to try to throw up the stop sign. Unfortunately, a lot of us are really busy pointing and whispering and watching from the sidelines as the people whom we are supposed to love, members of our own family of faith, head into destruction. If you see the danger ahead in somebody else's life, it's your responsibility to be a human signpost, to be a light in the darkness, to bear witness to the life that we were intended to live, to direct others to the life abundant and away from a life of destruction. Well, despite Paul's warnings to the captain and his mates, this ship set sail. Paul, you see, was a prisoner at this point in the story. Paul is a captive. He is going to stand trial in Rome. Now, granted, he's been under house arrest for a couple of years, and so he has a very friendly relationship with the um, with the guards that are with him, but they don't listen to him either. Now, the reality is Paul has to go along. He sees the dangers ahead, and yet he has to go along. And the reality of our lives is sometimes we are swept up in the storms that are created by others. There are times in our lives when we are swept along with the current of our family or even our friends. Tragically, children are often the first ones swept up into crisis, not of their own making. Children are the ones who bear the brunt 
of the sins of the father. Scripture says even to the tenth generation. The folly that we create in our own lives has consequences not only for ourselves, but for those who are around us. In your own life, is there somebody who has been swept up in a storm of your making? Have you been swept up in the storm of another's making? Mutual forgiveness might now be in order. In today's story, initially the weather was good. Otherwise, they would have never set sail. The winds were steady, the waves were manageable, but then things turned, turned what Scripture says is the nor'easter rose up, tempestuous. For two solid weeks, neither the sun nor the stars shone. How do you suppose that ships in Paul's day navigated? Come on, if you're asleep, that's your only excuse for not answering the question. Stars, right? So, by 14 days into the storm, how far off course might they have been? Who knows? They've been just blown about by the storm. So even the course of their own choosing, even the destination that they had set for themselves was at this point completely out of sight. They did not know how to even get going in the right direction. 14 days, the sun nor the stars never shone. Despair was upon them. Old, crusty seafarers were sick and tired. Fatigue wore heavily. Our text includes these words, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. All hope of being saved was at last abandoned. That is Jonah in the belly of the whale. That is the dark night of the soul. That is as bad as it gets. When at last, all hope of being saved is abandoned. They finally gave up. They finally realized that there was nothing they could do to save themselves. When they began to acknowledge that their fate was no longer in their own hands, they realized they had no one else to appeal to whose name they knew. When they came to realize that indeed their lives were not their own, they realized they didn't know the name of the one to whom their lives belonged. Enter the testimony of the Apostle Paul. When all hope is abandoned, Paul stands up and in faith bears witness to the one in whom he puts his trust. Paul says, okay, now you should have listened to me before we set sail, but you didn't. And so we didn't avoid all of the damage that we have now experienced, and we're not even going to be able to avoid shipwreck, because this is actually going to end with us having to run aground on an island. But I have good news for you. Not one life will be lost be of good courage. Be of good courage. You are with me, and I am with God. And God has a plan for my life that this storm is not going to interrupt. God has a plan. He intends for me to stand before the emperor in Rome and bear witness to Jesus Christ. And that calling and God's hand upon my life is greater than the storm we are experiencing. And so have good courage. Because you are with me and I am with God, everyone's safe. Think about that for a moment. These are people in utter terror. They have abandoned all hope of being saved. And the one Christian among them stands up in their midst and says, Don't be afraid. I know that God has a divine purpose for my life. And because you're with me and I'm with him, 
we're all good to go. Now, it's not going to go like you might hope. We are going to lose this ship and all of its cargo and anything that's left aboard, but not one life is going to be lost. I've actually told nervous passengers sitting next to me on airplanes that same thing. People who are white-knuckled, you've seen these people. Maybe you are these people. You know, when the plane starts, you know, right? And I've said to them, you do not need to worry. God has a plan for my life that's not yet finished. I know I'm not dying on this airplane. And you're sitting next to me. So you're good to go. <laughs> Our faith in God can, has, does inspire hope in other people. Listen to that again. Our faith in God through Jesus Christ our belief in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, our belief that he has the ability to overcome everything and makes of us more than conquerors. Overcomers, scripture says. Our faith in that God inspires hope in other people. They may never believe what we believe, but that last vestige of hope that they had is now placed in another where it belongs, a hope in God. Now, despite Paul's assurances, there are a few guys aboard who attempt to abandon ship. They missed the point that if they were with Paul, who was with God, they would be safe. So he has to reiterate that. If you choose to leave me, guess what? All bets are off. But we want to escape. We admit that. When there's a storm raging and we see a lifeboat and we see a way out, we want to get on it and we want to go. Sometimes abandoning those you're with is not the right course of action. Sometimes you have to stay with the one who created the storm or you have to stay with the one who brought the storm upon your family because the right thing to do is to overcome together, see it through to the end. The problem with seeking to escape our storms when our relationships run aground or when we lose all sense of hope is that it leaves us tragically isolated from other people. It's one thing to be adrift in life with 276 other people who are clinging to the debris and to be one solitary person out there floating along in the ocean. Those who are going to come from the outside to provide help have a lot better chance catching sight of a big group of people. If you're in trouble, in your family, then your family needs help. If you're in trouble at work, it's your entire team that needs to seek help. Isolating one person out as the problem among us often, most times, does not solve the problem. You can choose to weather the storm alone, but you will find yourself isolated from the people who care the most about you. If you choose to weather the storm in community, I can promise you that the people of Christ will be there for you to buoy you along the way. Today's story has a bittersweet end. Just as Paul pictured it, the, sh the ship does wreck. It is torn into thousands of pieces. But as Paul foresaw and foretold, not one life was lost. How did they survive? I'm glad you asked. They rode the debris to safety. Think about that for a minute. They rode the debris to safety. When our lives are splintered, broken, shattered, there are remnants, there are pieces, there are fragments of goodness and grace. And to those, we should cling. Consider that when you are at the end of your rope, you really have two choices. You can tie a noose or you can tie a knot. You can give up, 
curse God and die. Or you can hold on for dear life and trust God to deliver you. Not everybody makes the same decision when they're at the end of their rope. Grace is there for everyone. That's important for us to remember today. Garth Brooks sings a song called The River. These are the words. Life is like a river, ever-changing as it flows. We are just the vessels. We must follow where it goes. Trying to learn from what's behind us, never knowing what's in store. It makes each day a constant battle just to stay between the shores. There's bound to be rough waters. I know I'll take some falls. But with the good Lord as my captain, I can make it through it all. I will sail my vessel till the river runs dry. Like a bird upon the wind, these waters are my sky. I'll never reach my destination if I never try. So I will sail my vessel till the river runs dry. Ultimately, it comes down to the question, who is the captain of your vessel? You and I can stand like the captain in today's story, self-reliant, self-righteous, self-confident, hell-bent on charting our own course and making our own way. If that's true of you, I need to raise a storm warning today. There are rough waters ahead. You are headed for the rocks, and you do not know your way through them. If you'd like to reach a destination that's beyond your wildest dreams, then I'm going to invite you to turn over the helm to the captain, to the Lord, who knows the waters, the one who has weathered the storms that you are now experiencing. He can see all the way to the other side. If you trust him, he will see you all the way to safe haven. That's where Paul and his friends had set their heading. They were trying to reach fair haven. Where are you headed? Who's captaining the vessel of your life to get you there? Amen. It's almost over. Dr. Eddington will be back in the pulpit next Sunday. We have been for these six weeks of summer during storm, well, during hurricane season here. We have been looking at the storm stories of the Bible. We have been encountering some of the heroes of the storm. And we have been seeking to discern how it is that God might be present in the midst of the storms of our lives as well as what we might do um, to really be better prepared for the inevitable storms which still lie ahead. Today, we take a slightly different tact. Today, we acknowledge that surely God is present in the wind and in the earthquakes and in those storms of our lives, but God is also always present, if only by a gentle whisper sometimes even in the sheer silence that surrounds us. Please pray with me. Holy God, we would ask that you would silence every voice but your own, that we might receive this day the word that you have for each one of us. Grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I hope the message of the children's time was not lost on you. 
hope that the message of this morning's sermon is not lost on you. Because in both cases, the sole idea being proclaimed is that God is present and that he is speaking, calling each and every one of us to use this time and use the talents and use the opportunities that God has placed before us as useful in the unfolding of his plan for this world. But there are lots and lots of things competing for our attention in our seeking to discern God's call in our lives. Consider for a moment all of the things that compete for your attention in a given day. Just think about it. Think about all the reasons that you would put God on call waiting or place him on hold or ask him to call back later because, frankly, right now you're too busy tending to other things. Think about the cell phone and the radio, the television, the mail, the email, the uninvited, the uninvited guests, the uninvited mail, which I call junk mail. Some of you would call spam, depending where you get it. Phone solicitors. All of the things that intrude upon our lives. That doesn't even begin to account for the people who might be tugging on your coattails or on your apron strings, or the people trying to get your attention at work, or in the marketplace, or through billboards, or through all of the print media that is available to us each and every day. Right now, at this very moment, although, thanks be to God, each and every one of us is not attuned to it, there are an endless number of messages being sent through the air right here. On radio waves and on frequencies and through satellites sending communication and, I mean, thanks be to God, we can't hear them all, right? But they are all, right now, competing for our attention. If a cell phone were to ring in the context of the sanctuary right now, my point would be so well made. If you have a cell phone that gives you the ability to text message, or a PDA with Wi-Fi, then you are actually able to receive and respond to emails in real time, virtually anywhere in the world, according to one of my friends, even on the slopes of the Swiss Alps. I had friends who were in town last weekend from Atlanta, and we were talking about this, all of the things that are competing for our attention in our lives. And Mark said that, He had been on a business trip in Switzerland just a few weeks back, and one of the hosts of the company there said one afternoon, hey, let's just go out. I've got this great, incredible place where it just, the vista is just unbelievable. We've got to hike up this mountain and see this place, and Mark was all for it because they'd been in meetings for a better part of a week. And so there they went. Never occurred to Mark that he should take his cell phone or his Blackberry with him. Because the opportunity to simply behold the beauty of creation was what was going to be offered. It was what was going to be there. And they get right to the place where the opening comes out of the trees and and, and their host points. And he says, now, I want you all to just go take it in. Go right on up there. Right as you clear over the top of that, you're just going to be mesmerized by the view in front of you. And so, obediently, they went. And Mark said it was absolutely breathtaking. But his heart sank as behind him 
he heard the little trill of the man's blackberry. He hadn't gone all the way to the top himself. There he stood next to a tree where he could get reception, responding to his emails with a little stylus in his hand. There are more things than we can number competing for our attention. And you and I make a decision in every moment to whom we are going to turn our ear and our heart and our time. We live in what one author describes as a carnival atmosphere. Now, I want you to think about the last time you were at, I mean, a real carnival where the carnies are yelling at you from their booths or even intruding out into the path with the stuff that you could win. Come on in here. Try your luck over here. And they're screaming and they're trying to gain your attention. And it's only a dollar. And look, you got the opportunity to get all these wonderful things. Come on over here and try your luck. You and I live in a carnival atmosphere in our lives. Everybody yelling at us and hawking their wares and inviting us to try our luck at different things. Inviting us to serve lesser gods. How in the midst of all of that is God going to get a real hearing? How in the midst of all of that is God going to gain our attention for long enough that we can really hear his call upon our lives. How's God going to get a minute alone with you? How's he going to get you tuned into his frequency? How's he going to get you to really respond to what he has to say to you? It's true that there are times that God does speak to us through the devastating storms that we encounter. God does sometimes speak to us through the things that rock our world and shake our very foundations. God does sometimes speak to us through the wind or through the earthquake or through the fire. More often, God speaks to us in the midst of those experiences. But I dare say that God is always speaking to us if we will only silence ourselves long enough to listen. Be still and know that I am God. That's what the Lord says. If you and I would ever come to the place where we would be still. We are never still. Right now, there's a bunch of little fidgety fuss budgets in the sanctuary. Even as I proclaim to you from the scriptures that God says to you, be still and know that I am God. We can't stop moving our hands or tapping our feet. Um, we are an agitated group of fuss budgets. We are. Be still and know that I am God. 
And you say to yourself, I do not have time to be still. You should see the things I have got to get done in a day. Good Lord, if you only knew all of the things that are already present before me and on my little jotter and on my little checkoff list and I have to get done in the There is no time in my frenetic life to be still. And frankly, there's really no time in my frenetic life to be quiet because there's a lot of information there that I have to have. i got to have access to so that I can be a good participant in the conversations that are going to be ahead this day so that I can seem smart to all those people that I'm going to be with. Who cares? We are so afraid. We are so afraid that we are going to enter into a meeting or a conversation or a circumstance and we're going to feel ill-prepared or ill-informed. That we frenetically fill our time listening to the lesser voices taking in the information that's being offered by, frankly, people who are not eternal and those who do not have an eternal perspective on our lives nor on this world. If you ever feel alone, consider this. The Lord says in both the Old and the New Testaments, I am with you always. You're just not listening. You're just not perceiving You are never alone. Do not be afraid. I, the Lord, am with you. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I will bless you. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of the Lord will be with you to keep you from sinning. But do not be afraid. For the Lord your God himself is going to fight on your behalf. Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be terrified because of others. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. For the Lord thy God is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work of the Lord has been accomplished. Be still and know that I am God. God is always present in the wonderful, magnificent, calm, and in the midst of the torrential rain and the storm seasons of our lives. If we don't feel his presence, if we don't perceive his presence, if we don't sense that God is near, if we don't hear him, it is not that God has withdrawn from us. It is more times than not that we have withdrawn from him. We have lost touch. Is there anybody that you have ever loved in your life who has been a dear friend and a companion for part of the journey with whom you can now say, I have lost touch with them? Somebody should be nodding. Not nodding off. Somebody should be now nodding. Yes, i got people in my life with whom I've lost touch. Yeah, I get that. That makes sense. We lose touch with people because we do not stay in constant communication with them. We lose touch with people because the priorities of our lives are different than the priorities of their life. Our lives have gone different directions. Have you ever heard yourself say that? They're taking a different path than I'm taking. Well, guess what? If we're talking about God, that is not good news. If God is taking a different
different path than you are choosing to take and you are out of touch with God, you are out of relationship with Him, we're not headed in the same direction, that is not good news for you. You don't want to be out of touch with God. You don't want to be headed in a different direction than God is headed. We want God not only to be our companion for the journey, by the way, He's not along for our ride. I want to be God's companion on the way that he has set, on the course that he has decided. Sometimes we lose touch. We get out of tune. If you're not tuned into the right frequency on the radio, you are not going to hear what you're looking for, right? If you ever tried to look for the Braves, right? They're a baseball team, for those of you who don't know. And supposedly, anywhere in America, certainly anywhere in the southeastern United States, you should be able to hear every Braves game. They are supposedly all on the radio. Well, let me tell you, we live in a place where you've got to get that setting exactly right on that little AM station if you really want to get that game. If you're off by just a hair, it's just full of static, it's really hard to hear, it's not very pleasurable, right? And you miss a lot of what's going on. The same is true in our relationship to God. If we're just a little bit out of tune, if we're just a little bit off of God's frequency, it is not a pleasant experience. I want our lives to be fully tuned into who God is so that we can hear the sound of his voice clearly. Because that is when the experience is enjoyable. Jesus says in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all that are his own, he goes on ahead of them. His sheep will follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from a stranger because they do not recognize that stranger's voice. Do you see how important it is to know what the voice of the Good Shepherd sounds like? You and I are going to have to discern between the voice of the Good Shepherd and the voice of other shepherds, other strangers, thieves and robbers trying to lead us astray. The Good Shepherd is trying to lead us in the way and the truth and the life. The Good Shepherd is trying to lead us on a path to eternity. There are lots of others competing for our attention false prophets and false teachers and hawkers of all kinds of ideas who are right now speaking to the sheep, trying to get us to go their way. It is a constant part of our lives. Can we honestly say that we know the Good Shepherd so well that we can pick out his voice from among all others, that we would know that all others are strangers, and that we would know that Jesus alone is the one whom we are following. That's the challenge of today. Do we know the sound of God's voice so clearly 
that we could actually close our eyes and in the midst of a carnival atmosphere, listen for his voice alone and know in confident faith that we are following it. There's a game I used to play with teenagers to help them experience this point. You choose two people who know each other very well, best friends if you can find them in the midst of your youth group, and you you do that because they know the sound of one another's voices, right? You know the sound of your best friend's voice, do you not? You do not have to have them identify themselves on the phone when they call, right? You know immediately your children's voice. This is an, it would be another good way to do it. You could do this as a family. That would be fun, actually. You blindfold one of them, and you send their friend to the other side of the room. You tell everybody else to fill in the middle. You tell all the people in the middle to be yelling and screaming, trying to gain the attention of the blindfolded person. And you tell their best friend on the other side, without moving, do whatever you have to to get your friend through that mess, through all those people, and safely over to you. Guess what that person has to do to make this work. Go ahead, say it out loud, it's okay. No one's recording this. The one person who's blindfolded has to listen. What does this other person have to do in order to make themselves heard? Yeah, no, you guys have never done this. They actually have to whisper. The only way this works is for the other person to just simply very calmly and very quietly repeat that person's name assure them of where they are and invite them toward them. It's a very, they will listen for the quiet, calm, unagitated voice who knows their name. It is the message of today's passage. It is the message of Christ about how he calls his sheep unto himself over and over and over again. He says, I call them by name. They know me and I know them and they come to me because I call them by name. God called Samuel by name. Samuel was very young at the time. Samuel didn't know who was calling him. And so he got up and he went to Eli, who was the priest, and he said, Did you call me? And Eli said, No, son, you're hearing things. Go back to bed. And so Samuel went back to bed, and again, he, he was sure he heard his name, Samuel, Samuel. And so he rose, and he went to Eli, and he said, Father, did you, I, I'm, I'm sure I heard my name, did you call me? And Eli then, knowing God, woke up and said, okay, something's really happening here. That's the Lord calling to you. When you... When you hear him call again, stay right where you are and answer him. Eli had been waiting his whole life for the Lord to call his name. He was attuned to the sound of the Lord's voice. He knew what a call of God sounded like. And when it came, it came to Samuel. Eli had the privilege of serving as an interpreter for the next generation. If you know 
the sound of God's voice because your life has been saturated with God's word. If you know the sound of God's voice because you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and you have followed him and you are in a relationship with him and you know that he is present and what he sounds like and the kinds of things that he teaches and you know the difference between what all those strangers and false teachers who are trying to get your attention through the window right now and I wish you weren't looking at them. If you are in a position to know what God sounds like, you are being called right now by God to serve as an interpreter for the next generation. You and I are in a unique position to interpret for children and youth who God is and what he sounds like and how he's calling them. We can go back to bed and sleep through it. We can turn up the ambient noise on those little machines that we turn on because the silence is so deafening to us that we don't even want to sleep where it's quiet. Or we can do as Samuel did. And we can say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. We can do as Elijah did when God said, what are you doing here, hiding in the cleft of a rock? Go to the people to whom I have sent you. Use the gifts that I have given you and be a voice. Be an interpreter of the things of God and who God is to the next generation. Don't wait for some profound burning bush experience. It is not going to come. God has already laid out a call for each one of us. He has done so clearly and distinctly. If you have missed it, it is not God's fault. Pick up his word and begin to read it. My guess is you know more of it already than you need to know in order to be an interpreter of it for the next generation. God is not done with you yet. How do I know? He has not yet taken you fully to himself. If you are still here, if you are still here, which is a question each person who's alive has to answer, am I really still here? If you are still here, it is for a divine purpose. And it is not a purpose that God is necessarily going to come with you in profundity and explain. He has already come in the person of Jesus Christ, and he remains by the presence of the Holy Spirit, and he issues a call. Be a faithful interpreter of who God is to the next generation. Can you hear it? Let's pray. Holy God, whether it be our children or our grandchildren or the children of faith in this congregation or the children of our community at public school or the children through mentoring or the children in the Boys and Girls Club or the children at the high school or the children in athletic programs, Whatever gifts and talents and experiences you have given us, 
in whatever place you have put us, for whatever time you have left us here. Tune our ears to you so that we might serve as interpreters of your word to a generation currently speaking a foreign language. Send us, Lord God, and give us the courage to respond to your call upon our lives. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Pray with me, please. Give me Jesus, Lord. Give me Jesus. You can have all the rest. Just give me Jesus. Amen. Do you know the name George O'Leary? George O'Leary enjoyed a fairly successful tenure as the head football coach at Georgia Tech. And then one day in December of 2001, George O'Leary's greatest dream in life came true. On that day, he was named the head football coach at the University of Notre Dame, undoubtedly one of the most coveted coaching positions in all of college football. However, just two days later, George O'Leary's great dream turned into a nightmare. It was revealed that he had lied on his resume. And as a result, he was forced to resign immediately in disgrace. Now, I suppose there might be some who would say that in spite of that, George O'Leary managed to land on his feet because now George O'Leary is the coach at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. But dear friends, let me tell you something. I know UCF in Orlando, and UCF is no Notre Dame. The fact of the matter is, George O'Leary paid a terrible price for violating the Ninth Commandment, the commandment where God prohibits the telling of lies. Now, I know, sad to say, what George O'Leary did is really not so unusual these days. As a matter of fact, I was rather startled to read the results of a recent survey of three million job applications in the United States. And that study revealed that right at one half of those resumes contained one or more falsehoods. Staggering. There is a major problem in the society in which we are living with telling the truth. In a recent column, Time magazine expressed it this way. The injunction against bearing false witness branded in stone, brought down by Moses from the mountaintop, has always provoked conflicting emotions. 
On the one hand, nearly everyone condemns lying. On the other hand, nearly everyone does it nearly every day. I believe that may well be true. I would even go so far as to suggest that this ninth commandment is the commandment broken far more frequently than any or all of the other nine commandments. Mark Twain, with his rather incisive wit, once stated that he had discovered in his life 869 different ways to tell a lie. Whew! Well, I don't know about that calculation, but I do know this. There are many, many people who would never dream of killing or stealing, but who would tell a lie at the drop of a hat. That's why it's so important for us to remember this ninth commandment. You see, we in life are expected to be truth-tellers. And therefore, if we are going to lie, then we need to understand that it's going to hurt us, it's going to hurt other people, it may even hurt the nation in which we live. I believe that's why God made this one of the commandments. Number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness. In other words, thou shalt not lie. The book of Proverbs puts it like this. The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in those who are truthful. Here's the way I like to say it. Lying is the opposite of loving. Think about that. Now that's the theme that I want to play out for us right now. Lying is the opposite of loving. The first thing that I want to say is this that lying hurts all of us because lying creates in our nation a culture of deceit. You and I know perfectly well uh, that things like truth, honesty, integrity, and trust are the glue which holds a nation or a society together. The fact of the matter is, people cannot live together without trust and honesty. And therefore, when honesty takes a holiday in the experience of a nation, when truth-telling is set aside in the lives of people, trust is gone. And when trust is gone, hope is gone. And when hope is gone... Sooner or later, the nation is gone. Daniel Burstyn, until his retirement, was the director of the Library of Congress in Washington. Recently, in a speech, he delivered these words. Listen, we are living in a nation 
so caught up in lying through its advertising and propaganda and even our daily conversations with one another that we are actually imperiling the very life of our states. He may have a point. Let me come at it this way. Occasionally we hear of a college student who is caught cheating and is then expelled from school. And we tend to say to ourselves in the face of that kind of instance, what in the world would lead a person to do something like that? Well, I'll tell you what. More than likely, that individual, when he was age eight, heard his dad say that the clerk in the department store had given him back too much change, but he had simply stuffed it in his pocket and thanked his lucky stars. When he was ten, he heard his mom and dad discussing how they might cut a few corners on their income taxes. It was all right, because after all, everyone was doing it. When he was 12, he broke his glasses. And he then listened as his mother called the insurance company to report to them that the glasses were stolen, not broken, so that the insurance company would pay the replacement costs. When he got his first job in the supermarket, they were very careful to teach him how to always put the best fruit on the top and the overripe fruit underneath. When he went to high school, his coach taught him how to surreptitiously catch hold of a jersey while throwing a block or how to use a deliberately delivered elbow in order to stop an opposing player from driving in for a layup. And then when he went to college, he discovered that he could purchase already prepared research papers. Or he could simply go to the files in the fraternity house and find the answers to tests because complacent professors hadn't created new tests in years. And so he's caught cheating in college and he's expelled. And everyone is surprised when in fact it shouldn't be any surprise at all. You see, dear friends, when honesty takes a holiday in a nation's experience, when truth-telling is set aside in people's lives, terrible things happen. The whole society becomes polluted. It begins to affect and infect everyone. And as a result, all kinds of things happen. For example, Building codes or quality controls or fire safety standards are no longer trustworthy. We begin to expect the worst from the TV repairman or the auto mechanic or the furniture salesman. A doctor's Hippocratic oath is rendered meaningless. Lawyers come to be seen as experts not in upholding the law, but in getting around the law. Marriages are built on promises that were never intended to be kept. 
national leaders are regarded not so much for the quality of their leadership as their ability to speak out of both sides of their mouths. You see, when we start to bend the truth, cut corners, look the other way, allow advertising to become a not-so-subtle tissue of lies, uh, hand answers across the top of the table, or money and payoffs under the table. When we begin to let honesty take a holiday in a nation's life, then what else could happen but that the whole fabric of our society shall become worn and torn. Take the case of Henry Durham. Henry Durham was the production manager for a large corporation, a corporation which did much business with our Defense Department. And in the process of his responsibilities, Henry Durham began to realize that some improper business practices were being condoned by his company. He went to the company officials with the matter. Nothing changed. Finally, he decided to go to the authorities. An investigation ensued, an investigation which revealed that those improprieties had cost American taxpayers $2 billion. Now, what happened to Henry Durham as a result? He lost his job. He was ostracized by his friends. He even had threats against his life. And after all of that, do you know what Henry Durham said? He said... I have become disillusioned with the virtues I used to believe in. In other words, now he's going to start lying too. You see, dear friends, when people begin to lie, people sooner or later begin to expect that everyone else is lying as well. And in the face of that, Almighty God says so plainly, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not lie. I believe it's true that lying is the opposite of loving. And therefore, if we love America then we've got to find a way to stop lying in our everyday lives. Now, that brings me to the next thing I wish to say. It's this, that there are three guiding principles to help us become obedient to the ninth commandment. Principle number one. We ought always to stand for the truth, no matter the cost. George Orwell once said, In a time of universal deceit, 
telling the truth is a revolutionary act. If that is true, and I believe it is, then dear friends, you and I as Christians today are called to be revolutionaries. Because believe me, we are living in a time of universal deceit. We are surrounded by lies on every hand. There are the lies that business people tell. Putting their own spin on things in order to enhance the bottom line or in order to feed their own bottom line. And now we have some very prominent business executives spending time in jail for doing just that. There are the lies that academics tell. The biggest lie on campus today is this, that there is no universal truth. There are only different versions of reality. Uh, that's what's called postmodernism. It's nothing but a big lie. But it enables academics to then go on and tell all kinds of other lies. There are the lies that politicians tell, particularly during political campaigns. After all of the attack ads and broken promises, little wonder that voters seem to be more cynical than ever. There are even the lies that journalists tell. You see, when the story becomes more important than the truth, then the line between fact and fantasy becomes very blurry. And we have seen that happen so many times recently in our national media. We are surrounded by lies. It is little wonder that recent studies indicate that less than half, less than half, God help us, less than half of all Christian young people believe that there is a universal standard of truth. How incredibly sad. In this time of cultural deceit, Chuck Colson calls our society today the post-truth society. In this time, we as Christians are called to be the people of truth. Whatever other lies other people may tell in their lives, you and I as Christians are called, yes, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God. That's principle number one. We ought always to stand for the truth, no matter the cost. Principle number two. We ought never to articulate our assumptions as if they were facts. I learned about a wonderful Christian woman who suffered a terminal illness. This wonderful lady made the decision that she would share that only with the members of her family and with her priest. As a result of that, the priest began to visit her regularly in her home, ministering to her in the last days of her life. There were some neighbors who noticed the priest coming to the home on a regular basis. And they made some evil and iniquitous assumptions about that woman. And they began to spread those assumptions 
far and wide. Three months later, the woman was dead, and the truth was revealed. At that point, those neighbors actually went to the priest and confessed what they'd done and sought God's forgiveness. That was a good thing to do. That was the right thing to do. But you see, it was too late for a good woman who was gone. Martin Luther said, Reputation is quickly stolen, not quickly returned. Principle number two. Let us never articulate our assumptions as if they were facts. Principle number three. We ought never to be tail-bearers or tail-listeners. Are you aware of the fact that it is just as much a crime to pass counterfeit money as it is to print it? Just so. Passing along counterfeit stories in our lives is wrong. It results in broken reputations, fractured friendships, shattered families. In my own life, I know only too well the pain that can come when there are others who tell lies about you. I would even go so far as to say that careless words can actually kill. I could point you to a suicide, which I know occurred because... A false and malicious story was spread far and wide. Dear friends, when we are confronted with stories passing to us from others, we ought to ask ourselves three questions. Is what's being said true? Is what's being said required to be said in this conversation? If the person about whom it is being said were here, would this be said? If we can't answer those questions, if our words can't pass that test then we need to be silent. We ought never to be tail-bearers. We ought never to be tail-listeners either. If gossip is wrong, listening to it is just as wrong. There's a great old rabbinic teaching which goes like this. Slander kills three. The one of whom it is spoken. The one who speaks it, and the one who listens to it. And so when someone is trying to pass a counterfeit story to us, how do we respond? Interrupt. Stop it. Say very simply, listen, I'd really rather not talk about that if you don't mind. Or... (laughs) I, you could really go this far if you wanted to. You could say, wait, wait, wait. Before we engage in this conversation, 
Let's stop and pray. Whoo! I want to tell you that'll stop gossip in its tracks every time. That's principle number three. We ought never, never to be tail bearers or tail listeners. Seems to me that I've come full circle. Lying is the opposite of loving. And therefore, dear friends, I plead with us all. Let's put truth and honesty back to work in America. Let's put truth and honesty back to work in our lives. For then we shall be loving one another in a very profound and practical way. And we shall be blessed. And the people around us shall be blessed. And even this nation shall be blessed. That's why God says so clearly, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not lie. That's what he says. He says what he means. He means what he says. Pray with me, please. God on high, hear my prayer. Enable us to always be truth tellers, remembering that you detest lying lips, but you delight in those who are truthful. Amen. Pray with me, please. Lord, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Amen. Nearly one year ago now, I set myself to the task of preaching a series of sermons on the Ten Commandments. I will tell you that while that task has not been easy, nevertheless, it has been a great blessing to me to dig deep and to search out the treasures contained in this portion of God's Word. And I will tell you, that while you may not have always agreed with everything that I've said in these sermons, nevertheless, your response has been encouraging. So many of you have written or called or spoken words of thanks for the opportunity to wrestle with the tough, sometimes even controversial truths contained in what I choose to call the ten for our time. Now, I want you to understand that right at the very beginning of all this, I knew that I would not take the commandments in order, nor would I preach the sermons on successive Sundays. Instead, I determined 
that I would preach them as either inclination or circumstance dictated. And that is precisely what I have done. However, right from the very beginning, I knew that the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet, would be the commandment which I would consider last. You see, if the First Commandment has the authority of priority, then the last commandment has the authority of finality. The first nine commandments tell us to be careful about what we do. But this tenth commandment tells us to be careful about what is in our hearts. I would suggest there is even a sense in which this Tenth Commandment actually sums up the meaning of the nine which preceded. Check them off with me and let me show you what I mean. The First Commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods. Covetousness tempts us to give possessions, not God, the top priority in our lives. The second commandment says, Thou shalt not make any graven image. Covetousness tempts us to pursue impurity in life rather than purity. The third commandment says, Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Covetousness tempts us to dishonor God's name by being discontented with what God gives us in life. The fourth commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day. Covetousness tempts us to gain an extra advantage on the competition by working on the Sabbath. The fifth commandment says, Honor thy father and thy mother. Covetousness tempts us toward selfishness, thus keeping us from caring about others, particularly those who are older. The sixth commandment says, Thou shalt not kill. Covetousness, or the desire to gain something for yourself, is all too often the motive for killing. The seventh commandment says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Covetousness tempts us to pursue improper relationships. The eighth commandment says, Thou shalt not steal. That is covetousness put into action. The ninth commandment says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Covetousness tempts us to lie in order to gain something for ourselves. And so you see, the authority of the Tenth Commandment rests in the fact that it condemns that attitude of the heart, that inner desire and motivation, which prompts all of the evils of which the other commandments speak. That is why I chose to deal with this Tenth Commandment in the Tenth Sermon in this series called The Ten for Our Time. Now, I want to approach this commandment 
by posing and then attempting to answer three questions. What is the definition for covetousness? What is the indication of covetousness? And what is the correction to covetousness? One question at a time, please. First question. What is the definition for covetousness? I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but so often when we refer to human sins, we allude to them using different parts of the body. For example, when we talk about lying, we think of the tongue. When we talk about envy, we think of the eye. When we talk about gluttony, we think of the mouth. In fact, the Latin word for throat is glutus. When we think about anger, often we use the image boiling blood. When we speak of pride, frequently we picture in our minds a puffed-up chest. Well, by the same token, covetousness is frequently portrayed by the hands. Because covetousness is a greedy, grasping spirit. Covetousness, you see, is an inordinate desire to possess something or someone. Now, the key word there is the word inordinate. Simple desire is all right. In fact, it is very good. It is inordinate desire, improper desire, which is not so good. But that is the very reason that there is a lot of confusion about this subject of covetousness. I remember that the great St. Francis Xavier once said uh, that he had heard thousands of confessions in his priestly career, but he never once heard anyone confess to the sin of covetousness. I wonder if that's true of us. I mean, my guess is that you've prayed thousands of prayers in your life. But how many of those prayers have been focused upon the reality of a covetous spirit in your own experience? I think there is great confusion, you see, about this matter of covetousness. And so we need to be clear at this point. Simple desire is good. In fact... All of us are human beings. All of us have certain desires, motivations, impulses, all of which are built into us by God. In fact, the Bible says that we are to desire to excel, to exceed, to advance, to gain in life. The Bible declares that we are to desire those things which are of true worth and value in life. Simple desire is good. It is inordinate desire, improper desire, which is so deadly. 
notice, please, that the Tenth Commandment says, Thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor's. There's the clue. In other words... If you desire to have a roof over your head and to share that with others, that is a healthy desire. If you desire to work hard and build a business and employ others in that business, that is a healthy desire. If you desire to work in partnership with nature to produce that which is good and nourishing and is a blessing to the earth and the people of the earth, that is a healthy desire. However, if you desire that which is evil, if you desire something which belongs to someone else, if you desire something so much that you are willing to do anything to get it, If you desire that which is wrong with such a passion that it eats away at your own soul, then that is desire which has turned deadly. That is covetousness. And on the basis of that understanding of covetousness, surely you would agree with me, the fact is covetousness is one of the truly besetting sins of our time. Second question. What is the indication of covetousness? Well, I will tell you honestly that I think that covetousness manifests itself in a whole variety of ways in our human experience these days, but I would suggest that the most obvious way is through what I would call compulsive consumerism. We, you and I, are blessed to live in the single most affluent nation in all of the history of the world, yet how often that blessing turns into a curse. You see, we are told on every hand that we are to engage in acquiring things. This compulsive consumerism, we are told, is the secret of happiness. And as a result of that, all too often, we fall into the trap of engaging in a firestorm of buying and getting and holding and clutching, forgetting that this consuming, compulsive acquisition of things and possessions actually enslaves us. Here, dear friends, is what is true. Things destroy freedom. Oh, we think we own things. Not true. They own us. Oh, at first, when we acquire these things or possessions, we are filled with joy that we possess them. But before very long, 
our possessions start to possess us. Before very long, our possessions start to deliver commands to us. Commands like, press me, patch me, paint me, polish me, prune me, plaster me. And before we know it, we are working for our possessions in order to maintain them and to keep them. We become possessed by them. And when we get tired of that, we toss those possessions aside and we begin to desire other possessions and the whole cycle begins all over again. The desire becomes more and more insatiable. I see it so often. Tricia and I, on the occasion of our marriage, received as a gift from a friend an absolutely lovely Lalique crystal vase. In the 40 years of our marriage, that Lalique vase has become a cherished possession. It occupies a place of honor in our home. Now, I remember a time a few years back when Tricia and I were invited to a palatial home. When we entered the door and stepped into the foyer of that magnificent home, we were confronted with a large table in the foyer and shelves lining the walls of the foyer And that table and those shelves contain what appeared to me to be every piece of crystal Lalique ever created. And it dawned on me in that moment that when you have them all, no one of them has any particular value. Mark this down. Conspicuous consumerism is an exercise in futility. Compulsive acquisition usually is a cover for spiritual poverty. The fact of the matter is, money can't buy you love, and possessions can't buy you happiness, and things can't give you a sense of meaning in life, and inordinate desire can't get you into the kingdom of heaven. Frankly, the opposite is true. I remember the day a man came into my office demanding that I call his sister on the phone and express my deep distress about the way the sister was handling an inheritance matter in the family. This man was demanding more than the will provided for him. When I refused to do it, he became enraged. He said, I'll see my sister in hell. And with that, he stomped out of my office and slammed the door. Well, I don't know if he's going to see his sister in hell or not. But I can tell you this. At that moment, he was in hell. You see, covetousness 
dishonors God, dishonors others, dishonors ourselves. That's why it is so deadly. And that's why I think the bottom line of the Ten Commandments reads, Thou shalt not covet. Question number three. What is the correction to covetousness? Let me put it to you straight. The only cure for covetousness is conversion. The only way to eliminate greed in the human heart is regeneration. The only way to break the grip of a grasping spirit is to be born again. The only way to overcome deadly desire is to come to Jesus Christ. I learned that from Paul, from the great apostle Paul. I don't know if you know this or not, but covetousness was the toughest sin that Paul ever had to deal with. He says it himself in Romans chapter 7. Sometime it would do you good to sit down on your own and read through the verses of Romans chapter 7 and go on to the first verse of Romans chapter 8. There Paul says that covetousness was like a great serpent wrapped around his heart. And then he says, when he confronted the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet, that law provoked his sin. That serpent, he says, began to tighten and twist and writhe and strike. You know, that's the way evil is, isn't it? I mean, whenever we find ourselves tempted with that which is wrong, there is something down inside of us that says that's the very thing that we want to do. I like to say it like this. The grass is always greener on the other side of the law. In other words, when we encounter a thou shalt not, there is always something inside us that says, but that's exactly what I wish to do. Paul says that's the way it was for him. He says in Romans chapter 7, the good that I know is not what I do. The evil that I don't want to do, that's exactly what I do. He cries out at that point, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes on to say that what the law couldn't do and what he, Paul, couldn't do, Christ could do and Christ did do. What saved Paul was not the law from Sinai, but the love from Calvary. And that is why in the first verse of Romans 8, Paul could say, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There it is. We need to be converted. 
We need to be born again to newness of life. We need to begin to live in all of the goodness of God's grace. We need to set aside faithless fear and foolish pride which tempt us to a greedy, grasping spirit in life. And therefore, the Tenth Commandment, taken in the context of the Christ, calls us to repent, to turn, to turn away from that desire that is inordinate, improper, and so deadly, and instead to turn to the loving healing, forgiving, redeeming, amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ. Dear friends, you and I are living in a world which says the thing to do is get, get, get. And our God says it is more blessed to give than to receive. We are living in a world which says push other people down so that you can climb to the top. And our God says we are members one of another. The world says possessions are what make you happy. Your greatness is revealed by what you have. And our God says, let those who are greatest among you be the servants of all. Dear friends, when the law of God is heard and heeded in a life, when the love of Calvary flows down into a life. Then that person's heart is filled. That person's fists are unclenched. And that person's spirit begins to soar. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There it is, simple as I know how to say it. The only cure to covetousness is Christ. So, I come to the end of these sermons on the ten for our time. I'd like to finish with this. Lloyd Douglas, the great writer the author of the noted novel, The Robe, had a friend who was a violinist. And this violinist had a one-room studio in a building filled with other one-room studios. One day, Lloyd Douglas went to visit his friend in his studio. And when Lloyd Douglas walked into that one-room studio, he said to the violinist, Well, what is the good news for today? The violinist immediately put down his violin. He walked over to the center of the room where there was a tuning fork suspended from the ceiling by a silken thread. He picked up a little mallet and he struck that tuning fork. And then he said, the good news for today is, that is an A. That was an A a thousand years ago. That was an A yesterday. That is an A today. That will be an A tomorrow. 
that will be an A a thousand years from now. That is the good news for today. The soprano on the upper floor sings flat. The tenor across the hall can't hit the right notes. The piano in the studio next door needs to be tuned. I am surrounded on every hand by noise, noise, and more noise. But the good news is, that is an A, and I can count on that every single day. Ha! That is also true of the Ten Commandments. God's law and God's love are like that A. They are permanent. They never change. We can depend upon them always. God's law convicts us of sin. God's love converts us from sin. And therefore, when we decide to walk with God from this day on, when we decide to open our hearts to God in Jesus Christ, then we shall discover that God has already opened His heart to us. And then, by God's grace, you and I can live every single day like children of the King. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Amen and amen.